Chapter 23 Lyria Foxwalker Bloody damn! I curse and draw my hand back from the rose bushes. A small drop of blood beads where the thorn pricked me. I suck the blood away and stretch myself deeper into the bushes, feet spread wide, so I don't lose my balance in the low gravity, as I scoop up the fox shit with my trowel. Body still hasn't wised up to its own weight here. I reach the scat this time, taking a clump of dirt with it, and finally dump the waste into the blue plastic container Dr. Liago gave me for sample collection. Sophocles has been mad as a box of snakes since we arrived on Luna last week, trying his best to kill the lovely packlebell birds that fill the trees of the citadel's gardens. He was well-mannered on the return trip from Mars when I was introduced to him by Cavix and told my duties by Bethalia, the terrifying old general of the army of Telemannus' servants, Sophocles spent most of his days trotting around the ship with Liam and me, following along dutifully behind Cavix, or curled up in his master's chambers. But now he catches one whiff of the pink birds and he's nearly pulling my arm out of its sockets to claw furrows in the trunks of trees. Dr. Liago, the Telemannus' personal physician for fox and human alike, can't figure out what's wrong with the beast which leaves me picking up fox shit samples three times a day. Tedious, but compared with the muggy hell of Camp 121, it's not a shabby life. I'm paid a good wage, fed three square, given four spare uniforms, and sleep in a climate-controlled bunk room. There's no mosquitoes, and no fear when I walk the grounds late at night in the dark cycle. I go out most nights to look at the stars and watch ships come and go on the Citadel of Light's landing pads atop the Palatine Hill to the northwest. The last time I can remember feeling this safe was nestled between my da and mum, watching my brother Angus dance with the lasses at Laureltide as Dagon glowered to himself. Cavix has been just as kind to Liam as to me. He put Liam in the Citadel school with the children of the other employees who live on the grounds. They board near the north wall in dormitory set in a small forest of cypress. Even though the school is within the Citadel walls, it's still twenty clicks north of the Telemannus estate, so I only manage to catch the tram to see him three times a week. I stop in at night time before they put the children to bed. Each time I have to leave, he clings to me, not wanting me to go. Breaks my heart every time. He says the other kids are kind, but he's one of the only reds there. Right-o, you little beast, time's up, back inside, I say, turning back from the bush. Sophocles, he's gone. I searched the sycamores and the elder shrubs. He slipped his leash again and ran off somewhere toward Lake Augustine. There's no sign of him. Damn it! If he kills more Packlebell, I'll be in for it with Bethalia. 
I walked the gravel path that winds through the Esquiline Gardens in search of him. The gardens sprawl around the base of the Esquiline Hills, where the manicured stone estates of old gold families sit inside the citadel walls. They are now filled with the sovereign's most powerful supporters, chiefly houses Arcos and Telemannus. Little ponds and streams are nestled at the bases of the hills, amongst tranquil copses of rose bushes. It looks like a storybook painting of the Vale. But this garden has some deep shadows, and the men and women who walk here are empire breakers. It is early autumn now in Hyperion, a season far kinder than the gruelling summers of the Boeotian plains. Something of it reminds me of the tunnels of Lagolus, how dew would bead on the outside of the metal doors all throughout our township in the early mornings. You'd love it, Tyrion, the way the fog catches on the walls and cloaks the palatine spires, just like one of your story books. No, don't go there. Don't think of them. I bite the inside of my cheek till I taste blood to draw me out of the quicksand of memory. It's morning. The small data pad on the underside of my wrist reads 7.32am, Earth Standard on the 16th day of the bright month of October. 60 degrees Fahrenheit and cloudy with afternoon showers. The data pad is unlike anything I had in the mines, let alone the camp. Sometimes I lay in bed, staring at the slowly turning hologram of Mars before drifting off to sleep, guiltily wondering if I should miss it. I don't, if anything. I miss Lagalos. My body still has not welcomed the low gravity here. I feel more trapped on this moon than I did on the three-week journey from Mars. I felt it the moment I stepped off the shuttle that took us down from orbit and missed that first step down from the ramp. The lethargic gravity is at odds with the manic pace of the ships in the blue sky overhead, the constant flow of important people on important tasks. But the worst is the protocol and judgment from the other valets. I thought Cavex would forget about me as soon as I boarded his ship. Instead, he took a liking to me. Hell knows why. He had me sup with him every breakfast, first teaching me the intricacies of Sophocles' dietary and care requirements. But those lessons were forgotten when he gave me a book of lullabies that Sophocles requires sung to him before bedtime. I had to confess that I could not read more than half the words. He stared at me as if I had thirteen heads. That will not do, he roared. Not at all. Stories are the wealth of humanity. My wife would not forgive me if I denied you the key to that wealth. He took to giving me lessons after every breakfast in his stateroom, but they were abandoned after Zana burst into the room in a panic. I learned later 
that she had just heard news of the Reaper's demotion at the hands of the Senate, his murder of the captain of the wardens and his disappearance from Luna. Heavy shit. The news has turned the moon into a madhouse. Protests clogged the boulevards on the day we returned. A crowd of hundreds of thousands flowing like a tide of Sumerian ants calling for the reaper's arrest, the sovereign's impeachment. But they were met violently by a mass of the reaper's worshippers. The watchmen had to disperse the clashing mobs with heat beams and gas. Does me good to know I'm not the only one who's lost faith in the sovereign. Sophocles! I call out again, following a narrow track of gravel past the base of another estate. Sophocles, where are you? I feel watched. He's playing games again. I crouch low and move off the path in between two sycamores to search the bank of the lake. A black swan stares at the shore. There! Jutting out from behind a trunk is a bushy red tail swaying in the breeze. I creep forward, minding the twigs under my new shoes. Quietly, carefully. The tail moves with excitement. I burst around the tree and Sophocles pounces on me in a flurry of red fur. Laughing, I let his weight take me to the ground where he licks my ears till I have to wrestle him off. His cold nose pokes at the side of my neck. I reattach his collar. Then I hear a strange pop through the trees. I walk toward the sound in a small clearing, I find a concrete block of a grey warden speaking with the slender copper with the familiar face. Though I crouch barely twenty metres away, I can't hear either man. It's almost like magic. The grey shoves a finger into the copper's chest as if scolding him. The copper looks away, my direction. I dart back into the trees, hauling on Sophocles' leash. Whatever was happening wasn't my business. I pull Sophocles along the path back to the Telemannus estate. At the side door, I'm moving so fast, I run straight into someone and almost fall down. I look up into narrow, cold eyes. A woman with a face like tree bark stares down at me. She's grey and built thicker than any man in Lagalos. I've seen her twice before, always quiet and in the shadows of things. The servants say she's a howler, and before that a son of Ares. Her eyes turn to me as if she could sense me watching. A chill goes down my spine at standing so close to a bloody grey. I feel like I'm back in the mine as I mumble apologies. She steps past me and continues down the hill. Feeling twice as small as I did before, I pull on Sophocles' leash and make for the estate. I find Liago curled over his botany desk like a long length of old ivy. He's an old yellow, maybe seventy? 
People age slower outside the mines. They use cremes on their faces, injections, laser therapy, makes some of them look positively deranged. In the mines, you wear your age proudly. You got white hair? Bloody damn fine for you. Must be quick on your feet. Proud thing, that. Liago seems to agree very much with my people. His face wrinklier than my father's knuckles, all crags and fissures and little patches of scaggleweed facial hair. The top of his long-jawed head is crested by great plumes of white hair. Nimble hands prod the base of a slim, violently orange flower. He doesn't hear the howling of the kettle on his small electric stove. Dr. Liago. Lyria! He wheels around. An odd piece of tech secured by a clear plastic strap around his head covers his right eye, magnifying the pupil hilariously. By Jove on high, you scared me half to death, sneaking around like that. I'm not sneaking, you're just deaf as a rock. What, what? He doesn't wait for an answer. You people are so light on your feet. He looks me up and down. But not for long, you're looking pudgier by the day. His voice takes on an annoying, conspiratorial tone. Found the key to the cupboards, did we? The valets say you're mad as a sack of cats, I say very quietly, and your head is jealous of your ears because they stole all his hair. What? What? I asked if you want me to pour your tea, I ask sweetly. My tea? His eyes widen. Yes, I was meaning to get that. Like it extra hot, you know, and pour one for yourself too. It's my favourite green tea from Xanta Dorsa. Martian, like us. You like tea, yes? I've had tea with you four times. Really? Of course you have. It was a test. He stares at me shrewdly. Though I'd wager a good pair of boots that he's thinking about what sort of jam he'll have on his mid-morning toast. Can't today, I say. Bathalia would lash me. Got extra duties. Nonsense. She runs you ragged. Spare a moment with me, he winks. She's got a soft spot for old Liago. I can get away with murder. If anything, it's the other way around. Liago dotes on the old pink, like a lovesick drill boy, sending her flowers he designs personally for her. That would have done the trick on you, Ava. Personal flowers. I let Sophocles off the leash to sniff around the floor, and I bring Liago his cup of tea, glancing at my reflection in the shining silver surface of one of his medical machines. My cheeks do look a bit plumper. Not a bad look, that. What's that? I ask, gesturing to the flower Liago's bent over. Its stem is pale white and slender. A deep violet stains its buds, which are shaped like human dancers. He looks lovingly down at the flower. This? Oh, my dear, this is my pride and joy. Thirteen years it's taken me to perfect the supple grace of her genetic code, 
and a lifetime of research, which is why my greenhouse back in Zephyria is littered with infant renditions. It's the echo of a woman I once knew. I tilt my head and draw close to the plant. It's lovely. It's poisonous, he says. He smiles when I don't recoil. I designed it to sense kinetic reverberations in the air. Reach out, touch it, gently. How poisonous? Enough to make me sick up? Or will I get a rash? A rash? Ha! Death, this one courts. Now I flinch. Don't you trust old Liago? No further than I could throw you. What? What? You first, Doc. With a lone finger, he touches the stem very carefully. Its pale, fleshy skin ripples indigo and a deep purple. The plant arcs into his hand like a cat being scratched. Sophocles watches from the floor, cocking his head. It invites gentleness, Liago says. But if you rush your hand upon it, he takes a length of unsliced cucumber from the remains of his breakfast and hits the plant. Small spines erupt from the feet of the dancer buds and the cucumber begins to shrivel and blacken, filling the room with a rotting stench. Sophocles backs away. Cellular death, he announces. I laugh in genuine delight. Wicked! What do you call it? Nixacalis, I sigh. Is that Latin? It means night lily. He's lost in thought. I'd ask him who the woman was if I didn't recognise the pain on his face. Maybe that's why I'm so fond of the old bat. He's the only one in the Telemannus estate who wears his pain in his eyes. Rest are all playing games. So you brought me another sample, he asks after a moment. Let's see. He opens the plastic container and takes a deep, satisfied whiff of the scat before slipping out of the greenhouse to a small silver machine in his lab. I follow behind. After a sample has been inserted, numbers and symbols flow from a small hollow projector in the machine into the air. What's that? I ask. Those? He's confused. Of course, curious cat. How would you know? Those are chemical notations. That is scatool. Hydrogen sulphide. Mercaptan. And that, that is carbon. That is in every living thing that is, was and will be. It's in me. It's in you. It's in the night lily. He watches me grasp the idea. You know what I like about you, Lyria? I glower, knowing it's with pity that he looks at me. The same pity that fills the eyes of the other servants and has driven me to isolation. They pity my manners, my poor haircut, and pity that my family was butchered. Here, surrounded by so many people, I've never felt more alone, more alien. Not really, I mutter. What do you mean, not really? 
he says aghast. What kind of a way is that to think about to yourself? I mean, no one's talked to me like you have, except Lord Cavix and some of the dockers. Everyone else talks slag behind my back, but they're too scared to lay it out plain eye to eye, because they've never been in a tumble. Liago clucks his tongue, thinking he's not like them, but in a way he is. I've seen how he watches me when I leave, when I enter, like I'm going to explode into tears at any moment. Those little uppity pups, he wags a finger at me over his tea. You're proper Martian. I've been too long here on this moon, ten years, only a little back and forth. Everyone's uppity, putting on airs. I bet that's what Lord Cavick sees in you, a breath of home. It's what I like about you as well. So don't you worry if the others don't like you right away. It's their own insecurity at the wretched creatures they've become. He puts a hand on my shoulder like I need fatherly advice. With all you've been through, the last thing you need to worry about is being popular. I recoil. He can shove his advice right up his drill exhaust. But before I can tell him that, Sophocles darts out from under the table, snarling horribly. I almost piss myself. He pounces up onto one of Liago's tables, knocking over beakers and test tubes, sending them shattering to the floor as he springs up toward an open window where a small packle bell sits. The bird titters and flies back out the window. Sophocles hits the wall and slides down. Out! Liago shouts, looking in horror at his broken supplies. Get him out of here and don't bring him back till I find out what mangles his wits. Later that afternoon, I leave Sophocles with Cavix and collect more treats and shampoo from the huge warehouse that supplies most of the citadel with food. I spare a few minutes to smoke burners with the Reds who work the forklifts and stocking rooms. All are Martian, since houses Telemannus and Augustus hire exclusively from home. Security reasons. Most of the older men and women were with them before the rising. Any chance they found out what's what with Sophocles? One of the Reds asks. Heard he's gone mental. You would too if they cloned you twenty-odd times says an old woman named Garla, exhaling burner smoke. Cloned, I ask. Aye, Garla says. No one told you. Only ever been one fox in House Telemannus. Sophocles is seven hundred years old. This just happens to be his twenty-first life. He's like me, fourteen generations in service to the fox. Her bandy legs dangle off the edge of a box of coffee stamped with Mars import markings. She pulls a chain from around her neck. Kangix, the father of our liege, gave this to my own da. She tilts it to me. The other reds roll their eyes. It's a monster cast in gold. 
One of those wild carved beasties, a griffin. Kangex put a price on the head of a wild griff that was terrorising the Zephyrian lands and me father, just a docker like me, went into the mountains and shot it dead with a long barrel scorcher. I reach to touch the griffin, but Garla pulls it back and stuffs it in her shirt. So he got the bounty, I ask. I'm at ease with these people with their bluntness and the dirt under their nails. Some of their accents are even spot on for Lagalos. Aye, bought out his contract and lost it all in a year. One of the other Reds laughs. Got all high and uppity, forgot he was a roster. Shut your bloody damn gob, Garla snaps. And don't use that word round me, here. Roster, she spits. That's a slave word. Her voice lowers and she shrugs at me. Da like to gamble, but Kangex hired him right back. No bad feelings. He was a good man, and Kavix is a good one too. The others nod along. Even if we just lug boxes and clean up shit, it's our job to protect him here in this bloody damn viper nest of a moon. All of us remember that. Chapter 24 Ephraim Kobach's Tech Emporium Volga, Syra, and I unload from the taxi onto the buzzing Hyperion Street. The sliver of morning sky seen through a gap in the overhead bridges and buildings of the city above is as bright and blue as the dresses girls wear to the summer races at the Cicada Maxima. This dilapidated deep level of Hyperion is naked under the high sun. Ancient buildings, mouldering signs, forgotten by the progress above. Graffiti of upside-down pyramids embedded with screaming mouths, score storefronts and alley walls. The Vox Populi seems to have an endless supply of paint. On a building side, HC, a newscast blares. A fatally serious copper reporter drones on about the hunt for the Reaper, after his murder of the Archwarden. Hacked the man down in cold blood, they say. Sounds about right for the bastard. I might like booze, but powers his cup of poison. The colours are shocked, appalled that such an affront to the Republic could occur by their great hero. But after seeing the fall of one empire, I know enough to see the cracks in the foundation of this one. I suck back a burner. With our preparations for the heist underway, we've been running 18 hours a day. The first several days were strategic, scouting the viability of the three posited locations for the heist that the syndicate provided. Once we pick one, I told Gorgo, our syndicate liaison, the only way the task could be done proper was with a military-grade gravwell. I half told it to the obsidian as a bluff, to test the limits of his reach, but the syndicate beast looked unfazed and kept smoking a burner over his espresso at the high-rise café where we met. 
Said he'd run it by the Duke. He did. Said he would take two weeks. Guess dancing with the devil means you get hell's resources. I pull my wool overcoat tight against the early autumn chill and notice Volga stirring up at a residential skyscraper with a sliver of green foliage on its roof. What would it be like to live up there? she asks. A garden atop the clouds? After this you'll find out, I say. Sira snorts. Don't tease the crow. Even after this dreadnought of a payday, all of us together couldn't buy that penthouse. How much do you think it costs? Volga asks. Sira shrugs. Hundred million, maybe more? Volga shakes her head at the number, stunned on a primal level. There's your rising for you, I say. We cross the street after an automated grocery truck trundles past and make our way across the fissured concrete to a small shop underneath a gaudy, glittering hollow sign proclaiming Kobachi's Tech Emporium won't take a bite out of your wallet. Another sign underneath flashes no rusters, no crows, no exceptions. Volga pauses outside the door. Sira goes right on in. I pause and consider Volga for a moment. She kept my secret from the others, but the last few days she's been sullen. Want to see inside? I ask. She looks at the sign and shakes her head. No, thank you. I sigh. What's wrong? You've been slumping along like a wounded puppy since we took this job. She relents and looks at me hesitantly. Are you not worried? Worried that this will hurt the rising? Life's a mountain, vulgar. Nasty, steep, covered in ice. Try to move it, you'll go nowhere. Try to help someone else, you'll fall right down with them. Focus on your own feet, and you just might make it up and over. I reach up to clasp her muscled shoulder. Now come on. It will be trouble. In response... I flash the black rose in my interior coat pocket and grin. Pale lady, today we're the trouble. The interior of the shop is a dim jungle of gadgets and second-hand gizmos, so thick they seem to grow into the humid air. Amidst floating indigo signs, obscure relics hang on hooks beside knock-off data pads and ocular implants. A good half of the store has been given over to biomodifications. Two teenage greens with heavy tattooing and libidy spike hair sift through plastic packages containing discounted neural links. Idiots. After the darkness of the society, this new generation is so desperate to plug in, to know everything instantaneously, that they put the whole hollow net in their heads without giving two shits about the consequences. The teenagers eye Volga nervously as she comes in. Sira's already snagged a cart and is getting to work on her datapad's shopping list. Volga stands behind me, eyes darting around like a puppy given leave over a butcher's shop. They settle on a hollow experiential station that several kids have gathered around. Go on, feast your eyes. 
I say. She gives me a careful smile, then, taking huge care not to let her broad shoulders knock over a rack of metabolic implants, lumbers over to watch. A blue kid is sitting in a chair, nodes attached to his head. A projection of what he's seeing with his closed eyes dances in the air above him. His friends watch excitedly, waiting their turn. They peer back as Volga's shadow eclipses them. One of Kabachi's employees, a gangly young green, monitors the experiential over a tray of nasal caffeine inhalers. The Reds flying a Kolowezi Char mission, the fantastical first where the dashing ex-pirate personally relieved House Sword of ten tons of gold bullion they were moving from their lunar banks to Venus in a caravan. They put a hell of a bounty on him after that and made him famous. The employee blanches when he sees Volga. No crows, he says, gesturing to the sign. She looks down at him, embarrassed. Can't you read, girl? Yes, I can read, Volga says in a small voice. She's with me, I say. He doesn't turn. Look, if she was a roster, she'd steal shit. If she was a brown, she'd clean shit. But she is an obsidian. They break shit. I don't make the rules, brother man. Kid, I say. I nudge the employee. He turns his bloodshot eyes to me. His pupils are huge on some designer drug. His armpits dark with sweat. Watch your fucking manners. He swallows seeing the omnivore pistol hanging on the holster inside my jacket. Where's Kobachi? In the back. Get him for me. Tell him it's Ephraim. The green just blinks at me. Before I grow a beard. Keep up, Pops. Already called him. He taps the scar on his right temple where his neural link went in. His eyes narrow rebelliously told him a tin man was waiting. A few minutes later, I spy Kobachi, peeking out the crack of the door leading to the back of his shop, where he does his repairs. He catches me spotting him, then ducks away before reappearing grandly, extending his arms in welcome. He's a little mechanised gecko of a man, in his deep sixties, his sleepy green eyes embedded with sensors and magnification lenses, bald-headed, in patched-up overalls with multi-screws and other tools sticking out of the belt on his tiny hips. Dull metal implants rise up out of the pale flesh covering his skull. Ephraim, my dearest friend, he says in a thin voice as he comes up to me in the cluttered aisle. He hasn't yet seen Volga past the stacks of music equipment. What joy to see you again! Such a fright you gave Kabachi! He leans closer. I thought you were the watchman, come back with cruelty on their minds. Such nasty, nasty customers, your kinsmen. All extortion and bullying and demanding the serious discounts. Sometimes they even demand. His voice falters. Refunds. Refunds, I say. The horror. I know, I know. But such times we live in. No protection for the small business owner. Only taxes and extortion. 
Such is to be expected from leaders who have never run a business. He waves to a floating sign that says no refunds. But is it too much to ask for a literate militarized police? At least they weren't too upset about the shit knockoff lenses you repackaged in Sun Industries wrapping. He gasped. Repackaged? Insidious accusation? And this from a dear friend? More like insidious business practices. Those lenses you fleeced me for scratch my cornea. You're as bad as Roduco. Roduco, how dare you? He sets his reedy hands on his hips and can't find them because of the bulk of his tool belt, so he settles for crossing his arms. Carl Argraduco is a two-bit Terran hustler without a kilobyte of consideration for his customer. Profit, profit, profit. They're all the same. Immigrants or silvers? Either. Both. No care for being an institution in the bazaar. It's all about what they can extract from their customers. I smile, genuinely amused at the small man. He's the most useless hustler I've ever met. But somehow, some way, he's remained on this corner for forty years, like a benevolent fungus resistant to any and all change. Hell, I keep coming back even though a quarter of the commercial goods I buy here are guaranteed to break after a week's use. But maybe that's just because the turnover rate on everything else in Hyperion is manic. Gotta respect a fungus like Kobachi, especially one that files off serial numbers and wipes digital signatures. Best ghost tech for 50 kilometers, even if the toys occasionally break. He smiles at me now, a toothy, obscenely disingenuous one that seems to grow every time he smells credits in my pocket. What can Kobachi do for you today? Virility implants, infrared ocular sensors, zero-gravity acid applicators, or will you be wanting something more? His smile grows till it reaches his ears. Expensive. Actually, custom is the game of the day. Crow, mind your hands, he shouts past me. I turn to see Volga frozen mid-reach toward an iridescent glass globe with floating electrical wires inside. She sheepishly steps away from the item. Kobachi wheels on me, eyelids pinched in anger. Kobachi thinks it is not just wardens who cannot read. He waves to another sign that has an X drawn over an ape-like monster that is supposed to be an obsidian. No crows, no exceptions. Volga likes toys, I say. Volga is going to look at toys, and you're going to mind your manners, Kobachi, for once. This is my shop, and you're happy to have us here, I say, producing the iron rose from my pocket, so that only he can see it. He blanches, as if I were holding death in my coat pocket. Aren't you? Very happy he says quietly, but the look on his face says otherwise. Glad we understand each other. I pocket the rose and clap him on the shoulder. Now, that custom order. He grunts and leads me to the back of the shop 
which is filled with a large workbench stacked with half-completed projects. So this is what it looks like back here, I say. He looks at me with an altogether different set of eyes now that he's seen the rows. He keeps glancing at my pocket. I was not aware it's a new arrangement, and not permanent. Silly, grey, it's always permanent, he says quietly. They never let you go. You don't want this, my friend. I dismiss his words with a shrug. I don't need him to know what I'm feeling. But I know he's right. After so many years of watching the syndicate's tentacles stretch from the lost city up to high Hyperion and out to Endymion and the other spheres, I know they never let go of something valuable. After the fall, they decided they wanted the whole ecosystem. That's what caused the territory wars between them and the old gangs. There's few of them left any more. Even old Golgotha fell hard. Is this all you have? I asked Kobachi. Gorgo will be disappointed. The name affects Kobachi. His knees begin to shake so badly they almost knock together. He touches a button underneath the workstation. The back wall retracts into the ceiling, revealing a secondary room stocked with a treasure trove of gleaming titanium, slick plastic and steel, weapons, drones, data slicers, and all manner of illegal military tech. He smiles with pride, despite the fear that the syndicate has put him in. So this is what pays his rent. I laugh. Kobachi, you old dog. I didn't know you had so many secrets. A better compliment there is none. He begins rattling off his catalogue of weapons. For close work, the R-34 Widowmaker with ion pellets, or if you're feeling like something discreet, a wrist-mounted eradicator, or I've got a gun, I say. A plasma pistol, he scoffs. Clumsy weapon, loud, indiscriminate, hardly an improvement over. I pull out my gun. An omnivore 540, he whispers. Semi-automatic railgun, Titan arms, powered by a rechargeable ion cell to drive the round along patented parallel reactive conductors. Adjustable internal diameter, multi-caliber friendly with, his voice goes hushed, an autonomous forge in the magazine. He smiles dreamily. Metal goes in. Death comes out. No need to get dramatic. Only twenty thousand were ever made. Where did you find one this side of the belt? A man's got to have his secrets. I will buy. How much? Not for sale. What I need is one of these. I walk to a rack of glistening titanium hunter-killer drones with silent engines and the neurotoxin deliverer concealed in their front faceplates. It's an assassin's machine. How small can you make it? Chapter 25 Lysander, Lord of the Dust our dropship sets down in a fortress carved into the heart of a lonely mountain. The grey stone juts up out of the frozen Ionian waste like a tombstone, while the hangar, cut into the top of the mountain just beneath gun bartisans, 
is vast and scored black from ages of passing ships. A coterie of masked legionnaires and a tall gold woman of mature years greets us. She's lean, with withered patience, a pinched mouth, and a methodical, droll disposition. Her hair is chopped short, a cut that looks self-administered. Vela, our Ra, sister of Romulus, and his favourite captain during his war against my grandmother. Her mech units made hell out on the smaller moons and gave me a fair amount of respect for guerrilla warfare as I watched from afar on Luna. My neck aches from the injection site of the anti-radiation drugs they pumped into me after my brief exposure. Nausea swirls. I watch Vela greet Serafina with a chilly touch of their foreheads. Serafina does not look like the girl I rescued. The grime and blood are gone, the girl replaced by a woman who walks with a storm in her veins. Her lips are full, her nose slightly hooked, her dull gold eyes sleepy and large with thick eyelashes. Her hair is buzzed and notched on the right side. She is not beautiful by the standards of Luna's courts. There's something too feral about her, something wild beneath the laconic movements and unsmiling face. Little hawk indeed. Cassius catches me watching Serafina. What did he do to you? he whispers, hunched in his manacles. Educated me, I grimace and play off the horror. I told you not to run your mouth. He eyes my wind-burnt face. God's man, you look like a lobster. I feel like one too, cooked and buttered. He looks at the gold, preparing to lead us into the fortress. Follow my lead. Every word here counts. I try to breathe out the sibling peevishness. It clings in me, but not enough to convince me that he's wrong. If my little flight out the ship taught me anything, it is that Cassius knows these people better than I do for all my studies. The halls of the fortress are bare rock, like the hangar, and seem to have been carved crudely by claw drills. Errant marks abound. Protection glyphs riddle the archways like wood eaten by termites. The place is abandoned except for Romulus's soldiers and the fortress's other two breeds of denizen, robed obsidians with bare feet and bald heads, with iron pyramids, emblazoned on their simple grey robes, and several white hierophants who wear strange perukes made of coarse blue-black hair. This is a remote installation, a fortress that's been left to moulder. Why are we here and not in Sungrave? Romulus is trying to hide something. Is it simply his daughter's indiscretion, or is it that recording Pandora asked about? What did she think Seraphina was bringing back? What could be so valuable to spark all this? There is no furniture in the war room of the fortress. Huge pillars support the uneven domed ceiling, and at the far side wait a coterie of shadowy forms. My heart beats faster as we draw closer to a great stone throne made for a man larger than a gold. I search the shadows, expecting the infamous warrior to be lounging upon it. But Romulus Alra, twenty-third lord of the dust, sovereign of the Rim Dominion, does not sit upon the throne. He sits at its foot cross-legged on a thin cushion, wearing only a grey scorer suit. His cheekbones are high, the lines of his jaw long and leading to surprisingly sensual lips, riven with two scars. His hair is dark gold, streaked with grey, and tied behind his head in a simple bun, through which pierces a stick of black wood. His right arm was lost in the Battle of Ilium and never replaced. A sliver of his bare chest, moon-pale, shows as the collar of his suit falls open from his quiet labour. He makes adjustments to a dissembled black haster in his lap. Longer than the razors of the interior, it stretches to two metres in its active, rigid form resembling a lance. Silver figures are etched into the metal. It is not their ancestral sword, Starfire. That was lost at the Reaper's triumph when his father's corpse was robbed. 
its owner now a great mystery. I find myself admiring his poise. There is an intensity to his quiet, like a lone cold stone sitting in a still pool of water, a humility to his bearing and expression that I did not expect, and in some way makes me feel as if we stumbled upon an ancient creature in his private garden, one who has seen the shaping of worlds, the sundering of empires. I feel calm, but very, very small as the myth earns flesh. Unlike me, he stood before the reaper but did not surrender his moon. He gave an arm and a sun to protect it. The obsidians push us to our knees. An ugly gold in his mid-twenties with a crisp, dark goatee and close-cropped hair emerges from the shadows beside Romulus, watching us with intelligent, mismatched eyes. He looks like a spider smuggled into human flesh, or knobbly joints and spindly appendages, lending him a covetous air. His forehead and jaw are overgrown, and the skin and colouring possess the anemic quality of a skinned rabbit, except on his neck, where there are several small brown splotches. The famous fiend Marius Alra. I knew him when he studied at the Politico Academy on Luna as a hostage. I remember him, a boy of thirteen, quiet, resentful of the parties, and as disdainful of his peers as they were of him. I ducked my head, worried he might recognise me. He does not. His eyes linger a moment, then pass on, absorbing us all as he ignores his sister and brother to exchange a few hushed words with Pandora. When Romulus has sealed his razor's casing again, he breathes a long, sonorous note of air from his nose. Marius touches his shoulder. Father, they've arrived. And they've brought Garger, Romulus says. When he finally looks up, I am struck by his gaze. The left eye is missing. In its place is a smooth globe of blue marble. Romulus eases himself to his feet and greets his son Diomedes. The younger man must bend at the waist so that their foreheads touch in their fashion. Son, he turns to Pandora. Pandora, you have done well, please. She nods stiffly and rises from her deep bow. Only my duty, my liege. He smiles at his sister, Vila. The ghost never changes. I would not know what to do if she did. Thank you, Pandora. Romulus sets his hand on her shoulder. I wish I could tell the Moon Council what you have done. The Rim's greatest servant deserves more than just my meagre thanks. She nods obediently. Before her master, gone is the hound, replaced by a pup. The adoration is shared by Diomedes and the rest. I feel it seeping into me. Only Cassius seems immune. His eyes rove for some means of escape, as I should be doing. At last Romulus comes before Seraphina, who kneels, her shaven head bowed, her eyes fixed on the ground. Her father lifts her chin and kisses her on the brow. Seraphina, my burning one, how I missed you. Father. She looks up at him with absolute love on her fierce face. I didn't know if I would see you again. Has anyone ever looked at me with such love? He presses his forehead against hers. After a moment, he pulls back and looks at us. You bring Gaja! They're friends, Seraphina says. I was set upon by Ascomani. I heard, Romulus says, sparing a look to Pandora. Let me see their hands. With the help of the guards, our hands are shown to him. He looks down at our palms. You're not scarred, so why do you both have the calluses only a life with a razor could give? Diomedes glowers down at us, as do the others. My name is Regulus Arjanus. We're water traders. I was once a warrior by necessity, Cassius admits. I never earned a scar. My family wasn't well placed enough to earn me admission into the Institute. But I served Augustus, as all our family have. When my home was taken by the Rising, I picked up a razor and fought, 
until Mars was lost, then I fled with my brother Castor. So you accepted exile over death, Romulus says. I see. He looks back to his daughter. Cassius glances at me to make sure I continue my silence. Why did you not tell me where you went, child? Romulus asks his daughter. Would you have let me go? No. When you disappeared, I thought you had died. When I discovered that you went to the interior, you wish I had? The words wound him. No. Vila and Marius seem to disagree. I would have moved the worlds to bring you home. But instead you sent your dog to hunt me down, Seraphina says. She killed Hjornir. Hjornir, father. You've known him since he was a child. You taught him how to hunt. All he ever wanted was to serve gold, and that bitch pulled out his teeth. He was a slave who disobeyed his master, Romulus says. Did you tell her to torture him? Her voice softens. Did you? I did, Marius says from behind his father. You, Seraphina hisses. Of course it was you. Do you expect a concession of regret, sister? He asks with soft malice. I dare say the fate of your pet should be on your conscience, jeopardising the Pax Ilium for a flight of fancy. What if the slave king and his horde had caught you? War would follow. You might try sounding less pleased about it, brother, Diomedes says. I note the tension between them, filing it away for later, and glance at Cassius. He's eyeing the razor Romulus left on his palate. Seraphina spits at her brother's feet, the greatest sign of disrespect on a world barren of natural water. I weep for a world where a worm like you could order a man like Hjornir to the dust. Marius does not rise to meet her anger. He just sighs. Did I raise a dog? Romulus asks her. Seraphina's face reddens. No, father. Then don't act like one. Your brother is my quaester, and his service has been faithful. I would have questioned Hjornir myself had I been there. Seraphina looks away from her father in disgust. He conspired with you to break a legal treaty. He was a traitor. Then so am I. Yes, you are, Marius says, strictly speaking. Boy. Romulus stares at his son till the man lowers his head in apology. He turns back to address his daughter. You broke the peace, a peace that has protected our moons for ten years. You went against your sovereign. You went against your own father. Why? What could you possibly seek? The truth, she says passionately. What truth? The truth of what happened to our docks. This gets Cassius' attention and mine. Diomedes blinks. What mystery is there? Fabii destroyed them for his sovereign. Unlike the utter destruction of Rhea, my grandmother cannot claim responsibility for the destruction of the Ganymede docks. She gave no such order. Rock, our Fabii's reasons for crippling the far worlds, died with him. Or did they? I lean forward in interest. So you've been listening to Mother's fantasies again, asks spindly Marius. And did you find anything? No, Seraphina says, hanging her head. Mother was wrong. I catch the slightest movement of Romulus's lips, so slight all but a pink and a boy raised by my grandmother might have missed it. Relief. Interesting. He feared she would bring something back. You wanted war so badly, he asks his daughter. I want justice, Seraphina says. But she has noticed something else that echoes my own thoughts. Why did you not bring me to Sungrave? Why here? All of Io believes you are on a mission for me, Romulus says. That is what I've claimed. If the Council discovered the truth, that you went into the gulf of your own accord, you would be executed for treason. I brought you here to protect you. Then where is Mother? Why is she not here? I think you know why, Romulus says. She used you, child. She would have had you spark her war, but as I told her, you cannot draw blood from the stone. 
There is no mystery, no conspiracy. Fabii destroyed our docks. Anything else is the fantasy of a warmonger. Romulus steps back from her. Now what am I to do with you? Let me return to Sungrave. Let me serve the rim. Romulus looks down at his daughter, but his eye is fixed on the past, heavy with the weight of age. He lost his firstborn daughter in the Reaper's triumph, his son Aeneas at the Battle of Ilium. How much more will he lose? He wanders. I know because I have seen that same look in Cassius's eyes, the same weight in his spirit. If only I could, he says to her. He nods to the robed obsidians. They seize Seraphina from behind. She struggles in vain against their huge hands. Father! Were I stronger, I'd bring you before the Moon Council, but I don't have the heart to watch you meet the dust. You risked a war. You broke the law. Now this place is your home. Living quarters have been installed for your comfort, but it has no communications equipment. It has no transports. The nearest outpost is 300 kilometers away. The Sohai I leave behind will be here for your safety, but they will have no krill, no scorer suits or radiation shielding. If you attempt to leave on foot, the dust will devour you in a kilometre. This is the fate you made yourself. I don't know these people, but I feel a keen ache seeing family trauma as Seraphina begs her father not to do this, for her brother to stop him. But they're right, it was not her place to risk war. Diomedes looks pained. It is this or death. I'm sorry, little hawk, it has to be. Face torn with betrayal, Seraphina is dragged cursing from the room. Cassius and I are left on our knees, a sick feeling spreading through me as I realise that we too must be forgotten. All those weeks in the cell just to face the same end. For me, for Pytha, for Cassius. What are the Garja? Diomedes asks his father. They could be the slave king's spies, Marius murmurs. Interrogate them. Romulus paces before Cassius and me. You saved my daughter's life. For that, I give the gift of my thanks, and my son has given you the gift of reprieve from torture. By the calluses on your hands, I know you are men of weight, and so I awarded you the dignity of my attention. We're your guests, I begin, prepared to launch to a long spiel about honour and dignity. But he speaks over me. Guests are invited. You cannot stay. You cannot leave, so the only right I can afford you is a swift end. He turns to Bandora. Behead them, put their bodies into their ship, and then cast it into Jupiter. Diomedes, I say, hoping I gauged him right. There's a small hesitation in the large man. They saved Seraphina's life, he says. And to keep her alive, there must be no witnesses to her return except those we trust, Romulus replies. I search for some clever gambit, straining for an outlandish conceit that might save us, something out of the Reaper's own book. Cassius is preparing to launch himself, not at Diomedes, but at Romulus himself, to try to take a hostage. I know the current of my friend's mind and how I might help him using my body as a shield against Diomedes. I'll likely die for it, but he'll have a chance. The tension builds first in his muscular neck, then his toes as he finds purchase on the stone, and just before Cassius is about to fling himself forward, the ground rumbles under our feet. Diomedes steps back from us. What was that? Diomedes asks. Volcanism? No, Romulus puts a hand to the ground. A missile strike. Vila pulls her data pad and snaps several questions into it. Romulus, we have incoming vessels. Our escorts are down. Impossible, Marius whispers. No one knows we are here. Evidently someone does, Romulus replies. How many ships? Vila blinks hard at her data pad. Romulus is forced to repeat himself. How many? Ten warhawks. Ten? Diomedes repeats, startled by the number. And more chimeras. How could they get past the orbital defences, Marius asks. They didn't come from orbit, Romulus murmurs. The gold's all tense at the implication. 
Vila takes control. Pandora, have your cryptair stall them in the hangar. Pandora salutes and heads toward the hallway, flanked by her men. Vila turns to the rest of the bodyguards. Protect your sovereign. But then Romulus begins to laugh. Father? Diomedes says, sparing a confused glance at Marius, as their father sits back down on his cushion and sets his razor on the ground. What are you doing? Waiting. For what? Isn't it obvious? Your mother. Chapter 26 Lysander, Wrath of the Mother Dido Aura, wife of Romulus Aura, and mother to his seven children, enters the war room as if she has the intention of tearing it down from the inside. She stalks at the head of an armoured column of cloaked, peerless, scarred, dressed for war. Orange goggles cover their eyes, dark Yugen wrap around their faces. Unlike Romulus and his sons, they carry heavy weapons and wear battle masks and skip boots. I see not a single obsidian or grey amongst them. This is a gold affair. Cassius and I crouch together, momentarily forgotten. We search for some passage from the room, but there's only one door. Hello, wife, Romulus says from his pallet. Husband, she says, voice muffled as she strides in front of her men toward Romulus's smaller coterie. She wears a tan cloak, underneath which is dust-coloured light keratin armour with radiation shielding and a hood. A krill covers her face, orange reflective goggles cover her eyes, and around her head is wrapped a cloth yugen like a Bedouin rover of old earth. A long black rifle is strapped to her back. She removes a new item every third step, till at last she pulls free the yugen, pulls back the hood, and a thick tangle of greying dark hair falls about her shoulders, framing a masculine, strident face with ridgelines for cheekbones. Grey-gold eyes flare out from behind thick rows of dark eyelashes and heavy, sleepy eyelids like those of her daughter. There is a duskiness about her and a warmth to skin raised in Minusian seas close to the bosom of the sun. You said you were going hunting, but you didn't say your quarry was Garja and errant daughters. Dido clucks her tongue. Perhaps it should be duplicitous wives, Romulus replies. He scans the soldiers behind her, eyes settling on a towering young gold who bears a striking resemblance to Romulus himself. The man has an iron fist the size of a grapefruit embedded in the sternum of his armour. Doesn't leave much of the man's temperament to the imagination. Bellerophon, you too? You've held us at bay long enough, uncle. The young man's voice is reptilian and amused. His eyebrows are thick as caterpillars atop a dramatic face with a hooked nose. Debts need repaying. Romulus looks back at his wife. Is this really what we have come to? It is where you have brought us. Now where is my daughter? In the upper reaches, Romulus sighs. You'll find her scarred from her travels. Dido nods and motions to three eager young lancers. They departed a run. She turns to her two sons. Hello, children. I see your father has employed you in his schemes. Marius, I wish I could say I'm surprised, but you've always been a general offence to me. If ever a child deserved to be forgotten in the desert. But Diomedes, you disappoint me. Skulking about in the night on ill errands is the duty of an assassin, one of your father's cryptea, not an Olympic knight. Mother, Diomedes says, nodding his head and dutifully receiving the kiss she puts on his brow, not knowing what to do. Why are you here? To voice my dissent. He eyes the men behind her. And the men? To ensure that dissent is heard, Bellerophon says. I wasn't talking to you, cousin, Diomedes snaps. He steps toward his mother. 
I know you and father have had your differences, but this, this is beyond the pale. It is unforgivable. So many things are unforgivable, she shrugs. I'm only visiting my husband. But why do I feel I've caught him with his hand on the water jug? Has he a paramour here? Come out, paramour, she frowns. No, none. She makes a show of looking round. None at all. Are you quite done, Romulus asks. Oh, Romulus, I've hardly just begun. She fans out her cloak and folds her legs to sit across from him. Cassius waits with me in the shadows of the pillar watching the door. There are too many golds to escape. Wait, I whisper to him. Let them sort it out. It pains him to sit and watch, but the new golds are our only hope. Did you fire upon my escort vessel outside, Romulus asks. She shrugs innocently. I remove obstacles from my path. And my cryptea? Sorted. You raise a hand against your sovereign, Marius hisses. Have you both finally lost your wits? No, Dido sneers. I have not lost my wits, you venomous, loathsome toad. You have lost yours, if you ever had any to begin with. Mother, Diomedes begins. She holds up a single finger. Mother is speaking. She looks back to her husband as her large son lowers his head. Did you think you could keep this a secret from me, from the council? Shutter my bright child away, and I would be none the wiser or worse about it. Must we do this in public? What have we to hide, she smiles. Do you know why she even went into the gulf? Because you sent her after your folly. This catches Dido off guard. You knew, but did not arrest me. You are my wife, he says, as if that answers everything. I watch for some sign of affection to take hold of her. Even on Luna, their love was something of fable. Romulus and Dido, the star-crossed lovers who burned a city for their love. But the years, it seems, have dimmed their star, and now Dido pulls back away from Romulus, a look of disgust spreading across her face. Then you are a coward. Perhaps. Are you more angry that I have faces you cannot see, or that I showed you mercy? Romulus asks, amused. Where is the man I married? she whispered. The man who could carry a world on his shoulders. I look for him, but all I find is this withered, cowed creature you've become. If you were an iron gold, you would have sent me to the dust. Romulus sighs unaffected. All this Venusian prattle and bluster. You're wading in the shallows, my dear. Shall we cross the Rubicon? He looks past her to address the fifty gold who followed her into the room. More pack the hall outside. They watch from behind filtered reflective goggles, their cloaks making them look like devilish bats gathered in the shadows. Children of the dust, you stand before your sovereign uninvited, wearing weapons and hiding your eyes like hoard filth. Remove them and kneel. They do not. I said kneel. Not a man moves. There we have it, Romulus says. Aliar yactar est. You are a sovereign, not a king, my love, Dido says. Her humour fled. You have forgotten that, as did the old Luna bitch. My blood stirs at the mention of my grandmother, even if her words are true enough. Forgotten that you are expected to serve the will of the moon lords from Io to Titan. As you cloister yourself here, men loyal to the rim seize control of Sungrave. They move against your praetors and their ships, your imperators and their barracks. By dawn, patriots will have control of Io, and I, as its protector, will serve until such time that a new sovereign can be elected. He smiles ruefully. You may seize Io, but you cannot hold her. The people will not forget your birthright. A garter till I made you my wife. Don't you start with me too. The blood of my ancestors watered this moon. Their hands shaped her. She is ours, and we are hers. You are not a Ra, 
No matter what your brood, I make you a Ra. He leans forward, baring his teeth. Ganymede, Callisto, Europa, they will all fall upon you, and then Norvo and the rest of them will come, and you will have spent your life and mine for nothing. Perhaps. Seraphina brought back nothing. Is that a fact? She stands to look down at him. A dozen of her men come forward. Romulus Aura, you are under arrest. I wait for her to say the word treason, as does Romulus, but it never comes. Bellerophon sees him. Flanked by his men, Bellerophon steps forward. Diomedes's haster snaps up from his waist and forms into a two-metre-long lance. He points the long black length at his cousin. Evius, Bellerophon, as much as I love you, take another step and you will be for the worms. Come now, cousin, don't be truculent, Bellerophon says. But Diomedes does not relent. Son, Dido says, your duty is to the compact. Your father has violated it. By protecting Seraphina, for other sins. You have evidence. Forthcoming. Insufficient. He does not move. She sighs. Disarm Diomedes. Kill anyone who isn't dragon blood. Dido's men hesitate, looking to Bellerophon for confidence. He nods them forward and they move as one toward Romulus and his defenders, their long razors held in two hands above their heads. Diomedes lifts his rigid razor to his lips. He closes his eyes and kisses the metal. Then his eyes open and the spirit behind them bears no kindness. When Diomedes moves, they begin to die. He skims diagonally across the front rank of his mother's men with such possession of his body that it seems he were another species entirely. One made of wind and wrath. He sidesteps two of their thrusts and removes the head of the one he called Avius. Exchanges two parries with a thick-set woman before pulling a second, shorter razor called a Kitari from his belt and skewering her stomach and ripping sideways through half her ribcage. Avius's body hits the stone and the woman stands there trying to stuff intestine and mesentery back into her abdomen before collapsing to her knees, bubbling screams from her mouth. Bellerophon and Diomedes crash together at the end of Diomedes' assault. I watch in awe and glance at Cassius. I thought he was the greatest gold swordsman left. By the look on his face, I know now that presumption was shared and mutually shattered the moment Diomedes moved. Sparks fly from the long razors of Diomedes and Bellerophon before they separate, both of far greater skill than the men around them. The other golds encircle Diomedes, about to close on him from his flanks, when his brother Marius lunges forward clumsily and sheathes his blade through the eye socket of a rangy peerless. He's slashed in the side of the head by Bellerophon. He reels back like a child struck by a father, losing his right ear and very nearly his right eye. Flesh flaps open. Bellerophon kills two of the bodyguards as Diomedes takes one more of his lot. Vila is about to throw herself into the fray as Dido's other men shoulder their rifles to gun the unarmoured Ra down. Hold! Dido shouts, stopping Bellerophon and Diomedes from cutting one another apart. Bellerophon draws back to her side, warily watching his cousin. No hand touches my father! Diomedes growls as more peerless encircle him. His eyes stay on Bellerophon, the most dangerous of the traitors. Marius and Vila tighten to make a hydra fighting formation, their spines pressed together as blood sheets down Marius's neck. Clearly no warrior, he looks ridiculous amongst the rangy killers like an overgrown glass figurine trying to dance with boulders. Despite their early friction, Diomedes angles himself to protect his younger brother. Diomedes points his gore-covered weapon at his mother. You would kill your own mother, Dido asks, stepping past her men toward him till the tip of his razor rests against her right breast. She leans into it. Blood wells through her tan armour. Me, who carried you in my womb? 
me who nursed you on my flesh, on my milk? She leans forward, centimeter by centimeter, letting the blade enter her body. Me who pushed you into this world? Enough, Romulus says coldly. You waste our blood. Let them take me. I have nothing to hide. Only when Romulus sets a hand on Diomedes' shoulder does his son lower the blade. At her brother's instruction, Vila lets her own weapon clatter to the ground. Once the rest of Romulus's men are unarmed, Dido's come forward warily and bind Romulus and his kin. It ends as fast as it began. If this were a coup of the corps, Romulus and the rest of us would have been mowed down from the door. Fast and clean, with blame placed where it does further good, that is how my grandmother dealt with her rivals. It is how she told me I should deal with mine. Seraphina enters with her mother's men as her father is escorted out. Her eyes follow him with deep sadness. Dido bends by the dead golds and tips a finger into each of their blood and spreads it on her peerless scar as a rim sign of respect. See that they are sent to the dust with all honours, she tells her lancer. Seraphina, Dido says. The women embrace. Tell me you found it. I did. You told me no one would be hurt. Diomedes, her mother shrugs as if that explains it. I stand up behind the pillar. Cassius joins me hesitantly. Shall we try this again, I ask. He winces. Let me guess. You want to talk. Go on. Use that silver tongue. With pleasure. We step out together from our hiding place. The women turn to us. Their men rush forward with their razors. Cassius and I are knocked again to our knees. We get the gory damn point, Cassius mutters when one grabs his hair. The infamous Garja, Dido says with a laugh. Hiding like mice. I look at Seraphina. We never had a proper chance at introductions. I am Castor Aljanus. This is my brother Regulus. Pleased to finally meet you. Now, considering I saved you from being a three-course obsidian feast, would it be terribly rude of me to ask for a bath? They saved my life, Seraphina says in amusement. Saved your life, Dido is annoyed. I did not send you because you are a woman who needs saving. But still, my good men, I do not believe my husband showed you proper hospitality. Men of the rim can be so blunt. Prithee, excuse him and let me amend the oversight. She has her men unclasp the muzzles and opens a foil packet of wafers from a pocket on her armour and breaks a wafer in half to give to us. She pushes the pieces into our mouths, but we're too dehydrated to swallow them down until her men push canteens to our cracked lips. You are now my guests, and guests need not kneel. Chapter 27 Darrow Deep Grave We fly low and fast over the bucking sea. A storm has risen over the Atlantic, heaving up mountainous waves of cresting foam. With a howl of joy over the comms, Severo leads his squadron through a wall of water. They look like sea lions, their scarab skin oily and glistening wet as they weave above and through the churn, red beacon lights blinking from the heels of their grav boots. I dive into a wave, Thraxa Autelemanus to my right, and rip back up toward the dark sky. It is liberating to be an outlaw once again. Octavia was right. Legitimacy and reign come with heavy burdens, but so too has my emancipation. With Wolfgar's death, I ignited a wildfire across the Republic that has shifted popular opinion against the war and my wife. Even incorruptible Caraval raves for my arrest. 
For the last month, we've been holed up in an abandoned military base on Greenland, preparing for this mission. From the two small cot in the cold barracks, I've watched Mustang give speeches in the Senate and fend off calls for impeachment. If it weren't for her summoning Wolfgar and the knights personally to her estate, she would be out of office. Somehow she clings on. In the pale light of the old hollow can, she looks so pure, so above the tarnish that Wolfgar's death has put on my soul. I can't help but feel I've sullied her, too, with the blood of a good man. I project an air of jocular confidence to my men. Many of them knew Wolfgar, but at night, when the winds sweep in off the sea to howl against the concrete bunker, I'm plagued by the demons the world has given me even more so by those I've made for myself. I can only fall asleep to the sound of her voice. They say republics are naturally eager to devour their heroes. I always thought my republic was the exception. Now, copper and red hollow news pundits, who once objected to the archwarden being an obsidian, have made Wolfgar a martyr. They rail for my capture declaring me a menace to peace, a warmonger, useful once, a liability now. It wounds me, but not as much as it wounds Severo. He blames himself for Wolfgar's death, and has shrunken inward, growing sullen in the absence of his family. Fearful, I imagine, that his daughters will believe those who say we are wrong. We may not ever be welcomed back. There's nothing worse for a soldier to imagine, that there will be no home to return to once the violence is over, no way to become the men we want to be. Instead, we're trapped in these violent guises, guises we only ever had the courage to don because of how much we love our home. Is this all we'll ever be? Is this what I've made several become forever? Republic intelligence searches for us. I know many of those men and women. They're no fools, but they search deep space for signs of my passage to Mars and Mercury, thinking I would retreat either to my homeworld or the legions, where the populace or military would rally around me. They still don't understand me. The only thing that lies in the tunnels of Mars or upon the desert planet is the possibility of civil war. Were I to consolidate power, I would make Mars or the legions choose a side. I would rend our fledgling republic in two. Exactly what I believe the Ash Lord intended. No. The key to Venus and to the end of this war isn't with my army. It lies beneath the waves of Earth. Our quarry, a lonely deep-sea trawler, glows on the horizon. At the mercy of the waves, it rides a giant swell up and then disappears behind the range of foaming water. For a moment, I think it's capsized. I bank up above the water, gaining altitude till I see it riding down the slope of a wave. It is one hundred meters from stem to stern, and as I descend upon it, I see its red paint has long since given way to rust 
and the gnaw of the sea. Huge yellow plastic crab containers at the back of the ship rock uneasily against their restraints. Men in yellow coats labor desperately to add extra lashings to tie the loose containers down. Another wave catches the ship, and it rocks hard to port, throwing one of the men into the sea and snapping a safety cable. Mine, Severo says. There's a chorus of challenges, and the game is afoot. His squadron surges forward, some diving under the water, others bowing upward to retrieve the sailor. Breaking free of the pack, Alexander Au Arcos skims tight to the surface of the water, then recklessly close to the hull before slicing down into the water just before Severo does. A moment later, Alexander resurfaces on the far side, spiralling in the air like a surfacing dolphin, dragging the sailor up by his severed safety cord. He lowers him roughly onto the deck and lands dramatically on a knee to a chorus of boos on the comm. Superior genetics for the win, he crows. Be not ashamed, geriatric friends. Shut your gob, Pixie, Severo mutters in defeat. Severo and the rest of his squadron emerge from the water around the boat and land with Alexander amongst the terrified crabbers. Most of the crabbers are red, with a scattering of obsidians and browns taken to the sea to make their living. I slow my speed and descend less dramatically to land nearer the pilot's cabin. The captain, a bearded brown with a continental-sized paunch, stares at me from the open hatch, his magnetic boots steadying him against the rocking of the ship. Plebeian, are you the captain of this vessel? I ask through my helmet in as haughty a Venusian accent as I can muster. He just stares at me, eyes fixed on the dull grey society pyramid on my armour's chest and on the demonic visages of the scarab masks. I am the world he thought gone forever, now returned. Kneel, I growl. The man falls to a knee. More howlers land, only the tallest of our number, to complete the illusion. Till there's twelve of us clad in the military accoutrement of a society commando squad. Our helmets, our masks for the day, remain on. I feared resistance in the crew, and am relieved to see only terror. They fall to their knees, eyes downcast in fear of their returned overlords. Only the two obsidians amongst the crew stare up at us in hatred from under their water-repellent hoods. We're just crabbers, the captain mumbles, trying to come to grips with his new reality. Nothing military on board. Silence, whelp. You will address me as Dominus. This ship, like you, is property of the Ash Lord. Prithee, captain, assemble your men in the cargo hold, and none of you will be liquidated. I eye the obsidians amongst his crew. Any attempts on the lives of my men will result in the decimation of your crew in its entirety. Defiance is death. Do you understand? Yes? Yes, what? Thraxa snarls. Yes, Dominus. I feel a dark pit open in my gut and motion my men to take command of the vessel. 
We commandeer the boat and deactivate their radio and satellite communications and consolidate the crabbers into the cargo hold with jugs of water. Pebble welds the door shut in case they feel a flush of patriotism coming on. Soon the rest of our number come with Colloway on his pelican. It floats above the water on the port side of the crabber and drops the submersible we took from our weapons cache on Luna's orbital docks. The submersible lands with a huge splash. Then the pelican sets down on the exposed deck of the crabber. Some of the low-collar howlers, Winkle, Minmin, and Rona, disembark carrying gear. The rest of the support staff, including my brother Kieran, are on Baffin Island, waiting with our escape vessel. Winkle, a nihilistic, sleepy-eyed green, is our lead cyber operations officer. His face is a pincushion of piercings and fashionable digital tattoos. He's particularly fond of monsters, and a blue dragon perches on his neck, its tongue slithering up his chin. His hair is acid green and defies gravity. Fuck, I'm already fucking seasick, he says, lugging his equipment out. I'll never be able to work on this fucking floating tetanus trap. Rough ride, Winkle. Char flies like a madman. He sniffs the air. Ugh, smells like an asshole after Venusian stew. Thraxa, doll, will you take me off this deck into the comms? Thraxa leads him away to the bridge. Never thought I'd miss the gory damn desert. I hop up into the ship and find Colloway finishing his landing protocols. You hit turbulence. Man-made, he says. Winkle talks too much. I laugh. How's the sky? Civilian traffic only. If the Republic knows we're here, they're waiting till you go down. That's comforting. I aim to please. He winks. The older man is so handsome it's easy to see why they make toy figurines in his likeness. I hop off the craft and watch my niece bring Thraxa battery packs for her power hammer. No more than a third Thraxa's weight, Rona looks a child, even amongst the smaller howlers. I had a mind to leave her behind at the den, but she won't be in harm's way today. Had to give her a taste of action before the more dangerous Venus leg of the mission. She's still bitter about the Iron Rain. Pebble says to me at the base of Colloway's ship. Well, pouting isn't going to make me put her in the sub. She just wants to prove herself. And she can, when her life and someone else's isn't at risk. She's as old as we were when we fell in our first rain. And look at all the dumb shit we did. I glance over at my friend. Her cherubic face looks younger than her thirty-three years. Bright, Optimistic eyes look out from cheeks as flushed as they were when she rode back with Mustang after besting House Apollo. Without malice, but possessing incredible fortitude, Pebble has faced more battles by now than even Ragnar ever saw. Seems just yesterday that Cassius was mocking her at the feast before the passage, along with Roke, Antonia, and Priam. We see who got the last laugh. You know, Pebs, if Severo's the father of the Howlers, you just might be the mother. Ha! I think that's the nicest thing anyone has said to me all year, boss. 
She wrinkles her nose as, across the deck, Severo and Clown cackle to each other as they compete to see who can urinate farther over the side of the boat. And what interesting progeny we have. When we've reached our coordinates at six in the morning, I follow the rest of my men out onto the deck. My muscles ache from the hard gravity of earth. It's been some time since I labored in a gravity gym. The air on deck is crisp and clean, the ocean calm as it laps against the rusty hull. Rona leans against the starboard railing with her arms folded, in a mood at being left with the support platoon on the crabber. I join her as the others make their preparations. Remember to keep an eye on the jamming array, I say. Last thing we need is for one of the crew to get free and send out a signal. Yes, sir. And make sure Winkle doesn't snort too many amphetamines. Yes, sir. Don't worry, my good lady, Alexander says, walking past with Milia. She's a gold from my army at the Institute, who joined the rising with the flood of minor Martian houses that declared themselves for Mustang after the Ash Lord nuked New Thebes. Alexander and Milia are an odd pair. Milia looks as if she's been recently resurrected, with pale skin, sunken cheeks, and the most nihilistic temperament I've ever met in a human. While Alexander wouldn't have been out of place as one of Antonia's pretty concubines— that fine jaw and the white-gold hair that flutters behind him like a comet tail. Even I find myself resenting the boy at times. On the outside, he's a picture of all I've ever hated. I'll make sure I bring you a trophy, so long as the decks are clean and scrubbed. I want them shiny enough to eat off of, Alexander says with a grin. Rona glowers at him. Can't believe you're taking that gilded shit she mutters. Her jealous eyes follow the howlers going over the side. My brother was heartbroken when she signed up for the Legion training at sixteen. She was assigned to a unit in the thick of fighting on Mercury, but by merit of her examinations, I had pretext to bring her onto my personal staff as a lancer. She was not pleased. Rona, you're just too short to pass as a grey. We're a society commando squad. If you're not six feet, you're staying on the ship. Same goes for everyone. Not Min Min. Min Min is staying in the sub. Besides, she's a veteran. You don't think I can handle myself, do you? She jerks her head at the howlers. The rest of them think that I'm only your lancer because you're my blood. They think I'm just dead weight. No one thinks that. Colloway literally said that to me. Colloway is an asshole. Listen, if you weren't my blood, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You'd say, yes, sir, or I'd get a new lancer. You can't have it both ways. Suck it up, do your job, and you'll get your chance. Her jaw works. Yes, sir. I find Severo watching me from the other side of the ship. What? You remind me of my father more every day. I don't know if that's a compliment. Me neither. He snorts. I want to say again, for the potentially posthumous record, that this is a shit idea. Do you have another way onto Luna? 
I ask. About a dozen that don't include releasing a psychopath. A dozen which you, me, Thraxa, and Pebble all picked apart. I thought you agreed to this. It's important the mutts think we're synced up, he says, but I still don't like it. Didn't you learn anything from the jackal? The jackal didn't have a bomb in his brain. I still say we should steal a gold ship, he says stubbornly. And how would we find one? I ask. Patrol the inner orbits, and pray any fully-rigged ships of war we see don't outgun us. If we do manage to board, fight our way through a battalion of space legionnaires, they'll frag their code bank as soon as we board and transmit a distress signal. That means we show up at Venus, which is guarded by the totality of society naval power, injured, depleted from corridor fighting, with nothing but our pricks in our hands. And after all that, we'd still need an army once we land there. Then we stop by Mercury and pick up some legions. Which of our friends will we have to kill then? I ask sharply, and nod to the water. This psychopath is our key, our army, and our escape plan. He lets me finish, unimpressed. I once saw a man try to ride a shark. Where the hell did you see that? Europa. When? Calling me a liar? He glares at me. Point is, we won't be able to control him. Then we kill him. That's my job. Sure, if you down more guards than me. If I win, I get the honor. We shake on it. Outside the door to the submersible, I pause, hesitating before ducking into the narrow hatchway. Once I was a creature of tunnels and caverns. I felt safe in close confines. The jackal twisted that nature in me. My body itself remembers the cold walls of his table and rebels against me every time I approach narrow spaces. I hide my fear from my men and slip through the hatch. Thirty minutes later, the submersible sinks into the sea. With the obsidians absent, we've had to combine my unit-heavy knight with Severo's ghosts, Alexander, Clown, Thraxa, Pebble, and Milia. The multi-rifles carry non-lethal spider-venom munitions for meat targets and electrical rounds for armor. Ink-black in their scarab skin, they're packed behind me in the passenger hold. It'll be a tight fit on the ride up with our cargo. Min-Min steers the submersible from her seat in the nose, with her hands in gel controls. Through the reinforced forward viewports, there's nothing but grey water. As we dive deeper, out of reach of the sun's rays, the hull creaks. The pressure builds, and the water blackens as the ocean squeezes us into its fist and drags us down and down. It takes us an hour to reach the abyssal plain at the bottom of the sea. A halo of lights around the front of the submersible illuminates the sand of the ocean floor. Out there in the darkness, three Poseidon-class Republic submarines patrol the porcupine abyssal plain that stretches from the west coast of the British Isles to the slopes of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge.
up on the deck of the crab trawler. Under protection by Rona and the others, Winkle is embedded deep in the cyberscape, linked into the Republic's Star Hall mainframe through a back door Theodora had her men prepare for him. The location of the Sentinel submarines blinks on a holographic display to the right of Min Min's navigation controls. The nearest one is two hundred kilometers southeast, patrolling in a circular arc around her charge. We creep along the bottom of the ocean, undetected. Designed for future war on Europa, this prototype, stolen by Severo last week, was built with sonar-resistant skin in a Republic lab on Earth. He disguised the theft by detonating explosives in the warehouse. I had Winkle issue a false press release from the Red Hand, taking credit for the sabotage. By the time the authorities clear the rubble and the Red Hand disavows, we'll already be on our way to Venus, and they'll think this was all the work of society commandos and their securitas agents. So I hope. Fifty kilometers from our destination, we enter into the drone defense grid and cut our lights. Up on the boat, Winkle accesses the drones via the mainframe and puts the data acquisition from the drones on loop. We pass through the defense grid. Clown shifts uncomfortably between Milia and Thraxa. If Winkle's wrong and they spot us. Shut up, Severo mutters. I'm just saying dying here at the bottom of the sea, caged by lung-crushing pressure, is not how I expected to go. How did you expect to go? Well, smothered under tits, actually. Thraxa, I can't reach my husband. Hit him for me, Pebble says. Clown holds up his hands. A joke, darling. All I'm saying is that this is essentially a metal coffin. Melia looks at him with sullen eyes, and Clown smiles awkwardly. The thought of this being a metal coffin makes my skin crawl again. But no torpedo comes, and we press through the grid. After this, Republic Cyber Forensics will discover Winkle's back door and will be severed from the Republic's information network. It's a hard price to pay, but worth it if it gets us onto Venus. I only hope Theodora isn't incriminated. With her position in Star Hall's Intelligence Bureau, she's too valuable to my wife to be spent on me. You hear that? Severo asks. I strain my ears, hearing nothing at first. Then something like a heartbeat. It vibrates softly through the hull of the ship. The heartbeat grows louder, thickening, multiplying, till it sounds like a wooden stick dragged down a ribcage. Then we see it through shadow and silt. Our quarry. Deep in the darkness of the ocean moves a huge humped behemoth a shadow that glitters with lights upon its dark crest. The lights bathe its metal carapace in pale blue. I've seen it on schematics before, but in the metal flesh it's a dreadful sight of an older age. The prison 
is like a giant primordial crab crawling along the abyssal plain. A dome, ribbed with intake vents and docking stations, and barbed with antennae, monopolizes its cephalothoric bulk. The dome sits upon a legion of barnacle-covered hydraulic metal legs that thump against the sand as they drag the station across the ocean floor. Several long umbilical tubes hang from the belly of the dome to suck refuse and litter into her recycling processors and incinerators. Inside her belly, she holds trash of a fouler sort. For four hundred years, Deep Grave Prison has crawled the abyssal plains of Earth's oceans, sucking up the sins of old Earth and punishing the sinners of the society. Murderers, rapists, terrorists, political prisoners. Now, war criminals. One of Mustang's many reforms in her first days of power was the abolition of the death penalty in the Republic. Informed by revolutions of old earth, she feared that it would be abused to mete out fraudulent justice to deposed or innocent golds, and mark the Republic with a stain of genocide that could never be washed out. But she couldn't pass it while the jackal was alive. It would be seen as nepotistic. The day she pulled Adrius's feet, she abolished capital punishment. All the war criminals, all the oppressors, slavers and murderers whom I would have hanged are here. And now I've come to free one of the worst. Min Min guides our submersible through the legs of Deep Grave, banking us up to the underside of the dome. The hull shudders violently as she engages the magnetic couplers, and the submersible's top hull locks into place creating a pressurized seal between our thermal drill and the prison's hull. The drill whirs above us as energy from the engines funnels into the drill's heat coils. When the drill has finished, it retracts back and shifts sideways into its cooling sheath. Several waits several minutes for the heat to dissipate before cranking open the top exit hatch of the submersible. On the other side of the hatch... The circular block of hull from the carved hole is suspended by a gravity well built into the submersible's penetration system. From the cockpit, Min Min reverses the gravity and the block floats up into the station. Hats on, I say, donning my scarabskin helmet. My vision goes dark and then the heads-up display flickers to life, brightening the confines of the submersible with its spectral amplifiers. The vitals and names of my friends appear above their heads. I step toward the hatch to go first, but Severo puts a hand on my chest. Trying to get a head start, I ask. Don't be so competitive, boyo. Milia and Clown go in front of me to take point, shouldering their multi-rifles. Thraxa follows, her pulse hammer magnetically coupled to a holster on her back, Min Min swings out of her pilot seat and tosses one of her drones into the air. Small as a thumb and matte black, the projectile races up the hole. She surveys through its cameras and gives us the thumbs up. 
Playtime. The two point howlers climb the ladder up to the hatch and then go weightless as the gravwell grips them and eases them up through the hole. Severo removes his hand from my chest. Your turn, princess. Using the schematics stored in Starhall's data vault, I chose the water filtration room as our point of entry. It's dark, full of noise, and entirely automated. Huge machines suck in seawater and desalinate it for the use of the guards and the prisoners. I call up the map on my HUD, and a blue waypoint flares to life, marking our target's cell. White footprints glow on the display, illustrating the path we chose. I shoulder my rifle and lead them up out of the desalination plant. We move in silence. The station mechanic's breathing is amplified by my helmet. He glows like a humanoid coal through a hulking photoelectrical oxygen splitter. I move forward, crouched. Then Severo runs past me and slides to round the corner first. There's the soft sound of a spider venom round hissing out the narrow barrel of his short-stock rifle, a body crumpling. Severo hog-ties the man with plastic restraints and comes back around, holding up one finger. One. Leaving the desalination level behind, we move through the lower bowels of the station like a silent nocturnal animal made of fourteen legs and arms. The station relies on its external defences, which would eviscerate even a heavy assault force of the Ash Legions, but on the inside, the security systems were made to keep men in, not out. We subdue several workers sipping coffee from thermoses as they set to their morning work. Severo and I racing each other to be the first to hit them with our spider rounds. He's better with firearms than I am, and it's already four to one in his favor as we pass through heavy reinforced security doors, so thick they appear to have been made by some ancient race. They're old and rusted, like the rest of the bones and shell of this dilapidated crab station. Only the sinew is new, Glowing biometric scanners, sun industry drones, crowd suppressant gas nodules in the ceilings, all neutralized by Winkle's access into the mainframe. We activate our ghost cloaks and slip into the open door of a guard station, outside the massive doors to the high-security Omega level. The guards gab to one another over tin breakfast bowls and drink Terran coffee spiced with chicory. To ensure loyalty to the Rising, most of the guards are from my planet, while the political officers are mostly Reds and wear the Vox Populi inverted pyramid badges sewn into their uniforms to declare their affiliation to the proletariat. The bulk of the guards are still Greys. Once I hated Greys. Ugly Dan and the rest of the tin pots that lorded over Lycos left a foul impression. But years on, I respect their discipline, their devotion to duty. And I pity them. For centuries they've been the front-line soldiers and battlefield pawns of golds in house warfare. And now they toil for our republic. I remind myself of the endgame. This 
will end the war. It must. What will they do then? Not more than three steps behind the breakfasting guards, I stand in the doorway, a rippling, translucent shadow in the ghost cloak. From inside the cloak, the guards are distorted, like a child's crayon rendering. For them, it's another tedious day of gloom in a six-month shift. They're counting down the hours till they can spend their mandatory thirty minutes in the UV beds to get their vitamin D, and smoke burners in the common room and watch porn experientials on their hollow visors. A thick, grey man with a bulldog neck sniffs the air. He's in a black uniform, a member of their tactical response squad. He should be a lurcher, but we couldn't spare specialists down here. They're needed on the front lines. He grunts. Does it smell like wet dog in here? Warden's pooch don't leave the roost no more. Someone ought to shoot that poor little shit out of mercy. It smells like it's inside out. One of the guards looks appraisingly at the contents of his bowl. Smells like rotten algae to me. The man in the back sniffs the air again. It's definitely dog. Sorry, that's just me, Severo says. The guard turns in his seat, tracking the sound to the door, where the casual eye might think us a fault in his vision, or a premonition of a migraine, but his fixed gaze sees us for what we are. His cracked lips part no wider than a finger's width when two spider rounds hit him in the neck. A barrage of puffs and a dozen rounds punch into the flesh of half a dozen men as they try to stand from their chairs. They tremble on the ground as the paralytic agent spreads through their bodies. We deactivate our ghost cloaks and take over the section station, piling the men in a corner. They'll have a devil's headache this time tomorrow and might lose their sight for a few days, but they'll survive. Six... Three, Severo says to me. Pebble and Alexander set up to receive guests if an alarm is raised. The rest of us press into the Omega level. The lion's share of the prison's general population is housed in levels high above this one. They have communal cells and labor in crews every day from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., hand-sorting the refuse sucked in by the umbilical tubes for recycling or incineration. There's sanity in an honest day's work. I would know. But here on the Omega level, those who are sentenced by the Republic courts for crimes against humanity languish in solitary confinement, never to see another face, never to hear another voice or feel anything but the touch of the cold metal. They are given water and an algae protein gel through a tube in the wall, and allowed to exercise in the common area for fifteen minutes every other day, but when they exercise, they do so alone. No prisoners with which to share their burdens, just an echoing mausoleum of cold, faceless cell doors without window or crack or key. 
I've heard that the guards will sometimes play a hollow for them in the center of the floor. But if they do, it is triumphant moments of the Republic. The Republic might be above murdering its prisoners, but its morality is not without teeth. It wasn't what Mustang had in mind when she abolished the death penalty, but Publius Sue Caraval has blocked every resolution for prison reform for the past six years. Some say it's because he's beholden to campaign contributors. My suspicion is that he lost more to gold than he lets on. For my part, I agree with him. These men and women chose to put themselves above their fellow men— so let them now be separate, forever. Most of my enemies lie on the ground. The rest I put here. Bone riders fill some of these cells. The jackals own. I only wish we'd been able to throw Lilith in this pit, instead of giving her the easy way out by shooting down her destroyer till it crashed into Luna's surface. In coming down here to free one of them, I wonder if I'm becoming the traitor that the newsreels say I am. We pause outside a cell door. Is everyone going to behave themselves? Are you, boss man? Clown asks. You almost cut off his head last time. Almost, I say. The sight of the gold in the dark hall on that lunar night his bare face covered in howler blood has not left me. Sometimes I wake from sleep thinking he's outside my door, waiting to come in, waiting to kill my family. Severo, are you going to be civil? He shrugs. Good enough. I disengage the lock. The door whines and the blue light encircling the handle goes dark. Stealing myself, I crank the handle and haul back the door, stepping out of the way of my men with their raised rifles. We're hit with the smell of algae and feces. The cell is a dank concrete box, empty but for a toilet, a plastic sleeping pallet, and a shirtless, gaunt man. He faces away from us, asleep, his spine like a fossil in dust through sun-starved skin. Greasy white hair spills off the side of the pallet. He turns to look at us, with black eyes sunk deep in a tattooed face. I take an involuntary step back, seeing my time with the jackal in the man's body. What the hell? That's an obsidian, Severo says. Winkle, the package is missing. I say. Are you certain he is in cell O2983? Positive. I'm looking at the roster now. He's stated as present in his cell. No medical intake info or labor duty. This is bad, 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 bad. Yes, thank you. Then who the hell is this? Severo asks. The prisoner stands very slowly. He's no giant like Sefi. He stands barely six and a half feet and as thin as Alexander. He's past fifty with a deeply receding hairline, a filthy beard, and more tattoo ink than I've ever seen on a man. 
he watches us with intelligent, curious eyes, not holding himself like a warrior, but as if he were a sinister mathematician studying string theory on a hollow board. A set of tattoo spirit eyes stare at me when he blinks. The only men who wear that ink are shaman of the eyes, and most of them are women. Severo steps toward the obsidian, gun raised. Who the hell are you? Answer, shithead! The obsidian smiles with his eyes, looks at the gun, then to Severo's mask, back to the gun, then gestures to his mouth with a single finger. He opens it wide. Severo shines a light inside. Gross! He steps back. Someone cut off his tongue. And that's not all they took. What I first took for a receding hairline, I see now is a half-completed scalping. It makes the front of his head look indented, like the bottom of an egg. His hands, Thraxa says. Let's see your hands, I say. He cooperates without protest. Embedded in the back of the knotted hands are the crescents of the obsidian cast. Black not the bleached white of a prisoner. You're not a prisoner. He finds my eyes, even through my opaque helmet, wags one finger, and then sketches a shield over his heart. Guard, he points a finger at me. Yes. You get lost, Severo asks. The obsidian thinks then makes a fist and pounds it into the small of his back like he's being stabbed. I watch him with greater interest. Why was a guard stabbed in the back? The prisoner, 1126, did he do this to you? Thraxa asks. The man wags a finger, no. Do you know where he is? No. Winkle, can you track 1126's implant or collar? I ask, turning back to my task. No, it's not on the system. What do you mean it's not on the system? He can't have left the damn station. He's a prisoner of the state. He's on code black. No transfer. No one in history has escaped from Deepgrave. Your dad did, Clown says to Severo. That wasn't exactly an escape. Severo mutters under his breath. I swear to the veil, if that slimy shit has been out in the world all this time, do we really need him in particular? Clown asks. We got our pick of sociopaths. Boss, Thraxa says. We'll have to take a look around, I say. We need to find him. There's two hundred guards here, Severo says. Can't sneak around not knowing where we're going. If the alarm goes... Shit will get mortal, fast. Boss, Thraxa says. I know, it's not ideal, I say. Not ideal, Clown interrupts. The alarm goes, the subs will know we're here, and we'll never get back to the trawler. Underneath my scarab skin, my son's key dangles from its chain, cool and heavy. I didn't leave him to tuck tail and run at the first sign of friction. Do you want to leave empty-handed? I ask, my tone even 
but the implication lacerating. They shake their heads. Boss! Thraxus shoves me hard from the side, almost knocking me down. What? She jerks her head to the obsidian. I think he knows how to find 1126. Chapter 28 Darrow Prisoner 1126 We leave the Omega detention block behind and follow the obsidian guard, now wearing an ill-fitting uniform he pulled off one of the subdued greys. The pants come only to his lower calf, leaving exposed a strip of runic blue tattoos and pale skin. The jacket is a better fit. I'm wary of the man, despite his claim of being a guard. He was in that cell for a reason. Still, he's our best option here. Tight behind him, our heavily armed pack ascends up exposed switch-backed stairwells with precipitous drops to either side. Beyond the stairwell is a dingy coliseum where the central processing facility sprawls. Prisoners toil at conveyor belts, sorting the trash from the seafloor. Guards patrol through their ranks with stun batons. High above this, hanging in clusters from the ceiling like the rusted eggs of some giant metallic spider race, are the cell blocks. On a newer level, we glide over metal floors, buffed smooth as glass. We pass myopic cameras and closed doors, and the echoing coughing of prison guards abed in their barracks. The sound of a morning news program from old Tokyo drifts through the halls. I miss a step when I hear my wife's voice. Just the hollows. We snuff out somnolent guards without breaking pace. The reds and greys don't stand much of a chance, but the rare obsidian guard is taken down with extreme caution. Some can fight for a minute with three rounds of spider venom in their veins. In passing, I muse how it would be easier to kill them, but then shudder afterward at my own reptilian coldness. These are my people. The guard certainly has no qualms as we lay waste to his colleagues. What did he do to end up tongueless and imprisoned? Something either very good or very bad. True to his word, the obsidian leads us to the warden's quarters. The door is locked from the inside, beyond Winkle's control. Several kneels to melt through the lock with a plasma charge. As he lays out the components to his charge, the obsidian sighs impatiently, steps past him, knocks on the door, then steps back. Inside, a dog begins to bark. Shut up! Someone on the other side of the door screams in vain at the dog. There's a thump and a yelp. The barking stops. Behind me, Thraxa grunts. I look at the obsidian, and he motions for me to wait. Metal unlatches, and the door pivots backward into the room, leaving me standing sternum to nose with a cadaverous, gecko-eyed copper with a long, slack mouth, a cup of coffee in one hand, and the bunched folds of his black-and-gold silk robe clutched closed at his waist with the other. 
Severo grumbles and disarms the plasma charge. Staring at the asp-black sternum of my scarab skin, the warden gibbers something unintelligible. His mug shatters on the metal floor and spatters coffee over his bare calves and the festive brocade of the Venusian rug that he now backs onto. I jab two rigid fingers into his right brachial plexus and then his femoral nerve to stop him from running. He stumbles back from the nerve strikes, and I bend to fit under the door and follow him into the room. A dog, some kind of terrier, barks and growls at our approach, backing away and leaving a trail of urine across the floor. Following my team in, the obsidian walks toward the dog, crouches down, and holds out his hand. The dog approaches with its tail between its legs. When the man makes a whistling sound, the dog spurts timidly forward to lick his bony hand. Warden Videli Suyankra, I presume. My helmet speakers distort my voice to a gravelly rumble. The door clicks shut behind my men. Yes, he says, shaking from the pain of my light assault. But he's not a stupid man. He looks up with quick, adaptable eyes at our combat gear, at the obsidian, where his eyes linger in fear and confusion before returning to me. Whom do I have the pleasure of addressing? We're wearing masks for a reason, dumbass, Severo says. He walks behind the warden and pulls out a chair for the man. Sit, hands where we can see them, my goodman. The warden fumbles to find the chair and sits down. Severo takes a seat behind him on the edge of the table and puts a hand on his shoulder. I sit across from the warden and pour him a glass of water from a decanter as Thraxa spins her hammer at the door and Alexander waltzes about the room, thumbing the warden's possessions with a practiced eye. The warden looks to his bedside several times, the obsidian fetches the warden's data pad and gives it to Severo. Your men aren't coming, plebe, I say, and lucky they are for that. What do you want? Surely you haven't forgotten how to speak to your masters? Severo slaps him hard on the ear. You will address us as Dominus, you quivering whelp. The warden looks over at the obsidian, then back to me, I'm not sure who he was more afraid of. I can help you, Dominus. It would be my honor. Just tell me how. You have a man in your charge. Prisoner 1126. He is not in his cell, even though his collar places him there. If the prisoner had been there, Cuprum, we would be gone from this place and you would still be lord of your little fiefdom. But he is gone, and so I am here wondering whether to make your crown out of your toes or your fingers. I lean forward. Where is prisoner 1126? He pales at the mention of his charge. He's dead. He died a year ago. Took his own life by starvation. Severo and I look at the obsidian. He shakes his head. You trust him, the warden says. Him? 
Seems you're the one who took his tongue, I say. The obsidian points at me. So, yes. Did he see something you didn't want him to see? Say something you didn't want him to say? No, he... Liar, liar, prick on fire, Severo says into his ear, and lowers his multi-rifle to rest on the warden's groin. Prisoner 1126 is dead! My good man, if he had died, then you would have simply entered it into your logs, and his cell would be filled with another deviant. So, pray tell, why was his beacon there? I pat his leg. I'll answer for you. It was there in case you were visited by Republic inspectors. It was there to cover up your graft. No, the warden says sharply. I would never be able to afford a carpet like this on a warden's salary, Alexander asks. He toes the carpet. Venusian silk, dyed with crustacean extract, really ties the room together. Perilously fine taste, my goodman. What's the price on something like that? Severo asks. At least forty thousand credits, Alexander answers. Severo coughs. No shit! He takes the pot of coffee on the warden's table and dumps the coffee inside on the carpet. If the man is angered, he hides it well. Oops! Warden, warden! Make it stop, Alexander moans. A little cuprum weasel like you might fancy yourself a special sort of conniving, I say. An entrepreneur harvesting an inefficiency in the system. What a waste it must seem to have Oriot sons and daughters locked in little metal coffins with all their hidden bank accounts and vaults languishing out there in the world's. What a waste that someone should not profit. The warden looks up at me tactically, searching for some angle. He will see a giant in black armor and stare at a reflection of himself in the pitiless insectoid eyes of the helmet. Submission is his only option, and it wounds his pride. It's no backwater bumbler who finds himself warden of Deepgrave. This is a high post. Prisoner 1126 paid you to leave solitary, didn't he? Yes, the warden says smoothly. He made improved arrangements for his incarceration. The Omega Block is a dungeon, Thraxa says. Taxing on the psyche, but he is still here. Your testicles thank you for that, Severo says, nudging his gun deeper into the man's groin. The warden flinches. Yahara, Severo coos, Venusian argo for poor thing. Does that hurt? He adds. The theatre is for the warden so there is no doubt in his mind that we are from Venus, that it was society operatives who broke out one of Deepgrave's most hated charges. At the very least, I hope it throws a wrench into the peace talks. Mustang may puzzle it out, but if it gets back to the Ashlord, he can't know 
I was here. I wonder, what if we were to report your graft to the noble republic after our departure? I ask the warden. No matter how clever your copper accounting, your actions will be discovered. Your trial will be a public farce to set an example of how their republic is intolerant of corruption. Severo snorts at that. To proclaim the circularity of justice, you will be sent here to serve your sentence. How long do you think you will last on the other side of the bars, Penny Fingers? Severo asks. How will you sleep? How will you shower? How will you eat, knowing the monsters you once lorded over are now watching, waiting? I lean forward, allowing his imagination to work its worst magic. His composure falters for a moment, and I see my chance. When they come for you in your cell, I want you to think back on this day when I sat here before you, and I want you to wonder if there was not something you could do to erase it all. I lean forward. Because, Warden, I'm here to tell you that there is something you can do. His eyes light up. Name it, Dominus. Take us to prisoner 1126, and then, when we escape, carry on with your life. Do not report the escape or our presence here to the Republic. Do this, and it will be our little secret. What do you say? I'd say yes if I were you, Goodman, Alexander says leaning back in a divan. A life as an obsidian's pet is no life at all. As if on cue, the old obsidian bends to pet the dog again. I'm beginning to like the skinny man. I'll take you to the prisoner, the warden says uneasily. The dog follows us keeping its wary distance, but never letting the obsidian out of its sight, as the warden leads us to a newer part of the facility. From a guard station he extends the ramp over the divide to a suspended cell block. We cross, and as the great doors to the block open, music trickles out. The interior of the cell block is a globe, with a central communal area and the cells in three levels accessed by walkways and a stairwell. Severo pushes past the warden. What the blazing shit! It's not a prison. It's an improvised paradise. Thick layers of expensive carpets cover the steel floors. The walls are painted eggshell white. Golden roses and ivy grow along the walkways and crawl along the guardrails, fed by UV lights that hang from the ceilings. The cell doors are open. Three cells are filled floor to ceiling with books and data cubes, another with bottles of wine, another with camisoles and robes, another with a refrigerator and a portable generator and a stove, another with a garden of tomatoes, garlic and carrots, another with hulking iron dumbbells and tension bands. The communal floor is one great lounge. Hookers stand like emerald scarecrows amidst a sea of pillows and blankets.
two collared pink prisoners, a slender woman and a muscular man, sprawl there naked, bruises mottling their bodies. Empty bottles and other casualties of debauchery litter low tables, and amongst all this, a powerful man sits in a chair with his back to us, playing a violin with feverish hummingbird strokes, bathed in the light of a UV lamp, naked but for the dull metal prisoner collar. His skin is tawny, darker than that of his younger brother. His golden hair is long and coiled and splays down his broad back. Lost in reverie, he does not hear us enter. Apollonius au Valiairath, I say. The man stops playing and turns around. If he's surprised to see us, he doesn't show it. It's as if we materialized out of the fever of his song. For me, there is pain in seeing him sitting there twisted around, the equine nose, the sensual lips, the dark eyelashes and hot coal eyes. He is a twisted simulacrum of his younger brother, Tactus, a man I cared for, despite his darkness, because I saw in him a glimmer of something good. But this is not my friend, no matter what blood they share. If there ever was light in this man, it was long ago snuffed by the hungry shadow inside him. What's this? he says, eyes searching our masked faces. His amused baritone, smooth and quick as thick wild honey down a hot knife. A deputation of devils come to my Acropolis with calamity on their heels. Have you come to kill me, fiends? He twirls the violin to hold it by its neck like a weapon, his voice becoming pugilistic. I venture you will not find it pleasant. He's bloody mad, Severo says over our comms. The man was always touched a lover of violence and vice. But there is a mania behind his eyes, more precarious than was there when I last saw him, standing bruised and proud before a republic court. Apollonius, I say again, we've come to take you home. The war criminal's eyes narrow. At the behest of whom? Your brother. Tharsus? His eyes widen as he slides out of the chair like a grand saltwater crocodile and faces us without any shame for his nakedness. Long white scars from razors cover the lean muscles of his torso. The two nearest his heart are from me when we met in the hallway outside my bedroom in the citadel. Tharsus is alive. He's waiting for you on his flagship, my lord. I lie. We've come to ferry you to your fleet. Apollonius looks down at the ground, and a shudder of boyish joy goes through him. He looks up with a predatory smile. Magnificent. Soon we will join him. But first, debts.
He glides toward the warden. Thraxa takes a protective step up to my side. Warden, 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 recall for me, for my memory has a tide unto itself. Did I not promise you something upon the genesis of my incarceration here? I've done what you asked, the warden says to me. Honor your end of the bargain. I speak to you, warden, not my brother's minions. I do not recall what you said, prisoner. I receive many threats. Lies. A punctilious race such as yourself does not forget. You squirrel facts away like nuts in winter. Never too many nuts for a meticulous little creature. I've helped you, Dominus. Ah, now you say Dominus. If it weren't for me, you'd still be in the hole sucking algae from a pipe. Sucking from a pipe. He smiles. A vibrant thought, that. He strokes the man's face. Sweat beads along the warden's receding hairline. He's terrified of Apollonius. You should choose your words with more care, frail creature. He takes the man's sweat from his brow and tastes it. As I suspected... You taste like coins. He's going to kill him, Thraxa says over my calm, her worry bleeding through. Serves the dog-kicker right, several mutters. The obsidian leans against the doorframe, his head motionless, but his eyes darting back and forth between us as if he knows we are speaking on private comms. Lord, we need him alive, I say. Why? Apollonius asks neutrally. Because he will keep this quiet, you psychopathic shit. He has a biometric monitor on his heart. He dies, the whole place locks down. I lie. We're on a timetable before their drone systems reactivate. Yala, we need to go. Apollonius steps close to me and stares into my mask. I wave Thraxa back. What's your name? he asks. Artulius Auvinda. I do not know an Artulius, he says. Take off your mask. Can I shoot him? Several asks. Then we'll have to carry him with this Terran grav, Alexander says. I'll carry the shit heap, Thraxa replies. He's not supposed to be this big, Alexander mutters. Bastard was supposed to be eating algae for the last six years. He looks like he's been eating whole cows. Must have put on fifty kilograms of muscle. I'm going to shoot him, Reap, Severo says. He's on to us, and he's a pervert. Don't shoot him, I say. I close the remaining distance so that Apollonius and I are eyed to visor. He's slightly shorter than I am. Six years is a long time for new men to make their mark, I growl out of my mask. I've been paid for your breathing body, and I will deliver it to your brother. Hardly matters to me if you're unconscious and drooling, or traipsing about like a gory damn pixie. So shut up, get dressed, or I break your nose and drag you in like the Martian dog you are. 
he stares at me for three pumps of the heart, and then breaks the spell with a pleasant laugh. Venusian? he asks. Venusian, I confirm. I hate Venusians. Are you Carthii? Saud. Beside me, Thrax's hand has settled on her hammer. Then you live the day, he smiles. How I've missed my people. Even you clam-eaters. Gold has an unyielding manner, no? He sniffs the air, throwing the obsidian a disdainful look, and turns to rummage through the pillows till he pulls out a white kimono brocaded in purple and gold. This he ties around the waist with a silk sash and bends to kiss his sleeping pinks farewell. They do not stir, likely under the effects of some narcotic. He brings his violin with him and returns to us barefoot. Shall we? We prepare to leave the warden behind in the cell block, having no more use for him. Alexander and Severo open the cell block door and go through. Thraxa and I follow with Apollonius. Then he lunges backward away from us. By the time I turn around, he's already standing with the warden, his huge hands wrapped around the smaller man's head, tilting it back and forth, exploring its contours with his fingers. The warden is frozen in his grasp. Apollonius looks over at me with the bored insolence of a dog taking a shit on a carpet. The warden screams as Apollonius presses his hands against his eyeballs. Apollonius's muscles ripple, his veins engorge. Before I can rush to separate the two, there's a meaty squelch. Blood sprays Apollonius's face as the warden's eyes puncture and explode in their sockets. Alexander gags. Apollonius lets the warden fall to the ground and looks blithely up at me as the man screams and paws at his face. The gold brings a bloodied thumb to his tongue. Just like coins. I stare at the squirming warden, appalled. Severo, shoot him. A fusillade of darts hiss past my shoulder. Two hit Apollonius in the face. He laughs and pulls them free from under his cheek. Severo and Alexander shoot again, and Apollonius swats the darts with his hand, where they stick in the meat. Silent, he charges Severo like a joyous, blood-soaked bison. I lower my shoulder and tackle him from the side, hitting him just under the ribs and lifting him off the ground— arms gripped behind his knees. We crash to the carpets. He's a better wrestler than I am, and I'm caught off guard by his immense strength. He rolls around me like an anaconda till I'm on all fours, and the back of my head is against his sternum as he stands, pushing from the ground with his legs, cranking on my neck, straining my spinal cord as his thumb knuckles try to dig up into my Adam's apple. I choke, unable to breathe, but claw up at his face and stick my thumb into his nostril and try to bury it up his nasal cavity. His grip doesn't slacken. I'm going to pass out. Then the obsidian guard is there. He hits Apollonius in the side of the head with a hookah, and I manage to wrench myself free. My scarabskin mask comes off in the gold's vice hold, and he crumbles to the carpet as I stand, winded 
and red-faced over him. Looking up at my naked face, Apollonius begins to laugh again, slow, drunken sounds from his diaphragm as the venom finally overwhelms his body. He spreads his arms wide on the ground, covered in dark blood like some evil primordial squid. Severo runs up and punts him in the temple, more for good measure, and the man's eyes roll behind his heavy eyelids as he drifts into blackness. I stand panting over Apollonius. Thank you, I say to the obsidian. His eyes search my face, knowing now who I am. He shrugs in amusement and looks back at the warden. For a moment I think he's going to take his revenge and bash the copper skull in. Instead, he tosses the bent hookah to the ground. Bloody hell, Severus says. The warden! Thraxa's standing over the man. Unconscious. Lucky for him. Corrupt, now blind, I grunt. Something tells me he's got the money for a new pair. Goldilocks, you prime? Severo asks. Alexander hunches at the door. He wavers, then lurches to undo his mask, managing to get it off before he throws up inside it. Severo jumps away. Idiot! Sorry, Alexander says face pale. He avoids looking at the mangled warden and puts his mask back on. The Minotaur, felled by a hookah. Severo kicks the hookah and pats the obsidian on the shoulder. Wicked swing. Looks like our deal with the warden's off. Why? Blind or not, he wakes up and reports this to the Republic. He spends the rest of his life in a cell. Something tells me he's gonna bite the bullet. Hell of a gamble, Severo says. His men might go around him. You think they're not on the take? When in doubt, depend on self-interest. Take Alexander and double back to the Omega level to help Pebble and Clown transport the other prisoners. Thraxa and I will take this piece of shit to the sub. Go. He pauses, looking darkly down at Apollonius. This is shit, he mutters so only I can hear. Tell me something I don't know. I won, six three. Time comes, I kill the prick. He jerks his head at the obsidian. What do we do with... Hey, what's your name? The obsidian stares at him in annoyance and points to his mouth. Never mind, tongueless it is. Severo looks back at me. He's seen your face. The obsidian waits patiently as I look him up and down. Do you want a ride? Chapter 29 Lyria Rust and Shadow On my leave day, I wake up early and eat cold cereal in the commissary before anyone but the maids are awake. I dodge past their little packs of cleaning robots in the halls. With a week left in the bright month, the sky is bruise blue and leaks lazy rain. I make my way down the Esquiline Hills to the southern tram hub 
which I take to the main station on the eastern side of the grounds. Under the Selenius arch, I show my leave pass and security ID to the grey lion guards there. I wanted to bring Liam, but it's a school day and I'm worried the sounds of the city will overwhelm him. First trip to Hyperion? The sleepy grey asks at the station checkpoint as he examines my pass. Lines of first-wave commuters from Hyperion pass through inspection on the other side of the station. He's taking too long. He'll find something wrong with the pass. I keep my hand on my billfold in my pocket. How much do I bribe him? I should have asked one of the maids. But you can't count on a straight answer from any of them. They'd lead me astray for a laugh. More guards watch a hollow programme inside the guard station. Seeing the sights? Yes, sir. Skip the circada. Lines are dreadful. I have a flexi pass. I hold up the shiny silver pass the steward handed out to all the Telemannus servants. Ripper, he drolls sarcastically. That'll get you in, but it won't let you cut the queue. Tourist sites are flat out. Martians everywhere. He eyes me like I would a mosquito in 121. Any fourth-class IDs are subject to full-spectrum assessment upon return after 2,200 hours. I'm second-class, only on Telemanis grounds, he corrects, referencing my pass. Extra Citadel clearance is a different protocol. Savvy? I nod. Enjoy our moon, citizen. I board the rain-slick train and huddle near a window, bundling tight my overcoat against the chill. The train sets out from the citadel with only six other passengers. It cuts across trees and the low-lying autumn fog that buffers the citadel from the city, rising up and up toward the jungle of lights and metal that is Hyperion. I remember seeing the city from the sky for the first time. It was magical then, thinking there were so many people in the world. Now thinking of the riots and protests, it puts dread in my belly. I disembark at Hyperion Station and push my way through the mass of commuters that cluster on the platform to board the train for its return journey to the Citadel. There's greens and silvers in the crowd, but most are coppers, all buttoned up against the chill in expensive identical overcoats and scarves and dark broad-brimmed hats. I beg their pardon as I push through them, but they don't hear. Glowing earbuds fill ears, hollow contacts flicker in eyes. I use my elbows, I'm so short I can't see my way through, and almost get trampled when a speaker pings. Train doors closing, mind the pinch, train doors closing. Hyperion Station reminds me of Lagalos. It is a huge stone cavern of bustle and echoing noise, full of travellers from the farthest reaches of the Republic, scarf-wearing, leather-skinned reds of Terran Latifundius, 
Wayfish blue lads from some orbital flight school in snappy black jackets. Biomod manic loonies greens listening to thundering music from shoulder speakers. All stirred into a pot like one of Ava's stews. I pass glittering shops with moving advertisements showing expensive-looking things on expensive-looking pinks. At a map vestibule, I accidentally touch the screen and the hollow flips sideways, showing a pit viper scrum of travel options. It's dizzying and I'm not sure how the bloody damn ticket machines work. The yellow behind me is tapping her foot impatiently. I feel a sudden panic. I stick out like a blistered toe. I want to flee, go back to the citadel, watch hollow flicks in my bunk. Kavik's took Sophocles with him to Lake Selene for the day, for some secret meeting, so I don't have any duties. No, Hyperion is the jewel of the Empire. I look up at the carvings on the stone of the station. Ava, you would have killed to see this. I owe it to her to give it a chance. Overwhelmed by the transit maps, I leave the station and head out on foot. I can trust my feet, at least, and the GPS in my datapad. Only a five-kilometre walk to the gallery, half the distance Liam and I would walk from camp to the strawberry fields. Along the way, I stop outside a little café on a glittering boulevard. Groups of brown janitors in grey jumpsuits pluck at trash with metal claws. Vox Populi protesters are beginning to gather in a square to hear a man speak. Off the side of the tree-lined walkway, past flowering shrubs littered with trash, is a huge drop to the city levels below. Over the edge, apartments stretch as far beneath as they do above. My gut churns, having just realised I am kilometres above the surface of the moon. Flyers trundle along in aerial boulevards like migrating beetles. Beneath them is a layer of pollution and fog. Lights glow beyond that. A whole other city concealed in the murk. It's manic, da. Would make even you look away from the hollows. Might even give you a smile. I go into a nearby cafe feeling a bit heady from the vertigo. Confused by the huge menu, I order a coffee and pastry. It's the first money I've ever spent outside 121, and the coffee alone costs a quarter of what I make in a day. The brown cashier sighs when I pay with bills instead of data creds, and makes a show of rummaging through the cash register for change. Once she hands it back, I move to sip my coffee in the corner. The coffee is good, sure, but the pastry overwhelms me. Buttery and flaky with chocolate and nuts inside. Would have sold two of your children for a bite of this, Ava. See, I can enjoy myself. I'm a regular citizen. I watch out the window at the pedestrians, but still feel so alone. They're part of this world. That's how they can afford these coffees every day. They have skills. Went to school. No computers and advanced things. I'm not like them. 
All's I know is to be a servant. Before that, a slave. I imagine myself sitting across from a big man in a suit at an interview like they show in the hollows. He'd ask my skills and I'd tell him I know how to tend silk spiders to keep them free of beetles and how to put them to nest at night. I know how to bribe mine tin pots, how to haggle down an ounce of sugar, how to listen to rumours so I don't get stuck by a 121 gang. Rasta smarts, my good lady, he'd say. But we don't need that around here. Have you tried janitorial? The museum is fine and clean and cluttered. The dawn of the Space Age wing is packed, full of ancient spaceships donated by Regulus Ogson himself. I have to push through a group of greys and blues to even glimpse half the relics. Through a crook in a woman's elbow, I recognise the winged heel of the Silver's Company logo. The same that was on our tents and our food packets and our water purifier. The same is on the robots that replaced us in our own unprofitable mine. The history of the Conqueror's exhibit is closed. Warden barriers block it off. A flock of coppers in front of me titter like jungle helians about there being some sort of a terrible theft a few weeks back. Through a gap in the tarp that covers the front of the exhibit, I see several greens are installing hardware in the floor as a crew of oranges and reds fix a marble arch where Conquerors has been burned over with cocksuckers. I smile to myself. I skip the wing devoted to the rising. Little Con and Barlow would have wailed in disappointment and instead join the line for the Liberty Wing. There I find a room of concrete that stretches several stories high, narrowing at the top to let in a thin stream of light. A million red sigils littered the floor, small as thumbs made of flexible metal, just like those on my own hands, each taken from the mines that the Jackal of Mars liquidated. They call it the Hall of Screams. It's grotesque and cold and I want to flee it, but I stay. Of all the art here, this is the straightest in the eye you can look at the horror. A man barely older than me falls down weeping, clutching one of the sigils. He's alone but reds behind him kneel to comfort him till there's a thick cluster around him and they're all weeping and I'm wiping my own eyes and looking away, wondering if I should join but feeling too awkward and too moved to actually do it. Where was this love in Camp 121? A pair of towering gulls stand on the far side with their young son watching the display. They're a handsome couple, their eyes sombre, respectful. But I want to shout at them, tell them to slag off. This belongs to us. Then the iron tinkles as their son slips from his mother's grasp and walks out onto the sigils. His shoes rattle the sigils together. The sound bounces against the concrete, 
rising level by level, the noise growing with each ricochet till it reaches the top of the room's cold concrete throat. The clustered reds stop and stare. Made nauseous and claustrophobic from the hall of screams, I push my way out of the crowd, trying to find a place to sit down and recover. All the coffee shops are filled, so I aim for a small park outside the museum. I squeeze between a slow-moving gaggle of airy blues, past jabbering greens, the colours all clustered together on the broad white steps that lead up to the museum. Carefully, I brush past a dreadful gold woman who is stopped in the middle of the walkway, talking on an internal chip. A red with eccentric piercings bumps into me, eager to get ahead. Sorry, love, he mumbles and carries on sliding through the crowd, trailing smoke from his burner. Someone shouts behind me on the stairs. I turn around to see the gold woman wheeling about in a frenzy, her eyes scanning the crowd, till they settle on me. She points a long, jewelled finger. You! I look behind me to see who she's talking to. Thief! She pushes in my direction, and I realise she's coming right for me. The people around me lurch away. I have the urge to flee, but I stand rooted to the spot on the sidewalk. Watchmen, the tiring woman shouts. Watchmen, where is it, you little rasta? The woman sneers down at me, easily a foot taller than me, a hundred pounds heavier, more despite how thin she is. She looks like an emaciated gold salamander wrapped in a fur coat, but her large eyes glitter like two evil gems. I know you took it. I didn't take shit, I snap. She grabs my arm and yanks so hard I feel my shoulder grind in its socket. My feet come clear off the ground. We'll see about that. Watchmen? They're coming, someone says. I look around in confusion and squirm sideways so that she loses hold of my rain-slicked jacket. Don't let her leave. A female green and an old silver man step into my path. The silver grabs me and holds my arm until two watchmen push their way through the gathering crowd. Graze! A spike of fear goes through me. They wear blue cloth caps and grey uniforms with titanium badges with a blindfolded woman holding the Star of the Republic. The younger of the two tells the bystanders to move along as the oldest cranes his neck to look up at the gold, nodding respectfully. Is there a problem, citizen? This one's a thief. He looks at me calmly. What, her? The little urchin stole my bracelet, took it right off my wrist. My eyes widen, like hell I did. I saw her try to get away, the silver declares. I detained her till you arrived. It was a diamond and laconium bracelet, incredibly expensive. I was talking on my comm and she pickpocketed me. Slippery little fingers. My tongue is struck dumb. Hold your head still, citizen, the older, fatter watchman says. 
A clear optic falls over his left eye from the thin plastic headset he wears just beneath his blue beret. Got to scan you in. But I didn't do anything. Then you've got nothing to hide. Did either of you see this happen? The younger Grey asks the green and silver. Saw the raster bump into her? No, just heard the shout. I didn't do anything. Shut up, or we'll all you in for running your mouth, the younger watchman says. Citizen, stop moving your head. I hold very still, biting back a tin-pot insult. The grey's eye flickers with light from the optics projection display. A kaleidoscope of faces streams against his pupil. She's not in the archive, he tells the other. Where are you from, citizen? He motions me to put my finger in his DNA sampler. I feel a small prick of a needle. He frowns at the results. Martian, obviously, talks like she's got mud in her mouth, the gold says. Just arrest her already. I want my bracelet back. She gestures to the buildings around. Can't you call up a camera feed? Private property, not linked to the archive, so we'd need a warrant. Ridiculous bureaucracy. Streets have turned to scum. Theft on the promenade. If you'd stop heeding those plebeian senatorial scarecrows and just do your jobs. Citizen, please, the older watchman says. He looks around at the Reds amidst the bystanders, probably wondering if they're vox populi. Wrong eyes see, and this turns into a riot. Are you Martian, girl? Breathe, breathe. I, I'm Martian. You're not in the archive. Where is your transit permit? Do you have it in your embed ID? What? Do you have any ID? I reach quickly from my pockets where I keep the Citadel ID. Both greys step back, their hands dropping to their side arms. The younger one pulls his, and I stare down the metal barrel two metres from my face. Don't move! I quiver at the order, a gene-deep terror of greys with guns racing through me. Hands out of your pockets! Hands out of your fucking pockets! Do it! I freeze, whole body locking up and trembling. I'm too frightened to even pull my hands out. Hostile eyes stare at me, loathing me, validated that I fulfill some twisted fantasy of theirs. Pull your hands out, slowly, slowly. I pull my hands out. The older grey sees reds and browns watching from the crowd. Several are speaking into their comms. One steps our way. The grey lowers his gun, a flicker of fear in his eyes. The younger grey doesn't see the onlookers and rushes to slam me against the nearby wall. He shoves my hands out and kicks my legs apart. With a baton, he scans my body, then pats me down and then cuffs my hands behind my back with magnetic shackles. I don't know what to do. Now shoot it or bomb, the young one says, still not seeing the older one's trepidation. No bracelet either. He takes my ID out of my pocket and steps back. Lyria of Logolos, he pauses. Hey, Stefano, look at this. 
then she must have an accomplice, the gold is saying. Did see another red, the green pipes up. I saw him too. Gang member, no doubt. Tats, piercings. Look, officers, can I just give you my testimony or card? The silver asks, glancing at a timepiece. I have a meeting. Rico, take their testimony and IDs. The older watchman's calm crackles. He holsters his weapons. We'll need a wagon at promenade level 116th and Eurydice. Send crowd suppression. Got some Vox watchers. Could escalate. To me. You can turn around, citizen. Hands behind my back, I shuffle awkwardly around. Rain started falling again. I shiver. The younger grey looks over my ID. Citadel stuff, eh? I nod. Janitorial? Then he notices the fox sigil to the right of my name. Tell him honest personnel. Second class clearance. Look at that. That's why she's not in the archive. I'm not sure if it's a question. Probably stole the ID too, the gold says. The older watchman wheels on her. Citizen, please, look around you. Do you not know who I am? The woman sneers. I'm Agilla Overellius, officer. That's right. Why aren't you trying to find her accomplice? She has one. They run in packs, you know. Little savage off-worlders gone wild. Nowhere is safe. What's your name? I'm going to report you to my dear friend, Senator Adulius. You'll be guarding water filtration plants on Phobos with one com call. She leans forward, her bright eyes narrowing as she reads his badge. Officer Gregorovich. The older grey pales. Citizen Vorelius, we're taking her in. Taking me in, I howl. I didn't do. Shut up, he tells me with an instinctive shove. I'm so angry and scared I just stumble and stare at the ground. We'll take her in and perform a full investigation and get feeds from all the cameras after we get a warrant. If she helped steal your bracelet, she'll pay. Good, good. You should report it to the Telemannus steward. They should know they have a thief in their midst. Not that that would bother Martian warlords. But she should at least lose her job. Must keep the streets clean. That terrifies me more than the greys. I'm led away as a battered grey flyer shaped like a loaf of bread with Hyperion cyan stripes sets down on the street. They open the back up. It's filled with rows of rough-looking bastards, most tattooed low-collars, drunks and vagrants. What did she do? An old red shouts from the bystanders. Move along, citizen, one of the greys orders. Bullshit, someone else shouts. A bottle smashes on the ground near the officers. Fuck you, tin man. Get her in. Slag you, I hiss, resisting as the watchmen try to push me into the back of the jail wagon. I feel like a child throwing a tantrum. My face has gone numb. One of them pulls out a stun baton. Get in with your 
pants pissed. Or get in without your pants pissed. Comply, citizen. Flinching, I step up into the bed of the flyer and let them push me into a seat between a ragged old pink with chattering black teeth and a drunk obsidian with vomit and blood on his flashy racing jacket. My shackles clank as the magnetics lock me into my seat. A deep animal fear rises up in me. I tug at the shackles. Please, please don't. There's shouts now outside. The sound of sirens and more bottles breaking. Officers? Someone says on the street before they shut the doors. A slim grey man in an overcoat approaches them. He has a forked goatee and a bad limp in his right leg. I'm afraid there's been a mistake, he says. That girl's a friend of mine. The pickpocket? The older watchman asks, glancing at the gathering crowd. That's a ripper? The stranger laughs. If she's a pickpocket, I'm a world's renowned art thief. Known her family going on eight years. We were out for a day on the town to take in the sights. First stop was the Liberty Wing, then Hero Centre, tedious, I know. Wanted to show her a bit of my past. Make sure this flashy new generation knows the sacrifices our kin made back in the day. Your past, the old watchman says. Were you a son? The man shrugs as if embarrassed. We all do our part. Worked the watch first. The massive obsidian beside me snorts phlegm out of the bowels of his nose and spits it at my feet. His cracked teeth smile at me and he whispers something in a language I don't understand. His breath smells like a flush tube. Meanwhile, the greys rattle at each other in military lingo while I watch on, utterly lost. What cohort? one of the watchmen asks. Cohort's fifteen. Serenia Centre? Crater Town itself. One of the men whistles. A smokejack in the flesh. Then you were a first responder. So they say. Was there too, the old watchman says. Was thirteenth then? Hell of a day. The stranger replies. Hell of a day. The men shake hands. Philippe, the stranger says. Stefano, the older watchman replies. That's Rico. He's a jackass. So, what's the flack, Stefano? My friend there looks like she's about to be that crow's lunch. And you look like you're about to be the mobs. A citizen says your friend stole her bracelet, Officer Rico says peevishly, annoyed at being left out of the conversation. Her bracelet? The stranger named Philippe laughs. Did you find it on her? No, but... Then why is she in the wagon, rusters and porters? The older one nods. Citizen threatened to cause a fuss. Threatened to call up the pyramid. Connected, you know. Ah, the stranger lifts his eyebrows. A gold, then. Stefano looks ashamed. 
You know the story. Same gears, new oil. So it goes. So it goes. How long till your pension? Three. They bumped them all back five years. Bastards. Yut. New recruits ain't up to scratch. Reds and browns, even an obsidian, it's fucking madness. No discipline. So they're keeping the old dogs in the kennel. Criminal. So it goes. The stranger steps close and drops his voice. Listen. I know you got a job to do, Stefano. I know that. But look around you. Fuse is lit. Carter away and Vox goes boom. I vouch for this little lady. Told her mother I'd watch out for her. She's the right sort. It'd get me killed if I had to go back and tell her parents what's what. You know reds. Small colour. Big temper. And you take her to the station. This all gets messy. Especially since she's done jack all. Any way you could forget to log this one in. He looks back at the crowd. Save everyone a headache. Stefano! Officer Rico starts. Quiet, squib. Officer Stefano looks at me, back to the street, and then at the older watchman who brought the wagon, and nods. He jumps into the back of the wagon and disconnects the magnetic coupling on my shackles. I follow warily out the back. I owe you a chit, the stranger says. Damn fine of you. Don't know what you're talking about. The stranger sticks out his hand. Semper fratres. Semper fratres. The watchmen shut the wagon and stride off into the crowd, shoving any low colour that gets too close. The wagon levitates back into the air and merges back into the air traffic, leaving me standing with the stranger. The crowd, robbed of its martyr, evaporates as quickly as it gathered. Some come to ask if I'm all right. I nod, still rattled. Pretend like we're friends, the man says as he guides me away. They're still watching. Why'd you do that? I ask him when he sits down on a bench to have a smoke. I take one from him, and he lights it with the flame from his pinky ring. It was another red who did it, he says. Saw the kid make his move. Why didn't you say something right off? I ask hotly. I don't know, he says. Trouble starts easy these days. Looks like it, I mutter. Are you always this aggressive with people who take time out of their day to help you? No, I just... I'm sorry. And no point in my coming to chat with that gold hovering like a feral wasp. They've got nasty stings. Easy way to get into a quagmire. Quagmire? I ask. Messy situation, he explains. Philippe! He sticks out a hand. His voice is lighter, more playful than it was with the watchmen. He has a wicked face and smart eyes that look bored by most things they've seen, 
but they focus on me intently. Lyria of Lugalos. Martian, he laughs. Well then, I'm relieved they didn't ask how the devil I knew you. Martian, ha, that's a rip. Could have undone it all. He rubs out his burner and gets to his feet, about to leave. Why'd you help me? I ask again. You look like someone I used to know. He pauses. And I hate that high-colour piss. Flexing muscles as if they haven't already had their run. You have a lovely day now, Lyria of Lagalos. Mind your tongue when talking with tin pots. That Stefano was a nice one. Most are all twitchy as flies these days with all the terrorists and Vox fire starters. He walks off. Wait! He stops. Yes? I owe you, I say, reaching for my billfold. You mind me, I mind you. That's how it's done. You want to pay me? He's offended. Heavens, no, don't cheapen the serendipity, love. He pauses as people pass between us. He seems to be contemplating something. His hand rests on his sternum, touching something under his shirt. Well, damnation, he says with a sigh. You do look like a lost thing. How long have you resided in our fair city? It's my first day. He coos. Yeah, poor little rabbit. I'm not a rabbit, I snap. He laughs. True. Your teeth are much bigger. So, day one. And what have you seen? He snatches my brochure when I hold it up. Piteous child, you'll stand in line all day. Well, just so happens I need to walk. It's for the knee, you see. Old wound. How about you thank me by giving me some company and lending me an ear so I don't have to talk to myself the entire time? It's an even trade, I think. I hesitate. I promise you a splendid day of revelry and fraternity. He's got mischievous eyes. On the whole, I trust those more than I do kind eyes. Those are the ones that pity me. I can do that. Splendid. He turns to walk away. We're going now, Lyria of Lagalos. He pats his leg. Hop, hop. I find Philippe hilarious. We walk and talk across the promenade level, stopping at the unpopular but beautiful palace gallery to see glass sculptures that look like laurel-tide dancers frozen in time, and at the Cerebian Zoo where kangaroos and zebras and other extinct creatures have been brought back to flesh and blood by carvers. He introduces me to caramel and cardamom popcorn and flavoured ice. We smoke burners amongst lamplit trees in Aristotle Park and watch loose dogs chase morning doves that gather to drink at the fountains. Philippe narrates as if I asked him to. He has a way with words using many I don't know and some in ways I'm not familiar with. There's something worldly about him, something cultured, so cultured that he mocks the uppity manners of the ladies in the furs and jewellery that I first thought so intimidating. 
Ava, you'd love this man. Nothing like the stupid boys of the township. He also seems to want to know me. Not about me like everyone else, but what I think. I ramble on, forgetting to feel self-conscious, and he watches, touching that something beneath his shirt. He might be older than my father, but he's got something youthful about him that makes me smile. He hides something, a deep sadness, maybe, and sometimes I catch him watching the trees or a fountain like he's been here before with someone else a long time ago. When he does this, he always touches his chest. I wonder who I remind him of. I lose track of time forgetting that the sun doesn't set at the end of the day here. When I say I should get back to the citadel, Philippe demands to escort me after we cap the day with a dinner at a little Venusian place he knows. I hesitate, despite the growling in my stomach, about to make an excuse because I've never been to a real restaurant and I'm self-conscious of my terrible coat and I'm fretting I won't be able to afford it. But he twists my arm. Damn well he did. The little Venusian place is the finest place I've ever been. Napkins and plates as white as hard-boiled eggs. Silver utensils. Music trickling from a violet zitherist playing underneath an ivy gazebo that looks out to the citadel and the mountains to the north. Pains need to think you've lived a life without oysters. Philippe says, slurping one down. Well, you haven't ever had fried pit viper eggs. An acquired taste, no doubt. I shiver as I slurp down another oyster. I chewed the first one and almost wretched. But now I know to take them down all at once, I'm beginning to like them if I sauce them with enough vinegar. Or maybe I like that I like them. I feel very important when the waiter comes and asks if we'd like anything else, and I say, That's right, another flight, please. And two more martinis, Philippe demands. Insidiously dirty, you charmer. The waiter blushes and patters away. I watch him go, dreading what this will all cost when I could barely afford a coffee. Philippe tosses his empty shell into a pail. These don't hold a candle to true Venusian crustaceans, but with the war, Earth does its best. I heard trade might reopen with the peace, I say knowingly. Heard that bit from one of Quicksilver's men who visited Cavix a couple of weeks back. Ha! The peace won't last. It never lasts. Golds can't handle conditional victory. They simply must have it all. Vox Populi might pass it without the goals. And how do you know that? I shrug, knowing I've said too much. I hear things. He examines me. Doesn't that bother you, making peace with the slavers? I consider it relieved he didn't ask where I've heard these things. I don't know. I'm sure you'd know if it bothers you. That senator... Dancer O'Faron, he was the one who freed my mind. He whistles, that's something. 
I nod. Took me a while to remember, but if you saw how he looked at us, he just wants to make things better. Here and on Mars, seems all the Sovereign thinks about is our personal score, finishing things with the Ash Lord, and the small people get left behind. She hasn't even been to Mars in six years, and the place is a quagmire. He smiles at the word. And what about the Reaper? I don't know, I shrug, drunk and wanting to talk about something else. It's like he's one of them now. A gold, I nod, thinking of my brothers in the legions, wondering if I should tell Philippe about them. No, I don't want the pity to ruin the night. I just want it to end, I say. Just want that life we were all promised. Don't we all? Ah, the oysters. We finish the next flight, and after the two martinis, Philippe gets the bill without me noticing. I make a show of scolding him, but inside I'm thanking the veil and feeling stupid for worrying so much about it. Tottering drunk, we stumble away from the restaurant arm in arm, singing a red ballad. Philippe insisted I teach him about a boy so charming he seduced a pit viper. Though Philippe's at least thirty kilos heavier and two hands taller, he's drunker than I am. Red constitution, damnably impressive, he says with a sigh sitting down midway through Hero Centre, despite the light drizzle that falls from the cloud lair. The dimness of the light makes it feel almost like a Martian night. Must rest the leg. It aches so. We sit together on a bench in the middle of the Hero Centre's plaza. Statues ring the expanse. My favourite, Orion Z Aquarii's, tower seven stories high over a riot of red maples. The notoriously curmudgeonly blue stands with her hands on her hips and a parrot on her shoulder. The largest of the statues is at the centre of the plaza. At night, lights in the ground blaze up to illuminate the Iron Reaper. A red boy, ten times the size of a real man, stands chained to two huge iron pillars. He is not grand. He is half-starved. His back is bent. But his mouth is open in a roar. The chains seem to crack and snap. The columns are shattered, and in their shards are more shapes and icons and screaming faces. Philippe strokes his necklace as he leans back looking at the statue. What's that? I ask him after a moment. His eyebrows rise. Under your shirt. You've been stroking it like it's a pet all night. Hmm. He sits up straighter and takes out the necklace. The size of a small egg, it is the face of a youthful man with curly hair and a crown of grapes. A little something given to me by a special someone. It is Bacchus, Lord of Frivolity and Wine, my kindred spirit. Who gave it to you? I ask. Sorry, I got shit for manners. 
Dispense with thy manners, my darling. I'm too drunk for them. Still, he pauses, his face losing its natural amusement, replaced by a darker, more intense emotion. It was a man. My fiancé. Fiancé? That a problem? He snaps in a clipped new voice. No, I just... Because I know low reds are primitive little shits about that sort of thing. Part of your mind conditioning. The nuclear family. No efficiency in homosexuality. A waste of sperm declares the board of quality control. I glower. We're not all like that. Da was, though. No, he says with a little airy laugh himself again. In that moment, I understand him. All the big words, all the dandy eccentricity are a shield. There's pain beneath, and for a moment he trusted me enough to share it. I'm sorry, love. I'm terribly tight. Easier to see only ahead when you're terribly tight. He sighs and watches water drip down the reaper's statue. Birds huddle in the armpits of the monument. What was your fiancé like? I ask softly. Husband. I hate calling him fiancé. Cheapens it. He was a good man. The best. Nothing in common with me except an infatuation with the Lord's wine. A private joke. He's gone now. But you probably guessed that. I'm sorry. We all have our shadows. He smiles bravely. My family was killed on Mars, I say, surprised to find myself speaking the words out loud. So many people have asked and dug, but I sealed them off because how could they ever understand? That sadness in Philippe understands me. In his eyes, I don't feel pitied. I feel seen. I was in one of the assimilation camps. We were there too long, and the Red Hand came. What were their names? I make a small, pained sound. No one's asked that. Then I'm honoured to be the first to know. My brother's name was Theron. My father's name was Arlo. My sister was Ava. Her children, Con, Barlow, and Ella, the littlest one. My voice catches. She was a baby. I try to smile. But I got my nephew out, and I got brothers alive too. His silence is that of a man wrestling with something inside himself. The battle plays out in the muscles of his jaw and the shifting of his hands against the bench. After a time, not knowing which side has won, I follow his eyes to the Iron Reaper. Know what I see when I look at that? He asks. A thief? He laughs. Suppose that's blasphemy to you. He's your great hero. Your messiah. He's not my messiah. No, no. It's incredible, he says, looking at me. What is? 
Everyone is so loud these days, but you, you're silent when you've all the right to scream. Luna isn't made for silence. Neither am I. I say nothing. With him, I don't feel a need to. And maybe that's why I told him about my family. It was a secret I wanted to hold close because I didn't want the pity. I don't want to demean their deaths or prostitute them for attention. What do you see? he asks of the statue. Rust, I pause, and shadows. We walk to the train depot in silence. Steam from the heat of the friction on rails billows from the tracks. Thank you, I say, for everything. The pleasure was all mine, Lyria of Lagolos. He pauses, considering his words carefully. I know Hyperion may seem too big to reckon, and the people here grander than you. But don't let them make you feel small. He pokes my chest and smiles wryly. You are a world entire. You are grand and lovely. But you have to see it before anyone else does. He smiles at me, a little embarrassed. You have my pad number. Don't be a stranger, little rabbit. He kisses my forehead paternally and turns into the rain. Till we meet again. He hops twice like a rabbit before his bad knee buckles comically. He grins back at me. I can't help but laugh. In my bunk back in the citadel, with the covers tight around my neck, I curl up, too tired to pull up the hollow of Mars, and think it marvellous to have finally made a friend. Chapter 30 Darrow The Nessus We extract our prizes from Deepgrave without incident taking ten other high-value prisoners from the bowels of the station with us in our submersible. Even though they're paralysed and bound, the press of their bodies and the stink of their unwashed flesh stacked in the back of the cramped cabin is nearly more than I can bear. Stealing only Apollonius would have broadcast our intentions. Now, if the warden doesn't live up to his end of the bargain, the Ash Lord and the Republic will think it a general jailbreak. I only hope our non-lethal methods and our access into their system doesn't give us away too quickly. Despite the success of the mission, I feel trapped, imprisoned by the proximity of the scum. Apollonius lies atop the pile of fallen warlords in his kimono, like some dread corpse king. In my chest, my heart is made heavier by the dark, silent eyes of my friends, hunched in the red light of the submarine, knowing they feel the same weight, that we are all party to some unspeakable deed. Thraxa was always held overwhelming guilt for the evil works of her own colour, stares balefully at the prisoners. Were this to go wrong, were these goals to stand again at the head of their legions, all their evil would rip fast as a wildfire back into the world. Sir, I want to apologize. 
Alexander whispers carefully to me, so the others can't overhear. I was already seasick from the waves on the trawler, and when I saw the eyes go, well, it was mawkish of me. Not to the level I hold myself, and I hope you don't think lesser of me for it. Ragnar would puke in null gravity, I say. Nothing to apologize for. He nods, not hearing me. It must be a heavy burden, being the eldest grandchild of Lorne Au Arcos. An impossible standard to follow. Severo wonders why I like the youth. For all his entitlement, all the arrogance, a deep vein of insecurity runs through Alexander, and I feel a powerful protective instinct toward him. He wants to be good. If only he didn't want to be famous as well. He reminds me only too much of Cassius. Sir, I know it is base to ask, but I wonder if we could keep it between us. You worried about Rona mocking you? I ask. Trust me, Alex, it's not her you have to worry about. I look over to Severo, who is eavesdropping on the conversation with a nasty little smile for Alexander. From the back of the submersible, there comes a bark. I wheel around to see the skinny obsidian smiling down at his lap. A small snout pokes through his fingers. Don't tell me you've brought the warden's dog, several mutters. The obsidian grins wickedly and opens his bony hands to show us the terrier hidden between his legs. Dog-napping? Careful, mutts. Tongueless here is a bad, bad man. When we surface back at the trawler, I struggle to hide my agitation and wait for my men to exit first and help load out the prisoners one by one before exiting at the last to gulp down fresh air. Yet even the brine of the sea and the cool wind of the Atlantic cannot wash away the feeling that I've made some irrevocable mistake. I can't let the howlers see my doubt, so I emerge out of the submersible with a grand smile and laugh to Rona at our catch of the day as they lay the prisoners lengthwise on the deck and shackle their hands and feet together under a clear and endless sky. And he puked over my boots, Severo says, finishing his story of Alexander's embarrassment to Rona and the support crew's delight. Alexander tries to laugh it off, but his cheeks are bright red. And then we kidnapped a dog. Did you meet Tongueless? He's a riot. Tongueless, come say hello. After loading up the golds onto Colloway's pelican, we cut open the door previously sealing the crew in and leave the crab hauler via the pelican, flying north to our departure base in the frozen wilderness of Baffin Island. There, the Nessus, a stolen Society Xephos-class frigate of war, lies cold and quiet under camouflage tarps in the shadow of granite escarpments. As we made our preparations for deep grave in Greenland, my brother Kieran hid here with the rest of the howlers, getting ready for our departure. They wait for us out in the snow in thermal cloaks to help load up the prisoners, watching the parade of the blindfolded golds with the solemnity of funeral mourners. I share their disgust. This dirties all of us. 
Compounded with the death of Wolfgar, it has darkened the mood perceptibly. I don't imagine it will brighten as we near Venus. On the snow, Severo and I look up at the Nessus. Painted snow white the entire length of her hundred-meter hull, and crested on her starboard and port with the winged heel of quicksilver, she's got some of the prettiest lines ever to dart between spheres. This beauty puts a rocket in my pocket, Severo says. What a quick one for her. Nothing. Man doesn't get that rich asking for nothing. His eyes followed the last of the prisoners up the ramp. We should keep the young bloods away from them. Half of those rich shits could talk their way out of a black hole, especially wrath. They were sentenced to solitary. Solitary is what they'll get. Several nods to Tungless, who was standing near the ship's portside battery, wriggling his bare feet in the snow, arms spread wide. His spirit eyes stare off into the wilderness as a storm gathers its breath. What do you want to do about that box of fun? We'll send him to New Sparta with the rest. He grimaces. What? You want to bring him with? We don't know anything about him. I like his fibre. I mean, he knocked a peerless out with a water pipe. He has to be over fifty. Jove knows how long he's been in that cell, and why he was there in the first place. It's a risk. He saved your ass and we'd still be wandering around down there with guards up our peckers if he didn't play guide. He chews his lip. To be honest, it'd be good for the pack to have an obsidian around the table. They're feeling a little light in the bridges. By the look in his eyes, I know he's not just talking about the pack. Your call, I say. His choice. But you tell him where we're going. To certain death... General Mayhem, who could resist? As if hearing us, impossible from the distance, Tongueless turns. He smiles, then looks up at the quicksilver heel on the ship. Severo was right about the Nessus. She is a pretty thing, and a killer straight from the Venusian shipwrights. While the Republic might have a vast numerical superiority in ships and resources at her disposal, the new line of core capital ships puts Victra and Quicksilver's fledgling Phobos shipyards to shame. Quicksilver's men captured the Nessus two years ago after she was damaged during a gold raid on a Republic supply caravan to our main fleet around Mercury. Instead of alerting the Republic Navy, like he should have, Quicksilver seized her citing arcane salvage laws. When Republic lawyers tried to claim her for the war effort, Quick won the court battle and retrofitted her to serve as his personal interplanetary shuttle. Which is why I need her. Kieran waits for me in the Ness's lower garage as I stamp snow off my boots. He stares after Apollonius as Thraxer drags his limp body to the brig. The warden's dog waddles behind Tungless as Clown leads him to the galley to put some meat on his bones. Lo, brother, Kieran says, frowning at Tungless, wondering where he came from. I greet my brother with a hug. He jerks his head after the hooded gold. So that's the prize, eh? In his mid-thirties, my brother is skinny as a rail, freckled, and 
terminally optimistic. He smells like chlorine today. The Minotaur of Mars in the flesh, Severo says. Kieran blinks from under a tangle of red hair. He's big. The dog is. No, it was the Wardens, Severo says. Sure. Kieran nods, as if it makes perfect sense. And the Obsidian? It's complicated. How's the ship? I ask. For the past five years, Kieran served as the head of the Howler's engineering department. She's tip-top slick and ready for immediate launch. He grins. There's really nothing to fix. We've been swimming half the time. You should try the pool. It's like the veil itself. There's even a sauna. You've been swimming? Severo says jealously. What about the stores? Trust you didn't put much of a dent in them. Just a whiskey. Kieran does a little dance. She's stocked for a tour of the solar system, brother. Those Venusians will drool over what Quicksilver's got in the holds. Gotta say, it's some fair bait. You certain they'll take it? They're bloody damn better, Severo mutters. Otherwise we just jailbroke a bunch of savages for nothing. Tharsis has a legendary appetite, I say. He'll bite. I unzip the front of my scarab skin. Steam and stink pour out into the cold garage. Severo undoes his own. Kieran steps away, snorting. We'll depart in the morning. Severo grunts, his scarab skin now a crumpled shadow on the metal floor. He's naked underneath. Since we're not going anywhere, I'm going to eat. Shower first, Kieran says, for the sake of the men. Don't be so dramatic. Ass sweat never killed a soul. That's not a fact, Kieran calls as Severo saunters away. You can't verify that. Kieran picks up his discarded scarab skin with a wrench. I'll wash this before it infests the ship. Last time he brought sand mites back in his hair. Gave the obsidians the worst rash. Guess we don't gotta worry about that now. He pauses. How'd my girl do? She was fine. We watch Rona sort gear from the pelican into bins on the far side of the garage, near the starshell bays. Kieran scratches his neck, leaving grease stains. You know when we were kids, and you'd sometimes tell me ghost stories? I hate ghost stories. Scared the piss out of me, thinking Gullback the Dark Creeper was going to come from the cracks in the floor and eat my teeth. Gullback, I say. I thought you loved Gullback. He shudders. You wanted to tell him, so I let you tell him. Point is, and it really wasn't that good of a point, I don't like asking for things. I know you're sharp and all, but can I say something that will probably be blinding obvious to you? Course. He looks back at his daughter trudging through the snow. Was talking to some of the boys, and we all agree this is bound to get a little mad. I mean, shit, Wolfgar's already dead, and we just broke into a maximum security prison. I'm with you, brother. I gotta be. But I don't want my daughter coming with us. Then she won't. And you're not coming either. Tharal, this isn't a debate, Kieran. You've a gift with the gears, but you're not meant for a firefight. 
and that's what we're driving into. He knows what I mean. I don't want him to die. After the prisoners are sealed in their cells, my men slink off to the showers and then to the galley for a hot meal. I gather several of the support howlers together in the garage to tell them they won't be coming with us. Rona is amongst them. Kieran shuffles awkwardly in the corner as I give them each assignments here on earth to aid the howlers that will be returning from the field. They'll need a network to help them hide and reorganize. Afterwards, Rona confronts her father and me. So this is what all the girls who wanted to be hell divers felt when they were told they needed a prick for the job, she says. Respectfully, I deserve to come with. And how do you figure that? I ask. I don't see a wolf cloak. You're putting the engine in front of the ship, lass. Don't call me that. You lied to me. You said I'd get a chance to show my fibre. This is your chance. What you do in New Sparta will be just as important. Bullshit! She snaps. Say that again. Rona, don't swear, Kieran says. He's your commanding officer. He's my bloody damn uncle. She sticks a finger at me. I'm not a support trooper or a spy or a lass. I trained for three years for armoured calf, sucked mud at hog's tooth. I was third in my class in basic, second at HT. There were only four other reds there. And still, everyone said I was only there because I was your niece. She sticks a thumb in her chest. I am a Solar Republic Drachenjäger, a mechman. I did that. I had sockets put into my bones. She shows us sockets in her forearms that attached to the three-story mech she was trained to operate. After the PT and the bloody damn nerve melding, I got a spot with the 24th, was finally about to slag some slavers, then you show up, pull me from my unit and prove everyone right. And for what? So I can carry crates? Stay behind while my unit goes to war? Wait for the lads to return? So it's about you? I ask. I just want to do my part. It's my war too. You think any individual can survive on their own in a war? You're part of a unit. You have to trust every member of that unit. And right now, I don't trust you not to get someone else killed. So you can either obey or find another outfit. I might admire her spirit, but not her control. Do you hear me, Lancer? For a moment I worry she's going to spit more bile at me, but she regains her composure and snaps to rigid attention. Hail, Reaper! She storms out and Kieran breathes a sigh of relief. Thanks for the help, I mutter. He grins up at me innocently. Looked like you had everything under control. Exhausted and feeling my temper getting a bit raw, I follow Kieran's instructions to Quicksilver's stateroom on the third level. Severo's commandeered the captain's lounge's speakers to blast some sort of classical rhyme ruckus that would have made Ragnar's ears bleed, and Clown is whining loudly about someone stealing the blankets from his room. The noise cuts off as I shut the door to my stateroom. For the first time in seventy-two hours, I'm alone. 
the room is certainly not as the Venusian shipyards intended. Military austerity replaced by luxurious walnut and oak. On closer inspection, I see that there are hollow projectors built into the furniture. I turn on the ocean feature, and soon waves crash against rocks on the walls. Sea stretches in every direction. I half expect Lorne to step around the corner. I sniff. The room smells like brine from the olfactory feature. Not bad, Quick. Not bad at all. The ceiling has turned cornflower blue, and a gull flies overhead, reminding me of the beach I visited with Mustang on Earth in that breath before the war began in earnest. When I held my son for the first time, and thought only of the world I would make for him, it breaks me to see how far I've turned from that path. I peel off my own scarab skin and liner, and shower under scalding water in the marbled bathroom. Alone, my thoughts wander to my son. I try not to think of his eyes when I flew away, my razor soaked in Wolfgar's blood. Overcome, I grip the key around my neck. At the bedside, I find a slim hollow frame beside a bottle of Lagavulin 16. My wife and son float in the frame, smiling at me. Quicksilver must have had it sent. The picture was taken by my mother on the steps down to the water at Lake Selene. Another memory of theirs I never shared. Feeling hollow, I slip into bed and let the tears come quietly in the dark. In the morning, the pelican, carrying my brother, Rona, and the support howlers, departs south for New Sparta, Africa, and we head to the stars, rising up from the mountains, fresh covered with snow from the night storm, and ascend gradually into orbit. To blockade a planet is nearly impossible. You'd need the whole Republic fleet to even have a chance at it. The Nessus's advanced stealth hull hides us from the orbital scanners, and by the time we are visually detected, we are already pushing for deep space. With these engines, nothing will catch us. As Earth shrinks behind us, I watch it on the hollow screen, staring not at the oceans or the mountains or the glittering cities under the slow-moving veil of night, but at her moon, where my child will be tucked away in his bed and my wife will be in her office poring over documents until the small hours of the morning. I feel the distance grow between us, and I wonder if this is what it is like to be a bad father, always finding a reason to be gone, a reason that, no matter how virtuous or shining in the eyes of a child, will seem empty and false in the memories of the man he will soon become. Chapter 31 Ephraim Kites A week and a half after my first encounter with the rabbit, Kobachi finishes his custom work four days behind schedule, and three before the main event, pisses me off because he's slagged with my timetable. 
wouldn't be nearly as troublesome if it weren't for the sudden increase in security in Hyperion. Something has happened. Something they don't want the general public to know. There's no news on the HCs. Nothing but the political war between the Sovereign's Optimates and the Vox Populi as they masticate each other in the press on the merits of the peace. Half the fleet from Mercury is coming home, so the talking heads say, because the Senate is terrified the Reaper will rally the whole armada and return to dissolve their power. Meanwhile, we are on overdrive, adjusting our plan to ensure the increase in security doesn't slag all our hard work. Kobachi is making some last-minute adjustments, bent like a near-sighted hierophant over his workbench. I ease my nerves by smoking half a pack of burners in a crusty form-fab chair. I go through correspondences from contractors on my ghost datapad, my tenth in the last month. Even using syndicate freelancers, everything has to be done piecemeal, so no contractor can point a finger my direction if this blows up in our face. Which, despite the thoroughness of my plan, seems to be the outcome we're racing toward. I feel like I'm the only one who knows it. Sira and Dano are both infected with the excitement of all the new gear, while Volga sulks around like someone stole her favourite toy. Whenever I ask about her mood, she puts on a brave smile and says it's nothing. Knowing her, she's having second thoughts about the job. But doubts have never stopped her from following me before. I smile when I see a message from the obsidian beast himself. Gorgo has the gravwell. I'll be damned. I feel like a kid who wished for a lizard and woke up to a dragon sitting on the lawn. I look at my watch. I'm to meet the rabbit at Aristotle Park at two in the afternoon, and it's already pushing one. Sira and Dano wanted me to make the plant on the girl the first day out. They worried I wouldn't be charming enough to ensure I'd see her again. Too many variables, they said. Sira knows computers, and Dano knows angles, but leave the human condition to me. We kept correspondence since I last saw her. It started facile, sharing little jokes, musings on the superciliousness of Luna's jewel-bedecked denizens. It was a bore at first. She was just a child, realising she could mock the world. I expected the vitriol to continue to pour out. But the more comfortable she grew, the kinder she became, and the heavier the black, gnarled weight in my stomach grows. In some ways, she reminds me of Trigg. Small town, good heart waltzes into the big, rotten city, and here I am, the welcoming party. Some people just have shit luck. I look at my watch again, annoyed. Kabachi, almost done? He doesn't answer. Hey, Gecko, I'm talking to you. Kobachi starts and peers up at me, his eyes magnified by the lenses. Quite, quite. Come have a gander. He shuffles to the side to make way for me. I pick up the small metal drone from the table, turn it over in my hands and match it with the backer's pendant already around my neck. Perfect replica, but a bit heavier. The face is just as you requested, sweet and gentle, lively and compassionate, but the devil's behind the eyes, eh? Will it work? 
I bet my reputation on it. Not just your reputation, Kobachi. I pat him on the cheek and slip the pendant around my neck, shoving the other into my pocket. I head to the door. The syndicate will cover the expenses. I change into Philippe's clothes in Kabachi's lavatory and fix his beard to my face. I apply the makeup for my fake scars and insert the black market retinal forges, which turns my eyes a grey so pale it could almost be white. I twirl an extendable cane out before me in front of the mirror and work my face through the gamut of emotions to check for creases in the makeup and res flesh scars. A pedestrian's penchant for circumambulatory locomotion is the pedantic paroxysm of a pleonism of peremptory drivers and sometimes leads to imperfectly preventable parricide. I repeat the phrase four times till I have Philippe's pretentious, multisyllabic adoring accent down pat. Satisfied, I check the Bacchus pendant one last time and tuck it away. The cool metal slips under my shirt and waits against my skin. It's uncommonly heavy. Will she notice? I stare at myself in the mirror. My pupils huge in the low light. I sink into the darkness in them remembering how the gold spit trig with her razor. Holiday's words slither back. What would he think of me now? I reach for the Zolodone dispenser and activate the blighter on my collar. After catching a taxi to Aristotle Park, I find the rabbit waiting for me underneath an old sycamore that's seen at least five sovereigns. She's watching squirrels chase each other along the boughs. Finally, she says, bursting to her feet and looking up at me with those big rusty eyes. Her hair is more fashionable now, straightened and hanging to just below her ears. I liked it better the other way. In the reptilian chill of the Zolodone, I vivisect her. The city is already changing the girl. The hair, the silver nail polish the faux-leather black jacket she wears with purple lights on the sleeve, eroding the romantic, rustic mystique I built around her. The city never infected Trigg, except for those coral earrings and that sad jacket. Least she still talks like she's from a mine, for now. Low geezer, I was starting to think you'd been hit by a bloody damn train. I'm almost an old mate here. That's not what she was thinking. She was thinking I'd ditched her. That's what you always think when you're alone. That you'll always be alone, and any present company is an aberration. Cold inside, I feign a smile and touch my leg. A thousand apologies, love. No, a million. My leg, the old limb, has been the black death of me today. She pales and looks at my cane. Oh, Jove, I'm sorry. It was only a jest. You couldn't know. You should have messaged me. I could have met you. An old tin man's rust should never jeopardise a lady's enjoyment of an afternoon as splendid as this. You should have told me, she says crossly. We don't have to walk the park. We planned to stroll the park and take a taxi to the wharf to see the water of the Sea of Serenity, an idea I couldn't get her to drop. 
But to go to the water, we'd have to cross through a security checkpoint, and checkpoints have advanced sensors, and my Philippe credentials are hardly unimpeachable. Say what you want about the Republic, whoever created their ID system was a razor-smart bastard. We could find a café, if that would be easier for you, she says, or maybe go to the stalls and get a picnic on the grass. No, the wharf would be lovely. Philippe, she crosses her arms. Stubborn little rabbit. Well, only if you insist. I emphasise a sigh of relief. I believe you've saved my life this time. The water makes my leg ache so. Are you sure you don't want to walk? I could grin and we're having a picnic, she concludes. And that's the end of it. Then I insist on shopping with you paying for everything and escorting you properly as I do it. Young Lyria, I proffer my arm. She smiles, delighted by the courtly manners and how dashing she must look in her new black jacket. She slips her arm in mine. We cross the park, where low-coloured children fly their kites through the twilight sky, slate-blue stained with fingers of whorehouse pink and my sight lingers on indiscreet lovers who lie in the deep shade. The rabbit's eyes seek out families playing and lounging along the edge of a pond. In the market, we amble through stalls of food from four planets and ten continents. Fatty strips of beef bubble over charcoal grills. Seafood simmers in oil. Squid steams in marrow vapour. Vegetables flash-frozen and shipped from Earth, like all the rest of it, glimmer wetly in clear plastic. The air is soupy, with the scent of cloves and Martian cumin and curry, making my mouth water. We choose two foils of Pacific sweet-fried cod, a plastic bowl with olives swimming in oil, European gruyere cheese wrapped in South American prosciutto and baked in a flaky pastry, and for dessert, a pint of jasmine ice cream and custard-stuffed dates. We lay the spread on the grass and eat while watching the children's kite bank in the sky. I like watching them, Lyria says about the children. I mutter something neutral. All they know is that their parents love them and they like kites. Do you like kites? Who doesn't like kites? I don't imagine the Sovereign likes kites. No? No. She takes on a pompous, hilarious, martian aureate accent. What are these bits of paper floating in yonder air? For what efficacious purpose do they exist? The betterment of man? I think not. Put the paper toward the troops, the string to the nurses, the children to the munitions plant. I smile, but with a half-dozen milligrams of zolodone in the veins, I can't find it in me to laugh. Children fly them on mercury, you know, from the parapets and rooftops, thousands of kites in midsummer. Have you seen it yourself? he asks. Just once, on a work trip for a former employer. That must have been beautiful, she says dreamily. I feel the sudden need to quash her enthusiasm. 
but they use glass string and angle them to cut each other's kites out of the sky till there's only one left. Why? What's more human than competition? Thousands of losers and one winner. That's so sad. I snort. Sounds like something vulgar would say. Vulgar? I realise my mistake. A friend of mine, I say instinctively. She snorts. You have friends beside me? The nerve? She smiles. Really? I'd love to meet her. Volga. That's an obsidian name, isn't it? She looks apprehensive at the idea. Lamentably, she is no longer with the living, I say. And as I say it, I feel like I'm not with the living. Not tethered to any of the people around me. All these lies to this girl. And for what? Money? My life? I settle back against a tree to close my eyes, hoping Lyria forgets the name and lets the subject die. How's the Telemanus family coping with the peace talks? I say to distract her. She's caught off guard. I've never asked about them before. They think Caraval is playing both sides, and that dancer can't control the Vox like he thinks he can. Interesting. Something's happened. She squints. Something bad. I'm not sure what, but he was on Earth. They've been sealed up in the Sovereign's wing for days. Hmm. I let the subject die, lest she become suspicious. Despite everything, it feels good to lie down and ease the ache between my shoulder blades. I've not been sleeping well in my apartment. I never do when it's a bright month. Up all bright night, pacing back and forth in front of the smoke glass, racing through burners and watching that gold bitch kill Trig again and again on my hollow cube. The two of them are doing their little dance across my grey matter, and the reaper watches, huddling with Holiday, as Trig dies and dies and dies for him, for their messiah. What would Trig think of how this has all turned out? Seven years ago, Luna was a war zone, choking on dust and debris, her sky groaning with bombers. But today, there are children laughing, children born who've never seen those bombers or the mechanised legions that once prowled the cityscape. The sky is warm and friendly, the air cool, the girl beside me breathing shallowly, and I feel, despite myself, at ease enough to drift to sleep. I've been thinking about what you told me, the girl says suddenly. I look over at her from under my shades. She's on her back, her eyes closed, shirt sleeves rolled up so the autumn sunlight can warm her dark forearms. Oh dear, whatever did I prattle on about now? I ask. About seeing myself before others see me. Oh, that. Forgive the proselytization. I was quite well sorted. You weren't that drunk, she says. Her eyes are open now and watching the kites. I've never really been alone before. I mean, I have my nephew, Liam, here, but he's so done up in the Citadel School that I hardly see him. And when I do, it hurts both of us. 
reminds us of who isn't here. I turn on my back and look over at her, propping myself up with an elbow. So, when you said I have to see myself before anyone else does, I look and I... well, I look and I don't see anything. This is hard for her, but she steals herself and goes forward. I find myself admiring the resoluteness in her face. The Zolodone must be fading on account of the food in my gut. In Lagolos, I was always minding my family, watching my little brothers so mum could sleep, stitching my big brothers' clothes together with my sister, patching boots. Then they sent me to school to learn how to work a silkery. Didn't much change after the rising. Kept on minding my job, my family, and when we got out to the camps, it was the same. Only my brothers left, and soon I was minding my father and my jobs and my sister's little ones. I wish she would stop telling me her story. I can tell she's kept this pain locked in a dark little chest inside her, just like I did. But I'm not the good person she is. I want her to be a little nasty creature. Want to see the ugliness I know everyone's got inside them, seething out of her eyes, spewing out of her mouth. But all that comes are little tears. We're not alike. I hoard my pain, because no one will understand it. She's just been looking for someone she can trust, someone to share it with. Not me, stupid girl. I don't deserve it. But she keeps going, and I feel heavier and blacker on the grass, wishing I took more Zolodone. When the red hand came, I thought I'd be braver. You know, get a gun like they do in the flicks. But everything felt so fast, and I felt so small. All I wanted to do was sink in the mud. She wipes her eyes and returns her arms to guard her chest. And you feel guilty for being here when they're not? I ask quietly. Yeah. I hesitate. Don't you think they're waiting for you in the Vale? I don't know. I hope so. And if they were watching you, would they be proud? She considers, looking up at me with glassy eyes. I hope so. We linger in the park till our ice cream has melted. I walk with her back to the tram depot so she can return to the citadel. We hug farewell, and as I planned, I take off my necklace and fix my face with compassion. But the words don't come as smoothly as intended. They stick in my throat. Philippe? I want you to have this. I push the locket into her hands. To wear it. It's always brought me strength. I can't take that. Your fiancé gave it to me so I'd remember wherever I went I had him with me. But I don't need a pendant for that. But you should be reminded that wherever you go, you're not alone. We're friends, aren't we? I think... You're my only friend. And what do friends do? Friends help each other. You carry my shadows. I carry yours for a spell. I take an imaginary necklace from her neck and put it on myself and buckle my knees like it's a great weight. She laughs. Maybe then we'll 
both be a bit lighter when next we meet? Do you think he's watching you? Your feet? Your husband? Not from the veil, of course. I know you lot don't believe, but from somewhere. She stares up at me from under her mop of red hair. No, I don't. I think you're wrong. I think he's watching you. And I think he's smiling and got a twinkle in his eye. She bundles her coat and heads to the depot, but turns around and runs back to me to give me a small kiss on the cheek. You're not alone either, Philippe. Sweet little rabbit, if only that were true. Chapter 32 Lysander, The Rending Sungrave, the greatest city of Io, surges up out of a white, frozen plain riven with fissures venting heat from a subterranean magma. We fly toward it looking out the forward windows of one of Dido's chimeras. Carved into Io's highest mountain, the 18-kilometre-high Bosule, Sungrave is a city of black stone obelisks and spires that rides the shoulders of the mountain range. Centuries ago, after the use of lovelock engines was deemed inefficient for Io, great mirrored lasers carved much of the mountain and part of its attending 540-kilometre-long range into a city of jagged towers. The builders followed the draconic predilections of their great progenitor, Akari, bringing creatures of childhood fables and ancient campfire stories to life in the stone. A necropolis of animalistic spires flecked with topaz, zircon, and myriad nesosilicate rocks looms above us, blocking the sky like the petrified remains of a great dragon host. They perch rank upon rank along the Bosule's crest, some of them encompassing whole peaks, legs straddling frosted valleys, their wide wings buttressing their great heights as they crane their stone necks up as if to drink the gases of marbled Jupiter. Duroglass windows glitter with internal light, like scales, and deeper in the heart of the mountain, where long ago red drill crews dug out the interior, lies the city itself. The city, like all the other mountain cities of Io, draws its energy from the tidal heating caused by the war of Jupiter's gravity on Io against the gravitational pull of Europa and Ganymede. The cities of Ra need no helium-3 to survive or power the pulse fields that shield them from radiation and Io's poisonous air. That is why they survived my grandmother's siege ten years ago. Their shields could resist bombardment longer than the helium-3 power generators of the sword armada's ships could keep them in orbit. Still, I expected Io to be a desolate backwater beset by rationing and scant starship flight, but the ship that captured the Archimedes was brand new. As are many of the trade and war vessels that flow into Sungrave's high stone docks like itinerant gnats. I look over at Cassius and feel his unease. How were those ships built? On what dock? New Olympic nights, new ships, a new generation. The rim has not been sleeping, and now, if they gain Seraphina's evidence, they will awaken. The scent of foreign incense fills my nose as the steam from the calderium walls filters soundlessly up from the hypercourse beneath the floor into the dim room. Two sets of hands knead the knots of tension from my shoulders and legs. The bruises inflicted by Pandora's men are now faded pools, the colour of sulphur on my shoulders and jaw. Somewhere in the steam, Cassius bathes alone in the solium. 
a large pool sunken into the rough cut stone. Since Dido's wafer, time has passed like a dream, my body flushed again with the life of water and food which Dido's men gave us on the flight to Sungrave. As a child, I surrendered to the disappointing reality that I would never see fabled Sungrave in person. It would be too great a risk to send the heir to a place where he might be captured and held for ransom. But I am heir no longer, and my eyes are greedy for all Sungrave's sights, to see her depths, her botanical complexes, her great mountain cisterns filled with European water. It is so different here from my home on Luna, not just the acrid air and the dim sky, but the unforgiving stone, the Spartan decor, empty rooms, no chairs, and an incredible adherence to cleanliness and martial virtue. Serafina gave me an all-too-brief tour after we arrived, and I was taken to my quarters, but in her presence I noted less of the city than I would like. My eyes would drift to the back of her proud neck as she led me through her childhood corridors, like she was a black hole, pulling all light, all attention into her, not just from me, but from the servants, from the guards. She is much loved. Little Hawk, they call her affectionately, barely twenty. Not a praetor or a legate, those titles must be earned, just a woman of worth and promise. Yet despite her mother's consolations, the guilt of her actions against her father seems to weigh heavily on her. She said little before depositing me in my quarters and disappearing before the door had closed. When the pinks have finished their massage, they scrape the oil and dead skin from my body with strigils, flattened bronze hooks which they put into a clay pot for some recycled use. Nothing here goes to waste. One offers me a pipe of dried tharsal root. Head already woozy from the steam, I decline the mild hallucinogen. Then the slaves ask me how I would like to take them. Their legs are eerily long from the low gravity of their home. Their skin, unblemished by the sun, is burnished and smooth and without hair. The hair of their heads is thick, the males silver, the females are black so deep it shines blue near the lamps. She's older than he is, with quartz eyes and the frailness of a small bird, but her mouth is truculent, her eyes not so empty as they should be. They startle me when they meet mine, and the spell, the warmth, and their hands cast is broken. She sees me. A deep revulsion, physical and intellectual, twists the lust into a knotted, blackened thing. I can't look at them as my ancestors did, as consumable treats. One could argue for the necessary industry of reds, or the cult-like military religion instilled in greys, or the efficiency and neutered emotions in coppers, but this, pinks were not needed to make my grandmother's world function. They were built for lechery, subjected to centuries of systematic breeding, abuse, psychological and sexual domination. Chemically neutered and twisted inside so that their suicide rate is eleven times higher than that of any other colour. Gold is to blame for that. Gold lost its way. And now this pink woman looks at me with eyes too ancient for her face. What's your name? I ask her. This one's name is Auri, she says. I gently take the pink's hand from my thigh. That will be enough, Auri. The male pink looks awash with shame, thinking himself not beautiful enough but in the woman I see a small tell, a spasm of relief at the corners of her eyes. Then she feigns shame like the other one. Strange. We shouldn't insult them, Cassius says from the pool. Come, join me. There's enough room for the two of you. The pinks rise to obey. Like the brother's wrath, are we now, I ask. He sighs and motions for the pinks to leave. They do. My eyes follow Aure out the door. I ponder her relief. When they've left, Cassius casually taps his ear to show that we're no doubt being listened to. Of course I know that. 
Does he forget where I grew up? I think we deserve a little fun, Caster. Water torture, enduring that family squabbling, the beatings, he laughs. Besides, they're slaves, and you're not their saviour, romantic as you find the notion to be. You know, not everything you say to me has to be a lesson, I say. If you didn't need them, I wouldn't teach them. Anyway, looks like Pytha owes me fifty credits. He sighs contentedly to himself and leans his broad shoulders back in the bath. What for, I ask, unable to not take the bait? Friendly wager, she couldn't possibly believe you were still a virgin. What? A virgin. It's when a man or woman has not... I hardly think that's any of your concern. I'm not as it is. He closes his eyes against the steam. Then why turn them away? You sure it's not because you're afraid she's watching? Of course not, I say sharply. Is Seraphina watching? He chuckles. See? Pent up sexual aggression. Just because I believe in actual romance instead of plundering the virtue from merchants' daughters and buggering everything that moves like a gory damn gall does not mean that I should be shamed. Like a gory damn gall? My good man, you curse like you're ninety. And you're a hypocritical fornicator. Gods, you really haven't been laid, brother. Will you stop talking? I throw one of the strigils at him. He ducks into the water before pulling himself out to join me on the towel bench. He nudges me with his shoulder after a spell to lighten the mood. Difficult, considering we both know they're analysing us now, attempting to peel back our story to see if we are spies. Neither one of us is convinced the brotherly spat is just for show, though that might be our excuse. Seraphina told me Pytha was alive, I say, trying to change the subject. My guards said the same to me, but don't get too comfortable. We're not guests here. When the coup is over, our heads will likely roll. You don't think it will succeed? Tell me you didn't see the doubt in the daughter. I nod. I didn't think that was the reason for it. He laughs. Don't be so easily impressed by a rogue century of peerless. Dido's sharp, but she's Venusian. The Rim won't forget that. The minor lords of Io will be coming from all over the moon, loyal to Romulus. And if they don't finish her off, the lords of Europa and Ganymede, likely even Callisto, will do it. Not to mention the Far Rim. They like their Romulus out there. And what about their evidence? Did you see her bring back anything? No. Well then, either she hid it well or it was a bluff. I know without him saying it that he blames me for our current predicament, but it was his decision to investigate the Vindabona, his decision to take away everything I had as a boy and then act like he was my saviour. He lives in a fiction, espousing a moral code to justify killing his sovereign, turning his back on our society, but I know why he really did it. Because she let the jackal kill his family. The sanctimonious morality came long afterwards. This noble morning night is built on a foundation of self-interest, and now, because he trusts no golds, he decides we will anger our hosts in hopes they will want our services, when instead he should swallow his pride and see if their hospitality is genuine as I do. He has little faith in our colour. I am losing all mine in him. I feel a despicable little creature, thinking all this of Cassius. Whatever his motives, I know his love for me is genuine. The nights of listening to music in the rec room of the Archimedes as he falls asleep holding his drink can't be washed away. Neither can the protective warmth I felt all those times when Pytha and I helped him back to his bunk when he was so drunk he could not even stand, but he could murmur Virginia's name. I miss home, I say in an attempt to find some common ground to ease the tension that's grown between us these last months, before the Vindabona even. Mars, he asks, and I know he means Luna. And I do miss that place, the libraries, the Esquiline Gardens, the warmth of Arja, the approval of my grandmother, stark and sparse though it was, the love of my parents. 
But most of all, I miss sitting in the sun, eyes closed, listening to the packle bell in the trees. That was peace for me. That is where I feel safe. But I was thinking of Arky. I've never had to miss her before. Two days on Ceres, three on Lacrimosa. She's a good ship, he says. I'd give two years' haul to be underway in the wreck room with a tumbler of whiskey right now and a good concerto on the hollow. Playing chess? Karachi, he corrects. We played chess all last year. More like I taught you to play all last year. He rolls his eyes. He wins five in a row and suddenly he's a rustu in the flesh. It was seven, my good man, but I'll relent and let you play Karachi even though it's a game entirely devoid of reason and mathematical skill. It's called reading people, Caster. Intuition. I make a face. My only condition is we listen to Vivaldi and not Wagner. My good man, are you trying to kill me? You know I abhor Vivaldi, he laughs. Not that it matters. Won't be able to hear a note over the sound of Pytha whining about immersion games or how it's not her turn to cook. We grin at each other, indulging the fantasy that once seemed so commonplace, but now so nostalgic and impossible. Oh, don't look so maudlin, he says. We'll return to the Arky with Pyther and Surly Toe. We'll be sharing a whiskey and burning black matter once this is sorted. We both know it is a promise he cannot keep. I see by the melancholy look in his eyes that we are united in understanding that something between us is breaking, and neither one of us knows how to stop it. Even if we leave Io behind, we can never go back to the way things were, to the private world we shared. I have outgrown it. I have even outgrown him. Chapter 33. Lysander. Alien. I'm deposited in my room to change for dinner with the Ra family. The room, like all Ionian rooms, was made with attention to geometrical energy. It is perfectly square, without frivolous comfort and with no furniture except for a thin sleeping mat on a slightly raised platform. A small window looks out onto the heavy darkness of a night nearly a billion kilometres from the sun. I doff my robe and stand naked before the window, pressing my nose to it, appreciating the chill of the rock on my bare skin, and imagine I am floating in the cool waves of Lake Selene. I wonder if the reaper's child now climbs the stone stairs there from the shore to Selene Manor and his waiting parents. Do they warm themselves by the fire pit, sleep in the room I slept in when I was a boy, where all lunars have slept since the children of Selenius? A deep anger fills me, but I push it into the void. All is silent in the room. Not the busy silence of space, where air purifiers hum and engines tremble through the metal. It is the silence of stone and the silence of darkness that stretches into an unseen, unending frozen landscape, a cavernous, alien silence. These crew members on the Vindabona will be dead by now. It's the only mercy I know to hope for. How long did they last? Two lonely lights glide across the plain in the distance, too low to be aircraft. Hover bikes? Where are those two souls going? What errand do they attend? Are they lovers, friends? Then a score of lights burns out of the blackness behind them, chasing them across the expanse. I lean forward in excitement as bright orange tongues of flame lick out from the pursuers, and the two leading lights vanish in blossoms of white fire. Two more fall to the coup. It seems it is not as peaceful as Dido would like us to believe. Cassius is right, yet again. All across the city men will be dying. Silent squads will arrest loyal members of Romulus's faction. The cells will fill. Guns may rattle. Razors drip with blood. All balanced and gambled on the promise of the evidence Seraphina brought back. I know coups, and am little impressed by them. 
they're more common than weddings in my family. These rim rustics hold their noses at golds of the interior, at my family and the bitch on Luna, but they're little better. Then I remember Serafina, how she stood before her father and the sadness I saw upon her face when she realized his intent. Torn between the love of her people and mother and the love of her father, what choice would I make? I see my own father in my mind's eye and try again in vain to summon my mother. I reach for her, but my fingers rake nothing but shadow, and I feel in no small way that her absence is my fault. I did not study her enough, did not love her enough, and so she will never hold me in her arms, never kiss me upon the brow, as if she never existed. My thoughts are interrupted when a jammer activates with a static pop behind me. I swing around to see a pair of amber eyes staring at me from the shadows of the sitting room. Jove in hell! I flick on the glow lights to reveal a woman sitting on my sleeping mat. She watches intently as I scramble to put my robe back on. Seraphina? She's at home now, her prisoner jumpsuit gone, and wears the garb of the Io. A grey wool cloak held together with a charcoal sash. She peers up at me, amused. Do all Martians have such dreadful hearing? Her eyes rove as I pull tight my robe. She wears rubber-soled slippers and two heavy rings. On her left middle finger, a dragon eating a lightning bolt. On her right, a simple Iron Institute ring of House Diana's stag's antlers. I should have guessed she'd be a hunter. Are all Moonies as rude as you? I look at the door and know it made no sound, and more impressively, neither did she. Must have come through the walls, then. A secret door. Are you lost? She frowns. Lost? Well, you do seem to be in my room. Your room? Her sudden laugh is surprisingly girlish. Then the drawl comes back. You are in my city, Gaja, on my moon. There are cameras in the stone. What does it matter that I watch you through the camera or here? This is more honest, no? Well, it is entirely eerie either way, I say with a smile. Most inhospitable. If I remember correctly, you are a watcher too. I saw you looking at me on the table. You were injured, I say. I was checking your tits, your wound, the one on your breasts, stomach. You're clearly still insensate. Took a knock on the head, turned a bit mad. Or do your kind all talk like gutterborns? I have manners, she says with a smile. The dust is a hard teacher. She hurls a package at my face as she stands. I barely catch it. Clothing. Yours was soiled from the journey. Charitable of you. I open the package to don the clothes. Our pilot, I say. You said she's alive and well. I want to see her. No. No negotiation. Very well. I thumb the clothing she brought. She doesn't turn away or leave. Do you mind? Mind? Yes, I'd like to change now. She cocks her head in challenge. I've seen naked men before. Unlike her own, mine was a solitary upbringing. A sovereign is an island, my grandmother would say. It's just carbon. Are you ashamed of your body, she asks, or perhaps you're embarrassed you do not know how to use it. So that's why you sent the pinks, so you could watch. I find myself unusually pleased by the revelation. Why so curious? Her brow wrinkles. Were you injured? Is that why you turned them away? Does your manhood not work? That is absolutely none of your concern. Thank you for your interest, however. It works just fine. I'm sorry, she says. I did not mean to offend. Well, you're quite accomplished at it. Compliments to whoever taught you. Would you be at ease if I were naked again, too? Even under the folds of her loose tunic, I see the subtle rise of her breasts, the length of her muscled legs, and... I cough and shake my head. She waits patiently till I have a small, annoying epiphany. 
Do you always toy with your guests? Sometimes, she smirks. You do look a little like a toy, all that hair and those dandy little limbs. Dandy? Dandy. And your nose has only been broken recently. Are your eyes real? She leans in. You didn't have them carved like a corish pixie, did you? I don't dignify the question with an answer. You're not going to leave, are you? Why would I? Everyone is busy preparing for supper. I'm bored. You're entertaining. Very well, then. I drop my robe to the floor, intending to embarrass her. She doesn't look away. She scrutinises. You have more scars than most pixies, she says after a moment. Because I'm not a pixie. She surprises me with a laugh and counts my scars till she finds one curious. It's a long, thin scar like a necklace around my neck. Who gave you this one? Her pale fingers brush against the scar, and impossibly I hear the howling of the wind outside my window, and in the darkness there and in my mind he lurks, the reaper's beast, the demon of my childhood. Instinctively I put my robe back on and sit on the ground. She looks suddenly apologetic. A man gave it to me when I was young, I say, chastising myself for losing control of the memory. Some demons never leave. Grandmother wanted to laser the scar off. I convinced her to let me keep it. She joins me on the floor. A lover? No. Did you kill him for it, for hurting you? I shake my head. Why not? Like I said, I was young, he was not. Did you find him and kill him later? You're a man now. No. Why not? If he hurt you and remains alive, then he is your master. That is why I slayed the obsidian war chief who beat me on the Vindabona. It's in the past. The past doesn't define me. I repeat Cassius's words like they were my own. How many times did he tell me this? How many times have I failed to believe him? Stupid Gaja. She taps my forehead. Nothing is past. Everything that was, is. That scar is the story of your subjugation. Slay the man who gave you that, and it becomes the story of your liberation. Did your father teach you that? I say, angry that she would preach to me. Her eyes turn cold and flinty, sensing the accusation. I am suddenly achingly aware of the difference between us. She might be the child of a sovereign like me, but she is a soldier. She was raised in gladiatorial academies amongst sinewy killers on a moon that breaks down your DNA if you step outside without at least three centimetres of high-grade radiation shielding. She has a scar from the I.O. Institute. There is none more brutal. The students don't kill as much as Martians or rape as much as Venusians, but the games can last for years in temperatures that freeze your blood before it drips from a wound. What have I done but read and run all my life? I suddenly feel indicted by my own banter, like I'm a dog barking at a wolf who knows very well that I'm not from the wild, but lets me bark because it entertains. Apologies, I say carefully. Forgiven, she replies. Yes, my father taught me that scars are why our ancestors were able to shape the worlds. As golds, we were born as perfect as man can be. It is our duty to embrace the scars our choices give us, to embrace and remember our mistakes, else we live believing our own myth. She smiles to herself. He says a man who believes his own myth is like a drunk thinking he can dance barefoot on a razor's edge. The smile disappears as she perhaps remembers her father's face when he was led away by her brother and I see clear as day the true war that rages inside the girl. It softens me to her, because it feels a reflection of the same war inside of me. I fight back the urge to touch her hand. You think me wicked, she says quietly, her eyes fixed on the window, betraying my own father. Why does she care? Families are complicated. 
Yes, they are. A silence grows between us, and in it we share an understanding that goes beyond words. You are strange, he says finally. Your friend is a killer, but you... you are gentle. I'm not gentle. I'm suddenly conscious of how close she is, how aware of her body I am. The space between us vibrates and trembles with something raw, newly woken and terrifying to me. I feel the heat in her breath, the cold petals of her pale lips, and the lonely fire in her dark eyes that would pull me into her and consume me. I would let it, and that frightens me more than her family, more even than the death that awaits me if she learns my family name. She feels the same tension between us and breaks it by turning away. Marius says you are spies, that it was not by chance that you found me. You don't seem to put much trust in what Marius thinks. He is a reptile, but not a fool. I care more about what you think, she considers. Anything gentle that lives long hides its stinger well. She turns to the wall to make her exit. Why did you take my razor, I say, feeling a sudden flash of anger at her. All those people died because I couldn't get them out. I know, she says quietly, but that is the horror the slave king has made. That's not good enough. I did it for the greater good. You will understand. Your mother doesn't know you're here, does she? I ask her, nodding to the jammer on her belt. Why did you really come? She hesitates as if she doesn't even know. You saved my life. I wanted to see if yours was worth saving. And? I've not decided. She looks at me with strange pity. You play with things you don't understand. Your mother made me a guest. I'm protected by old law. My mother is not my father, she pauses. Give her what she wants, for your own sake. What does she want, I ask. But the wall has already parted, and Seraphina has slipped into its shadows. Cassius was right. We are not guests here. We are prey. Chapter 34 Darrow Apollonius Alvaliae Wrath I finished my morning laps in the pool on the fourth deck of the Nessus in the early morning, the swimming as part of the physical therapy to recover from the razor through the arm I suffered in the fight with the Republic wardens. My body is a history of aches and pains. Not even in my mid-thirties, I've already had three cartilage replacement surgeries for my knees alone. The swimming makes the arm ache like hell, but also helps displace the feeling of claustrophobia that has crept in during our second week in deep space in our push toward society territory. That and razor training with Alexander help keep my mind from my family. After dressing in my stateroom, I find Severo in his quarters. He's lying on his bed watching a video of Electra when she was a baby. The little girl floats in the air above him, silent and dour, even as an infant, as Victra dresses her in a high-collared vest. Sophocles's tail swishes in the air, blocking the camera's view. I hear Kavak's laugh in the background. It's been two weeks without communication to the outside world. It's eating at several. You still not out of bed? I ask. Lazy bastard. He squints over at me, eyes still swollen with sleep. What's the rush? Apollonius. We agreed to talk to him this morning. Oh, that. He looks one last time at his daughter and turns off the holopad. 
Sure we can't keep him on ice a few weeks longer? I wish. We'll be in gold territory in five days. Time to see if he's on board. And if he's not, then you get to space him, and we burn for Mercury. Pebble finds us in the hall on our way to the chute down to the fourth deck. She looks tense. We have a problem. We find Colloway hovering over a hollow display in the sensor room on the second deck. Clown stands behind him with his arms crossed, foot nervously tapping. What's going on? I ask. Tell him what you told me, Pebble says. Colloway rubs his temples. For as much sleep as the man gets lazing around on the recreation room's couch and playing immersion games, he looks exhausted. So... You know this ship has an internal monitoring system that detects our thermal signatures? Sure. He brings up the blueprint of the ship. Human-shaped figures glow red amongst the decks. I see Winkle's cool signature on the bridge, Thraxa's hot signature as she trains endlessly in the gymnasium. Severo chuckles and points to two thermal signatures side by side in one of the staterooms, Looks like someone's going to Bone City. Who is that? There's twenty-four of us, Colloway continues, counting off the figures one by one. Many are still in their bunks. Ten golds in the cells. Then what's the problem? Severa asks. We got shit to do. Last night I couldn't sleep. You mean you were perving on people? So I sinked into the ship and I saw this. He rewinds the blueprint to the middle of the night. Count them. There's twenty-five. Several squints. Shit! How did you just notice this? There's no reason for me to sink when we're on autopilot. It's a waste of my time, Colloway says in annoyance. It looks like they're masking their signature, staying near the engines or wearing a thermal blanket. They could have been on the ship before it was stolen, Pebble says. Could be a dock worker, or one of Quick's servants. If it's a docker, then they could sabotage your life support systems or melt down the helium core, Colloway says. That would be, and I say this as understatement, cataclysmic. Gory damn grandma in the comm center would be as dangerous as a stained, Clown says. If they transmit on our comms, the whole gory system will know where we are. Society and Republic. We're slagged. They'll find us, obliterate us, and our molecules will drift through space for ten million years. I turn to Clan. You done? Not really. You're done. Get Alexander and Thraxa and meet me in the armory. Ten minutes later, Clown, Alexander, Thraxa, Servo and I shoulder our multi-rifles. I toss them green clips of ammunition. Spider only, I say. I want the stowaway alive. By eliminating the known thermal signatures one at a time, Colloway manages to track the signature of the intruder back from the galley to the engine room. The open room spans all four decks at the back of the ship. Metal walkways switch back down from the top and extend out amongst the machinery. The lights won't turn on.
Thrax and Clown guard the bottom exit, while the rest of us come down from the top, searching level by level. Our helmet flood lamps chase the shadows away as we comb through the machinery. Several signals me as he kneels. He shows me a wrapper for a Venusian noodle bowl. There's more litter in an alcove on the third level, along with a hollow visor and a bundle of blankets. There's a patter of feet on the level below. Rat, Severo says with a grin. Go, I say. Severo and Alexander jump off the side of the metal walkway and land on the one below. There's a thump and a laugh. Darrow, you better come down here, Severo calls up. It's definitely a rat, a bloody damn big one with freckles, Alexander adds. I take the stairs and find Alexander and Severo standing over a small woman who sits on her haunches. Her face is illuminated by their flood lamps. Rona, I sputter. My niece grins up at me. Sorry, uncle. Got lost on the way to the shuttle. Is this new Sparta? What the hell are you doing here? Stowing away, she says. Can I stand or are you going to shoot me? She looks in annoyance at Alexander's rifle. Unlike Severo, he still points it at her. She stands. Severo chuckles. Got some big iron balls on you, don't you? That's the general idea. I gave you an order, I say, trying to calm myself down as Thraxa joins us. Yeah, you can put me in the brig if you want, but I think the cells are all filled up. Or you can let me do my job. If Sir Pukalot here can have your back, so can I. Alexander glowers in embarrassment. By my count, we're two weeks in. No way to turn back now, Uncle. You're stuck with me. She's right. You think this is about me? I ask. You just broke your father's heart. Her jaw tightens. It's my life. Now, can I join the rest of the crew and get to... Alexander, shoot the dumbass, Severo says. Alexander grins. With pleasure. Her eyes widen. No, not him. Anyone but... Alexander grins and fires his spider poison round into her thigh. She spins down, grunting in pain. Her fingers curl as the paralytic spreads. Ouch! Leave her, Severo says, when Thraxa tries to pick her up. You'll be able to move by tonight, shithead. Clean up your filth and find a bunk. Tomorrow you scrub the latrines in every bathroom, starting with mine. Real shame for you, because curry is on the menu tonight. He bends down. You sad because you ain't with a Drachenjäger squad? A mechman? Please. We eat those little bitches for breakfast. You're lucky to be in our glorious presence. He leans in even closer. You want respect? Earn it. The nerve of her, I mutter as we head out into the hallway. At least she didn't come through the viewport. Poor Kieran. You should have seen him ask me to leave her behind. Was a bit harsh, don't you think? Thraxa says, catching up to us. Severo grins. 
Listen, Thraxa, kids are like dogs. Some whimper, some bark, some growl. You just gotta find the right language and then speak it back at them. Alexander smirks. You can speak to dogs. I talk to you, don't I? Min Min lounges in the brig guard post, forward of the cell block, with her rifle leaning against the wall, when Severo and I arrive to talk with Apollonius. Her bandy metal legs are up on the console, a coffee cup balanced precariously on her hydraulic joint as she watches a hollow comedy about a red moving in with a violet and grey in Hyperion City. Hijinks ensue. She scratches the coarse whiskers on her neck and looks back at us. Lo, bosses. How are the little devils today? I ask. Quiet as mice. Min Min keeps one eye on the projection and laughs as the red tries to reach the top cabinet in their apartment's kitchen to get the whiskey the others hid from him. That's some racist shit, she says. We're not all alcoholics. The smell of whiskey wafts up from her coffee. Tunglis is on his conjugal visit again. I look down the hall to see the old obsidian sitting cross-legged, looking into one of the cells. How many is that? Comes every day. Our collection of escaped prisoners is a motley assortment of devils. Half our men and women the howlers laboured to capture personally over the last ten years. All ten are Venusian. It seems a blasphemy that we've been the ones to free them. I feel the silent anger in the howlers at mess, in the ship's gymnasium, even when they pass in the hall. Not anger toward me or our mission, but as though this is some grand joke that existence plays on us. We circle around again to see the same faces, the same ships, the same battles. Again and again. Around and around. It's the very reason I need to kill the man at the axis of the cycle, around which this all spins. Tungless sits on the floor of the hall, the warden's dog asleep in his lap, watching Apollonius play his phantom violin through the one-way glass. The old obsidian has cut his hair short and trimmed his beard to a fine goatee. He looks an altogether different man, sophisticated, even in the military fatigues. His dog wakes and growls as we approach, quieting only when Tungless strokes him behind the ears. Apollonius is naked in the dim light of his cell, his clothing folded neatly on the floor. It disturbs me, watching him rocking there, playing his phantom instrument, his golden hair pouring down his shoulders, eyes closed, face a monk-like mask of concentration. A bandage is affixed to his head over a shaved patch from Winkle's surgery. I want him dead. Gone from the worlds. He's taken two people I love and tormented another as a boy. The thought of setting him loose again makes me sick. Do you fancy the evil violinist, Tungless? Severo asks. The obsidian looks up at us with his dark eyes and shakes his head. He makes a motion of the violin and points to one of the tattoos on his arm of an old man with a long beard 
and a harp in his hand. It is the Norse god of music, Bragi. Is he that good? I ask. Tongueless nods. He taps his ear and then his heart, as if to say he wishes he could hear him play again. Not happening, Severo says. Tongueless nods, accepting that, and stands to leave us alone with Apollonius. I watch him go and wonder what he'd say had he a tongue. He's unique amongst the obsidians I've met. The way he moves is elegant, cultured, like he's accustomed to finer things. He's quickly become a new favourite in my pack, owing to his craft in the kitchen. Men don't ask questions if you feed them well, but I'm beginning to suspect there's more to the story about how he ended up in an Omega cell than simply getting on the wrong side of the warden's temper. Why does he always have to get naked every time? Several mutters, drawing me back to Apollonius. Go on, let's get it over with. I deactivate the opacity on Apollonius's side of the glass so that he can see us in the dimly lit hall. He's nearing the end of his song, rocking and thrashing out a crescendo, then a slow, silent denouement. And when he has finished, he leans back to look at us, an amused smile on his lips. Did you like my sonata? he asks, not waiting for us to answer. Much approbation is granted Paganini, as the great violin virtuoso of the pentadactyl period. Well before the coming of Verenda, of course. But for sheer Orphean transcendental rigour, I've long maintained a true master must attempt Ernst's variations on the last rose of summer. The fingered harmonics and left-hand pizzicato are facile enough, but the arpeggios are a Herculean labour. I don't know what any of that means, Severo says. A pity for you to have such narrow concerns. You're dying to tell us when you first played it, aren't you? I know you folks can't resist a little brag, Severo mutters. Well, go on. Impress us, Roth. I mastered it when I was twelve. Twelve? No. Severo claps his hands. What genius! Reap! Did you know that we had a psychotic virtuoso aboard? I had no idea. The mastery of music is its own reward, Apollonius says, the process by which one's heart is entwined with masters of old. You do not know the toil, nor could you suffer it, and so you will never know the reward of understanding it. He leans forward with slit eyes. But by all means, dismiss it if you cannot comprehend. Art survived the Mongols. I wager it will survive you. You're hardly a patron of the arts, from what I've heard, I say. You broke Tactus's violin when he was a child. Not very inclusive of you. So full of nuance, families. Would I understand your relationship with your brother? He gently plucks out several strands of hair and uses them to tie the wild of his mane into a ponytail. Have you pulled me from my cage just to put me in another? 
seems a cruel irony for a man who prides himself on breaking chains. I hardly think your suite on Deepgrave was a cage, I say. Did well for yourself. Not so stark as your prison was, I admit. The jackal was a bizarre creature, pregnant with pain, wasn't he? Much like his sister. You're lucky we haven't spaced you after what you've done, Severo sneers. But talk about Virginia again. Go on. We'll see how good your violin sounds in vacuum. Apollonius sighs. My good man, enemies we may be, but let us not pretend we are bands of troglodytes warring over fire. We are sophisticated creatures who met in conflict under the agreed-upon terms of total war. You're not sophisticated. You're a monster wearing a man-suit, Severo says. You boiled men alive. My brother boiled men alive. I am a warrior, not a torturer. Your brother, you, what's the difference? Severo looks at Apollonius and reduces him to a gestalt of all the men who have hurt him over the years. He has suffered the likes of Apollonius his entire life. He forgave Cassius for me, once, because he knew the hope of our rebellion balanced on the fragile notion that a man could change— I suspect he's worried that I believe the same for the man before us. The goblin stands close to me now, as if to protect me from the prisoner, despite the sheet of duroglass. But the deep-spine truth is that he's really trying to protect me from myself. That's why he came. You need not worry. I will never trust this man. Cassius was a man who lived for an ideal— Apollonius is too bright, too narcissistic to live for anything but himself. But even that can be useful. Apollonius sighs. Please don't insult me by claiming you still labor under the notion that you alone in history are an innocent army. War summons the demons from angels. I've seen gold scalps hanging from obsidian battle armor, city blocks naught but powder and meat. Or would you have me forget the atrocities you wrought on Luna, on Earth and Mars? Hypocrisy is not becoming of either master or hound, especially ones who ally themselves with obsidians. The men who did that were punished, I say knowing that it isn't true. It was two whole tribes that sacked Luna after Octavius' death and ravaged its citizens, low and high colour alike. Too many to prosecute without losing Safi. Compromises were made. Always compromises. I was an agent of war, like you. Apollonius continues. We played the same game. I lost. I was caught punished, and I used the devices nature and nurture provided me to lessen the blunt impact of incarceration. The great hilarity is that, in many ways, I owe you a debt of thanks. Severo grunts at that. Solitude can be the best society. You see, 
I encountered a perilous choice when I faced your tribunal and received the terms of my sentence, a choice that helped me define myself. After life imprisonment was handed down with clean white gloves, a syringe was left for me in my cell, by which I was to erase myself from existence. Left by you, Severo? No matter. The more cowardly examples of my kind did choose this expedient death, finding the shame of losing an empire more than their hearts could bear. Your late friend Fabii, for example. They caved to their own despair. Do any now sing their songs? Does anyone speak their glory? He lets the silence answer. I knew it was my duty to my own legend to survive this trial, but I was still crippled by my own devices. Imagine me as a great, fully-rigged man of war, four masts, great bulwarks of oak, and five-score cannon. All my life I have sailed smooth seas and waters that parted for me by virtue of my own splendour, never tested, never riled. A tragic existence, if ever there was one. But at long last, a storm, and when I met it, I found my hull rotten. My planks leaking brine, my cannon brittle, powder wet. I foundered upon the storm, upon you, Darrow of Lycos. He sighs. And it was my own fault. I wore between wanting to punch him in the mouth and surrendering into my curiosity by letting him continue. He's a strange man with a seductive presence. Even as an enemy, his flamboyance fascinated me. Purple capes in battle, a horned minotaur helmet, trumpets blaring to signal his advance, as if welcoming all challengers. Even broadcast opera as his men bombarded cities. After so much isolation, he's delighting in imposing his narrative upon us. My peril is thus. I am, and always have been, a man of great tastes. In a world replete with temptation, I found my spirit wayward and easy to distract. The idea of prison, that naked metal world, crushed me. The first year I was tormented, but then I remembered the voice of a fallen angel. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. I sought to make the deep not just my heaven, but my womb of rebirth. I dissected the underlying mistakes which led to my incarceration, and set upon an internal odyssey to remake myself. But, and you would know this, Reaper, long is the road up out of hell. I made arrangements for supplies. I toiled twenty hours a day. I reread the books of youth with the gravity of age. I perfected my body, my mind. Planks were replaced. 
new banks of cannon wrought in the fires of solitude, all for the next storm. Now I see it is upon me, and I sail before you the paragon of Apollonius au Valiae Wrath, and I ask one question. For what purpose have you pulled me from the deep? Bloody hell! Did you memorize that? Several mutters. The man before me is not the man I saw before the tribunal all those years ago. His vanity has remained, but now it is a hardened, sharpened sort. Once he was a vulture of the society, instigating duels for fun, throwing orgies that would last for days. He and Carnaso Bologna were even long-time drinking companions. He'd been looking for a reason to exist, to escape the nihilism of tedium. Then war came. You say you have dissected your mistakes, I say. Let's put that to the test. I welcome all tests. Gory hell, do you ever shut up? Severo asks. Just let us get a verb in. Apollonius folds his hands in his lap, waiting patiently. Tell me, if you can, how you found yourself in deep grave. I say. The man who thought himself a king discovered he was but a pawn. I angered the wrong man. Magnus Augrimus, the Ash Lord. But you know that, don't you? I was curious if you did. He smiles to himself. I was the first Martian to fire at Lilith Alfaran's ship over Luna, you know. I helped save Luna from nuclear holocaust, and I brought him ships, legions, and, along with the other great Martian houses, political capital to offset House Saud on Venus. But he resented me because I would not bend the knee like those pixie Carthii. I was his ally, not his servant. I never saw the knife coming. When he proposed a mission to cut off the head of the Rising, I volunteered eagerly. He let me lead a division of my knights, one century of ten that were to penetrate the citadel and kill you and your families. With the Carthii, we were to be a thousand peerless scarred. What a sight it would have been! Not had such a pure force been assembled for a single mission since the Battle of Zephyria, it was to be a coordinated attack. My sentry infiltrated Luna, but it wasn't until we were pressing through the citadel that I realized we were alone. No other sentry was on the grounds, let alone the moon. We'd been played as fools by the Ash Lord, by the Carthii. Our support did not answer on the comms, but the Ash Lord's voice did speak. It was a pre-recorded message. He pauses, modulates his voice to a baritone rumble. The seed of Valiai Wrath will die with you and your brother. You will be forgotten, lost to the stars. Farewell, Minotaur. I knew I was to die so I made the effort to do so in glory by taking your head. I failed. 
Apollonius shrugs. But you knew much of this. You interrogated me, my men. So, again, I ask, why liberate me? Is it not obvious by now to your supreme intellect? I ask. There is only one thing you and I share, a common devil. I've pulled you from your prison to offer you the most precious thing I can offer a man like you. Revenge. Revenge? Do tell. Like you, I seek the head of the Ashlord. The difficulty is parting it from his body. In that, I require your assistance. He's suspicious. I have no army, no weapons, nothing left to give but blood and bone. How can I benefit you, Darrow? It's not what you have. It was what was stolen from you. My smile is cold and hard. Part of what I told you in the cell was true. The Ashlord did not kill your brother. Tharsis is alive. Apollonius is stunned. How? You know the answer. You've wondered if it was possible. Tharsis sold your life for your title of paterfamilias of House Valiai Rath. For your monies, your men, your ships. I see. The charm of the man vanishes. If I agree to help you, what trust can there be between devils? This isn't about trust. It's about leverage. That bandage on the back of your head is from a particular procedure involving a cranial drill. There's a quarter ounce of high-grade explosive embedded in your grey matter, as well as a neural chip to stimulate your ocular nerve. I activate the detonator timer on my datapad. Numerals appear on my datapad, but also in Apollonius's vision, via Winkle's biomod. A ten, then a nine, then an eight. You have seven seconds to give me an answer, yes or no. Six, several grins. Four, Apollonius stares blankly. Two, I back away from the glass. Very well. Apollonius smiles though his anger has not abated. I accept your proposal, but I have demands. Thirty minutes later, we watch Apollonius devour a two-kilogram steak in the Nessus's officer's dining room with the patience and manners of a well-bred crocodile. Each bite-sized piece is dipped into the jus and chewed laboriously before being washed down with a thick Bordeaux from our stores. When he is finished, he leaves several ounces of the steak unattended, as well as a thumb of the red wine, and as only a spoonful of the iced lemon dessert that he requested made for him by Tongless. He leans back in his chair and blesses my lieutenants with an expansive smile as Alexander takes his plate away. Apollonius levels his gaze at Alexander. You're a pure-blood-looking boy. What is your name? Alexander. Apollonius eyes him with interest, and then gestures to Severo and Colloway. 
Does it not rankle you to serve such genetic inferiors, Alexander? I've now seen sharks fly and lions bark. Alexander laughs. A lecture over genes from a valley I wrath? He leans forward, Apollonius's plate still in his hands. It would have been a severe pleasure to see my grandfather educate you on the merit of your genes. And whom do you call kin, Alexander? Apollonius asks. Lorn Arcus. Well now, a griffin in the flesh. Apollonius is impressed. Blood of the conquerors still in your veins makes you an endangered species. You must have been there when my baby brother was gutted by your grandfather on Europa. You would have been in the seed of youth. Eight? Nine? Tell me, did the violence excite you? It educated me on how to kill Valiai Wrath. In that, it proved most satisfactory. One could say we have a blood feud between us, young man. Please, Alexander says with another laugh. I wouldn't give your lowly house the dignity of my attention. The insult finds its mark. Severo shoes him out of the room with a fraternal slap on the backside. Apollonius, I say quietly, if you insist on provoking my men, we will have a problem. Provocation is the nature of predators like us, Darrow. He looks around. But of course, where are my manners? Apologies for offending you. He waves his hand to the walls. This is not your moonbreaker, nor a dreadnought or a destroyer. The officer's mess is much too small. A torch ship, perhaps? Smaller? is a sharp one. It's a frigate, Zephos class. So they're finely deployed. What a curious ship for a warlord. And custom tables. What a curious exodus from Deepgrave. If one didn't know better, a sagacious intellect might suspect that something is foul in the state of the Republic. This is a black ops mission, I say. The less he knows, the better. The Morning Star is a little less than discreet. Indeed, he says. Now, I think it is time you tell me about my brother and what has befallen my house in my absence. Severo smiles. I'm going to enjoy this. Your house is a shadow, I say. Your brother may have bought his life, but it was at a steep price. He is a political puppet. Your destroyers and torchships have been given to your enemies, the Carthii of Venus. Your coffers have been drained into the Ashlord's own pockets. Many of your legions have been disbanded, the men conscripted to serve the Ashlord. Your house is small yet again. Everything you built on the profit of war is gone. Except my name. A great darkness has built in his eyes. Give it a year, Severo says. Man, forget. How do you know all this? Apollonius asks skeptically. One of your family lawyers defected several years ago. And where is he now? Slipped in the shower, Severo says. 
Our people found him in thirty-four pieces. Atlantia likes her assassins to make a statement. Apollonius smiles pleasantly. And what of my brother? Has he sat idle as the house of my mother and father was pillaged by that loonese brute? The lawyer said Tharsis has given himself over to vice, I say. Oh, how typical of him. He picks at his nails. If my house has fallen to disgrace, what is my utility to you? In six years, I imagine the defences for Venus have quite changed. I have neither information nor means. No, but your brother does. I throw a hollow of Venus into the air above the table. The verdant planet with two polar ice caps is ringed with metal and military ships. A great dark spot mars the centre of one of Venus's oceans. Starhall thinks that is where the Ash Lord resides, but his confidence are far more discreet than those of Valiai Rath. This is the latest image of Venus from our spy telescopes, I say. Unlike Luna, she is self-sustaining. Farmland, teeming oceans, and vast mineworks. But the rigors of war are demanding. All production is geared toward the war effort. There is no trade. That means no ships in or out. There is trade from Mercury. No longer. Mercury's skies are mine, I say. Apollonius's eyebrows float upward. Indeed? Respect. How did you bypass the defense platforms? With an iron rain, Severo says. What a price you must have paid. What a price. He looks around the table. Is that why you must risk life and limb for this desperate gambit, because you shattered your army? I ignore him. As you can see, there is an extreme military presence on Venus. The engines of this ship and the stealth capabilities could conceivably run the blockade to escape Venus if we need to, but not to land there. We need you to help us land. As I said, your brother may have tamed his spirit to survive, he may have bent a knee to the Ash Lord, but what is one thing that a brother wrath cannot tame? Severo looks at Apollonius's plate. His appetite! The rigors of war have forced even the wealthy to ration. But your brother has plunged himself into debt with his taste for black market goods, and his appetite has not declined. Severo, he pulls up his data pad. Ninety-nine boxes of earth wine, two hundred bottles of baiji, two hundred bottles of brandy. He grimaces and says in a small voice, one hundred thirty-seven bottles of earth whiskey, four bottles from Mars. I look back at him, noting the low count of Martian whiskey. Severo remains assiduously looking down at his data pad. Two hundred bottles of Iraq, two hundred bottles of shochu, two thousand kilograms of beef, five hundred kilograms of lamb, four hundred snails, three kilograms of hummingbird tongues, three kilograms of caviar, and twenty imaginary pinks of Quicksilver's personal stock. Slowly, Apollonius begins to clap 
Yes. Yes. Now that is the reaper I remember. Tharsis will not be able to resist. Avarice is his nature. He will have a broker beyond Venus, likely Bastion Station. I suppose that destination may prove inconvenient. I nod. Then I will need a facial construct to alter my features, and a comm station with access to the main antenna array to contact the broker. But landing on Venus does not kill the Ash Lord. He lives in a fortress. I point at the dark spot on the map. Republic Intelligence's working theory is that he hangs his crown in the dark zone. Can you confirm? There was talk of a cloaking device to absorb radio and light waves, Apollonia says. I see our engineers have made progress. That is the location of Gorgon Isle, his fortress. It is four hundred kilometers from my island. But you will need an army to breach his defenses. He looks again at the narrow lines of the room. And something tells me you have no army. But you still do, I say. The Ash Lord couldn't have taken all of your men. And I wonder, what do you think will happen when we land on your island and your legionnaires see that Apollonius Auvalii Rath, the mad Minotaur himself, has come home? He does not return as a prisoner of the Rising, but with a platoon of loyal commandos. I take his minotaur helm from a bag and slam it on a table. I am not mad, he growls. The indomitable minotaur, several tries. Better, he strokes his helm. You would put me at the head of a legion. No, Severo says, dangling the bait Apollonius cannot resist. Think... Bigger, Rath. A coup? Apollonia says suspiciously. Tharsus will give us the information we need. Then your legion and my men will launch a joint attack on the Ash Lord's fortress. When he dies, Carthii and the Saud will scramble to take his throne for themselves. His lips curl at the mention of his Carthii enemies. But to the conqueror go the spoils. Your praetors will return to fight for you. Your men will defect en masse when they hear you are alive. And in these cells beside you are ten blood family members of houses Saud and Carthii, five from each. You will use them as bargaining chips in the ensuing struggle. We will leave Venus, but you will stay, and once you have consolidated control and crowned yourself tyrant in the Ashlord's stead— you will contact the Sovereign of the Republic and issue a conditional surrender. And what do you believe the terms of this surrender would be? You agree to end the war, to give us your rivals, including Atlantia Augrimus, to be tried in Republic courts for war crimes. You give orders for the legions on Mercury to surrender. You rule Venus for the rest of your life as you see fit. And what would stop the Republic from killing me when it's all over? Me. And you can hold your own people hostage with the Saud atomic arsenal. Well, this is magnificent for you, isn't it? 
a coup with minimal republic loss. Enemy gutted from the inside, and the only cost is that I betray my species. Species? I ask. You're one of a kind, Apollonius. I purr. The gold betrayed you, Apollonius. The Carthii helped the Ashlord put you to rot. And because of that, you're a footnote, a man in another man's army. I'm offering you a chance at revenge against those who sent you to your death. A chance to dwarf the Ashlord in the memory of humanity. We both know you don't care about gold. So let me help make you the last legend of a crumbling age, the Minotaur of Mars. And Venus, he says with a smile, picking up his war helm. Severo and I linger in the conference room after Apollonius is escorted back to his cell. Do you think he knows that they'll never unite behind him? Severo asks. No. He's insane. The Golds all know it. Saud and Carthia might have bent a knee to the Ashlord, but they'll never surrender their homeland to a Martian brute. But if we set him loose, he'll tear Venus apart from the inside. We will descend on a fractured Venus. The Ashlord wanted to give us a civil war. Fine. I'll give the bastard one right back. I take a sip of the wine he left behind. And if... Somehow, Apollonius is able to unite them. We release the video of this little conference, and his own men might just kill him for working with me. Severo grimaces. Pops would be proud of this one. At the mention of his father, I touch Pax's key under my shirt. What's that? Severo asks. I take it out. Pax gave it to me. What's it for? A grav bike he made. When I said goodbye, he told me I wouldn't be coming back. I look over at him. I know I should have put words to my regrets sooner. I'm sorry I made you leave your girls. About Wolfgar. You didn't make me do a damn thing. He pats my leg. Let's just make sure all this is worth the price we're paying. It is, I tell myself. It has to be. Chapter 35 Teardrop in the Door Banquet Ye gods, it's amazing, better than a rose spa. Album, the second valet to Kavik says as a slender human-shaped robot massages his back with fifteen translucent fingers sprouting from four hands. The robot's face and body are opaque white plastic. Beneath, a blue light pulses like it's got a mechanical heart beating beneath its assembly line shell. Is this what replaced my da in the mines? The personal travelling staffs of Houses Telemannus and Augustus lounge in a sitting room in Regulus Ogson's tower. Electronics and consumer goods litter the room. Basket gifts for all the staff, even me. 
He's the only man I've ever heard of who gives gifts to everyone else on his birthday. So what does Quicksilver want for this basket? I turn the attached card over in my hands. Lyria of Lagolos, it reads in flowery gold cursive. For your unsung service to the Republic, August wishes Regulus Ogson. Bribe or not, I cherish the card and rub my finger over the embossed winged heel. As if you've ever gotten a message from a rose, one of Niobe's ballots says. I did one time, you know, didn't even have to pay. Liar! You've silver dripping out of your ears. Don't I know? Oh, gods, yes, robot, that is the spot. Harder, sir? The robot asks in a hollow human voice. Always, ow, ow, not that hard. Are you trying to kill me? Impossible, sir. The first law of robotics states, I know what it states, you toaster. I sip my ginger tea, wishing Philippe were here to lend his wry opinion. My own is not needed among the servants. I'm still an outsider to this little club of valets. Most, except Alban, are in their forties or fifties and have served since they were younger than I am. Their parents served, and their parents before them, just like Garla and the Docker Reds. Everything in Quicksilver's tower is shiny and sparse and silver and white, except the racing ships that roar out sound from a holographic projector on the far side of the room. Some valets and political staff sit there in tuxedos smoking or tapping away importantly at their data pads. Bethalia enters from the hall, speaking with Quicksilver's steward and the sovereigns, a happy plump man with quick fingers. Looks a bit like a giddy pig surprised to find himself in a tuxedo. We're here for Quicksilver's birthday. It was a sight as our caravan taxied in through the air to his skyscraper dock. Spotlights carved the November dark cycle sky. Onlookers with cameras filled dirigibles and rooftops. I watched out a staff compartment window from one of our armoured ships as the Sovereign and her son exited onto the silver carpet with the Telemannuses. For a moment I felt like I was back with my family, watching the HC from half a billion kilometres away. The Augustans looked mighty fine, but I resented them all the same. This is their life, galas and parties. I feel guilty for that resentment. I owe so much to Cavix. The guilt dissipates when I remember the feel of mud, the sounds of the flies on my sister's body. They'll never hear that sound. None of these serious, pompous servants have heard that sound. I think of Philippe, feel the weight of his Bacchus pendant, and take comfort in the fact that I'm not alone. My data pad vibrates on my wrist. I hesitantly approach Bethalia and wait till she notices me so I don't interrupt her conversation. Yes, Lyria. Cavix pinged me. Should I go into the banquet? She adjusts my collar absently. Unlike the men, the women don't wear a tie. Our collars are stiff and high and without undershirt. Yes, but they're not at the main party. 
Cedric, could one of yours guide her? The other servants watch me jealously as I leave the room. I grin back at them for a little fun. One of Quicksilver's security captains, a tall, dead-eyed grey, guides me through the halls past lion guards. The woman has no interest in talking with me, so I return the favour. We divert to a small lift and take it down to a quieter level that's more darkly lit by lights that run along the ceiling. Water sweeps under the glass floor. Strange shapes swim through it. I try to stop and get a better look, but the valet tuts at me, so I hurry along behind her. She leads me into a large ivory door, where several serious greys in tuxedos with Augustus line pins on their chests loiter outside, weapons bulging under suit jackets. Two obsidian men watch me from the shadows. I eye them warily, still terrified around their kind. They scarcely seem human. She's here for the fox, the valet says. You class two, citizen? The grey at the door makes me show him my ID. Another pushes open the door for me. Kavix's voice is the first I hear. Come now, Victra, Dancer is not so bad a creature. He's a pompous, churlish, three-inch backstabbing rat, a woman drawls. A little rust-livered rat that has half the Senate eating out of his germ-infested hands. You do not have to defame the man's honour, Kavik says. He's still our friend, you big idiot. Socialists don't have honour, they have psychosis. The woman speaking is half-naked. A pregnant gold with jagged white blonde hair and a profoundly scandalous black dress with green spikes on the shoulders and a neckline that plunges almost to her navel. Trying not to look at her is like trying not to look at a burning house. A dozen people join with her in intense conversation in a sitting room with a glass-domed ceiling. Several servants bring them coffee and liquor. I spy Sophocles and pat my leg. He looks blankly at me, comfortable on Kavix's lap. Here, here, a rotund bald man says through his jowls. He holds whiskey in his fist and has a ring with a gold eyeball in it. Quicksilver in the flesh. A picturesque pink man sits at his side, gently holding the stem of a wine glass. Sadly, the diagnosis is terminal for that lot. Does he really have six blocks? Kavix's wife, Niobe, asks a grandmotherly pink. The coppers have not yet decided, the old pink says, glancing at another woman who stands with her back to the room looking out the window at the glowing city. So we have six blocks, and they have six, and the obsidian still won't talk. Who would have thought the war and peace comes down to copper? Kavix rumbles. I warned you of this democracy. He spits the word. Caraval told me in my office this morning that Dancer promised him a bill on low-colour and mid-colour reparations, the old pink says. Reparations, the pregnant woman says with a laugh. 
It was a fine republic, a bold republic, until it went bankrupt in its eleventh year because of socialist lunacy. They take the Senate, they'll gut the war effort to pay for their agenda, or they'll raise taxes. Or, the old pink says with a smile, they'll do both. I'm already being taxed into oblivion, Quicksilver says. How much more blood do they think they can draw from this stone? I think you're doing quite well enough, Daxel says from behind his brandy. Well enough, Quicksilver asks hotly. Who the hell made you, Arbiter? Not enough you're blocking my acquisition of Ventress communications and curtailing the mechanisms of mines. Now you want to define when a man who built a business and a resistance army with his own two hands has done well enough. I had less trouble making Tinos than getting a bill through your squibbling senate. Monopolies are bad for the people. Government is bad for the people. Quicksilver makes a disgusted sound. More regulations are bad for the people. You raise taxes, I have to raise prices. Little people get crushed. Regulus Ogsan, defierer of tyranny, guardian of little people, Niobe says. How noble you are. I pull out a bit of duck liver that I carry with me as a lure for Sophocles. He stares on at me and lowers his head willfully to drink out of Kavix's mug. Damn fox. He best not make me come get him. I'll die if they notice me. Some already have. I've been too long in the room. I say we kill Dancer, the pregnant woman says. I've ten men that can make it look like an accident. Ten thousand that can make it look like an example. The old pink looks at the servants, bringing them drinks. Really, Victor, some digression. I'll buy a hollow billboard above Hero Center. I don't care, and don't act like they aren't your creatures. You don't mean that, Victra, Niobe says. Why not? Because it's murder, and he's a hero of the Republic, akin to Darrow and Ragnar, she grimaces. Maybe more so these days. You can't kill him. He's the voice of Red. If he's murdered, the mob will storm the citadel. We'll have an uprising, and not just here. Mars would disintegrate. The Ash Lord would have a laugh at that, Kavik says. Father is right. Might be his intention, Daxo adds. Darrow certainly thought so. Ridiculous, the pregnant woman says. I've just realised who she is. Victra Albarka. Politics is such a bore without a little murder. Honestly, I don't know how you people sit in the Senate listening to blowhard soft bodies yammer on about universal welfare at a time of war. I'd cut my gory damn ears off. Dancer is going to take the Senate. The woman at the window says. My heart skips a beat. I know the voice. Virginia, the lion heart, turns around. My heart rushes under my sternum. Years of anger, resentment, now compromised by the subtle beauty of her, by the rolling power of her calm voice. 
The muted magnetism strikes me dumb, even as I realise she is barefoot. He will take the Senate when we vote next week, she repeats. It's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. Caraval will fold. He's just drawing this out to get a deal for his people. And the obsidians? Niobe asks. Sefi will not meet with me. What does that mean? Victra asks. I don't know. But we must assume it means we don't have their votes. So Dancer will have the majority needed to ratify the peace accord. Seven blocks to six. Then I'll veto it. No senator will sit across the negotiating table with that bologna. It will pit the executive against the legislative. I'm afraid Dara was right. This is a ploy by the Ash Lord to distract us. But Dancer will have to keep his flock of senators from straying. Well, I just have to mind myself. Who do you think will cave first? Me? Or a few senators? They laugh. His momentum will run upon the mountain and founder. Dancer is smart enough to know this. So the question that keeps me up at night is, Where's the twist? How will he break the impasse? Her eyes settle on me, and I feel their massive weight, knowing I look like I'm eavesdropping. The others follow her gaze, and suddenly all are staring at me. Lyria, Kavik says, rising. He brings me Sophocles, who claws as he's handed over. This little man needs to go piddly. Go on now, lass. My cheeks are aflame. The most powerful of people in the Republic, staring down our roster of Lagolos. Now can we please talk about who the hell stole my ship? Quicksilver rumbles. I finally let out the breath I'd been holding. I grab Sophocles by the collar and rush out of the room. My blood is pumping so loud in my ears I can hear no more of the conversation. The door shuts behind me. Directed by the valet, I follow a trail of golden footprints that appear on the floor toward the garden and mull over what I heard. Sophocles suddenly growls, his hackles rising as a small chrome globe, no larger than my fists held together, floats towards us in the centre of the quiet hall. One of Quicksilver's drone sentries. I heard the valets talking about how he has no human guards anymore. Sophocles snarls at it as it draws closer. The drone floats politely upward to wait for me to pass. Good day, Lyria of Lagolos, it says. Good day, I reply with a laugh. Sophocles sniffs the air, less impressed, and then squats and takes a piss right in the centre of the floor. A light on the drone glows red through its silver carapace. Bad, it says and shoots a thin line of rancid liquid onto Sophocles. He yelps and darts down the hall. I'm pulled right along with him. Have a splendid day, citizen, the drone says. Damn robot, I curse as I catch up to Sophocles. In the garden, I freed the fox. He sniffs under the bushes, searching for the perfect spot. I sit down, still thinking of the sovereign. I've seen her from afar. 
but never been seen by her. Under her gaze, I felt she could hear all my evil thoughts, all my anger toward her and the Republic. She may have been larger than life on the HC, brilliant, perfect, but never once did I think about her as flesh and bone. She was tall, beautiful, but that's not the impression she left on me. No, the Sovereign is tired. What would it be like, I begin to wonder, to be responsible for so many lives? Is that what you felt, Ava, when your children ran with you in the mud? Who are you? A voice asks. I jump and look to see a boy in a tuxedo sitting on a rock amidst the garden's trees. A hollow plays in his irises. I recognise his strange eyes and his dusty gold hair and for a moment I think I'm looking at the Reaper himself. But he's a child, one I've only ever seen on the HC and from a distance. I look at the ground. Lyria, sir. The Fox Walker? I'm surprised he knows me. I'm Pax. I know, sir. It's a false humility introducing himself. He's the most famous boy in the solar system, the bloody damn first child. Heads as bare of sigils as his father's. Sir, he wrinkles his nose, don't start with that. I bend awkwardly at the waist, forgetting I should bow even though he's a boy. Or that. Sorry, can't be helped, it seems. Were you lot watching the race? The race, I ask. He taps the corner of his eye. No, I mean, the others were. Don't know slag about races. Really? Well, time for an education, I think. I, I really should just... Oh, Uncle Cavex can stand a moment without the beast. He smiles sincerely. Please, it'd be nice to talk about anything but politics. Mother makes me sit in on those little councils of theirs. Had to listen to Senator Caraval for two hours yesterday... That man can bloody damn talk. I flinch. This is not his word. He pats the bench beside him. I awkwardly join, fearing what Bethalia would say if she walked in, but I can't very well say no. He switches the feed from his eye back to his etapad and then into the air. Ships suddenly fill the garden. The cherry racer is still out in front, darting between three-star constellations suspended above the Hyperion cityscape. A pack of other ships follow in a tight line. The Circade Maxima, he says over the roar. I begged Mother to let me go, but she said it would be bad form to miss Quick's birthday and a security risk, he points at the cherry racer. That's Alexia Z-Rex, best pilot in the solar system. I thought Calloway Z. Char was the best, I say. The warlock? Pshaw! You're brainwashed already. Pity. He examines me with a wide smile. I heard Char has 126 kills. If we're counting kills as skill, sure, he's good. Class to himself. But he's a gunslinger. Rex is a ballerina. Both outliers, both artists, but... Here, here, watch this turn... Most will ease up on the accelerator so they don't crash into the wall, but they lose speed, 
She'll cut her rear engines, shunt power to her starboard thruster, and then pump the energy back to the rear, all without stalling or blacking out. Watch. I watch him. He's not like any boy I've ever known. He's aware of himself, who he is, who his parents are. I think he knows how nervous I am, so he goes out of his way to be kind, cheery. But if he really was so chummy with servants all the time, he'd be watching in the break room, not skulking here in the garden. But in the race, he loses the self-consciousness and the boyish energy bursts out, reminding me of my brothers. We watch as the cherry racer speeds toward a huge white pylon. Behind the pylon is a floating wall on the edge of the race course. All the other ships slow to take the pylon turn, but Rex's banks around the pylon, arcing like a kite on a tight line, and then rockets back the way it came, rounding the obstacle in a blink. Ho, ho, ho! Pax cheers. That's flying! His enthusiasm is infectious, and I find myself cheering with him. As the cherry racer speeds across the finish line several minutes later, the rest of the pack trailing far behind. So? he asks. She's good, I admit, but I still like Char. Because he's handsome? No, but he is. Maybe you think he is. Funny, then why? My brothers are in the Legion. Infantry. Anyone who takes society rippers out of the sky has got my love. That's a damn good reason, he winces. Sorry, not supposed to curse. Don't tell mother. It's not genteel. I'd be terrified to tell your mother anything, I say, trying to hide my bitterness with a smile. She can be a fright, can't she? She's really the kindest person you're likely to meet. Sophocles has done his business and is staring at me impatiently. I reckon I should get Sophocles back. That's right. Cavex might start weeping from separation anxiety. Cavex is a great man. He looks horrified. No, of course he is. He's my godfather. Well, co-godfather. I think him and Uncle Severo arm-wrestled for it. There was cheating. Anyway, I was just japping. Where are your brothers stationed? He asks, joining me on my walk back. They're in the eighth, I say. They were on Mercury. Harness's own, he says knowingly. He's Arch Leggett, a red general. They're in the Dune Cities doing aid work, I think. They said it was classified, he nods. Our secret? You haven't talked to them? Most of the satellites are down, too expensive. Because most were blasted out of the sky. He says it like it just happened naturally, not like his father led ten million men in warships down onto the planet. I want to hate him. I have hated him. I hated him when he walked by his mother's side on the silver carpet, and when I saw him on the news with all the photographers and journalists swarming. But it feels wrong now to have hated him. He's not so different than Liam, just a boy with circles under his eyes, who misses his father and has to hide in a garden to find a moment's peace. May I ask you something, Lyria? he asks awkwardly. I don't know how to ask. Then don't. I know where you're from. 
and I've always wondered, because my grandmother and father won't tell me much, what's it like, the mines? There it is. I keep walking. How did you know I was in the mines? Father says it's important to know everyone's name and something about them, not like a fact or something to memorise, but something real. I go over the new staff members so I can better understand them, and Kavix mentioned you offhand the other day, said you saved his life, so I looked up your dossier, my dossier, your history. I stop walking. Then he knows about my family. Suddenly the attention makes sense. It's guilt, pity. All over again I feel sick and viciously angry at him in his perfect tuxedo with his white teeth and parted hair. Who is this little spoiled brat to try to bring my grief back to the light of day just so he can live like a peeping neighbour through my pain? My family didn't die so he could learn a lesson or satisfy his curiosity. What was it like? I murmur, turning on him and feeling the anger coming. Temper, temper, Ava would say. Yes, they keep me in a bubble here. I want to understand. Understand? He steps back from me and my cruel eyes. Little Gold wants to hear about the nasty shit. The cancer, the pit vipers. Maybe you want to go on about how they force us to marry at fourteen so we can get to breeding, or how mine guards rape us for meds. They did that, you know, boys and girls. Don't show that on the HC for all you high colours. I'm not a high colour, he says. I'm a red too. White anger flashes. The fuck you are. You're just as gold as your da is. His face falls. And it feels good to see it, to know I can hurt too. I turn away from him, pulling Sophocles along on the leash. They all want a part of it, a part of pain that's not theirs. Nod their heads, wrinkle their foreheads. Now they want to pity it, gorge on my pain. And when they're done, or bored, or too sad, they whisk themselves away to stare at a screen, or stuff their fat faces thinking how lucky I am to be me and then they forget the pain and say we should be good citizens get a job assimilate maybe the vox are right they planted us in stones watered us with pain and now marvel we have thorns slag them slag the lot of them stewing mad I return Sophocles to the guards outside the conference room door, too sick in the stomach to face the hypocrites, and go back to the break room. I get so nauseous from all these low colours buying the snake-shit myth that they matter, pretending they're important because they shine shoes and carry capes and clone bloody damn foxes. In moments... I am back outside smoking burners on a balcony, touching Philippe's pendant and trying not to cry. I watch the cold, ancient light of the stars and wonder which of them are already dead out there in the blackness. I miss my sister, my family, and though I speak to them still, all I want in all the worlds is for them to speak, to answer, some proof that the veil is real.
that they are not simply gone into the dark. But they do not speak to me. When the Augustuses and Telemannuses have finally had their fill of partying and conspiring, we depart. I slump along with the procession with my head down, crushed with guilt, not just because of how cruel I was, but because I know a little prince with his feelings hurt will go and tell his mother, and I'll be sacked within the day. I feel Bethalia's eyes on me, and know she knows. I'm just as the other servants pegged me, a rusty bitch with mine manners, and no place in their fine company. The valets carried the gifts Quicksilver's given to our masters into the shuttle staff entrance. I follow behind with Sophocles's kit and my own basket now almost forgotten in my arms. I see Pax and a mean-looking girl about the same age saying farewell to their important mothers. Both the Sovereign and Lady Barker are going back to the Citadel along with most of the staff for more meetings, and I'm bound for Lake Saline with the Telemannuses, Sophocles and the children for the week. I wonder if they'll sack me now or wait till we reach the manor. Probably wait. These goals hate causing a scene. Pax sullenly says farewell to his mother. She bends to ask him something. He shakes his head and leaves abruptly. On the passenger ramp to our shuttle, his eyes meet mine, and he looks down and turns away. In my seat in the staff cabin, I look back over the frantic rant I typed to Philippe while smoking on the balcony. He hasn't yet replied. Odd for him to take so long. Did I scare him off with my ranting? You bloody fool. He's sick of you already. I want to send a message apologising, but that would look even more desperate. I glance down the aisle up to the passenger cabin. Sophocles sits in Kavik's lap. Pax takes a seat across from the man. Where will I go when they cut me? What will I do? Will Kavik send me back to Mars? Pull Leem from a school he's beginning to love, from friends he cares about? The thought of disappointing him crushes me. I should have just kept my mouth shut. I look back out the window as our ship rises up, signals its lights in a salute to the Sovereign's more heavily guarded caravan and banks off to slither through Hyperion skyscrapers, heading north to Lake Saline. The buildings burn with lights and are as dense as the trees of the jungle outside 121. Water slithers along the ship window, distorting the lights and making the night seem like it's bleeding blue and green. Our escort's own lights blink rhythmically to the right of our ship, a strange red light blinks beyond them against the skyscrapers. It goes on, off, on. I squint and then discover it is not outside the shuttle. It's a reflection. I look down and through my suit's jacket a red light throbs. What's that? One of the valets asks, 
leaning to get a look from across the aisle. Lyria! I pull Philippe's necklace out from the neck of my jacket. Bacchus's silver face stares up at me, his gentle mouth pulling upward into a laugh, his face split in a grin. The eyes themselves blink red. The face of Bacchus begins to shudder and tremble like an animal is inside. Startled, I drop it and the silver splits in half along a tiny seam. From the seam, out of a hidden compartment, a dull metal disc the size of three thumbnails spins up into the air, inches from my face. It hisses, then darts away from me down the aisle, fast as a bullet. It reaches the front compartment before I even know what happened. No one noticed but the servant. Bam! she shouts. The cabin bursts into chaos. Servants ducking, spilling drinks. Bethalia rising from her seat. Lion guard standing to protect the passenger cabin. I try to stand but my legs are ghosts of themselves. They won't work. They crumple under me and I fall down into the aisle, head angled toward the front of the ship. Other servants collapse along with me till bodies litter the floor. Gas! Someone behind me gurgles. My own voice won't work. Lion guards start falling as they rush to the passenger cabin. Lights flash in the ship. Gas masks fall out of the overhead compartments. But everyone has breathed it in already. Bodies are falling in the aisle, slumping in chairs. I've lost all feeling. Kavik swings wildly at the disc, smashing apart the walls in a frenzy to destroy it. But he's slowing growing lethargic before he becomes the last to fall to the ground. Then there's a high-pitched scream from the device and a pulse like air being sucked in. The lights go out. Filtration units silence. Engines tremble no more. The drone falls to the floor and we plummet from the sky. Buildings and lights and moving advertisement screens and avenues of ships flash past out the window. Our dead vessel spins sideways. Limp bodies flop and fly around the cabin. I slam against the sidewall, nose to the window, and see us passing through a layer of smog. We tilt again, and I'm thrown back into the aisle. Glasses and data pads and gift baskets whirl around the cabin. Then the ship jerks to a stop and gravity reverses. Debris and people float through the ship. There's buildings outside the windows, half-constructed and missing their facades. My body hovers upward along with cracked data pads and the gift baskets. Then the suspension of gravity vanishes. Everything slams back down. The ship jerks downward again and crashes into the ground. Out the cracked window, I see a retracting door closing over the ship, shutting us off from the light of the city. We lie in graveyard silence. Then, a metallic sound echoes outside the hull, coming from the servant's passenger door. Something whirs and a stone-on-bone reverberation goes through the ship. A teardrop in the door begins to glow. Chapter 36 
Dinner with Dragons Guests Dinner with Dragons is a terrifying affair. We arrive after the Ra family has been seated around the low-lying table in a warm stone room that looks out through a glass wall over the plains and an escarpment of uncarved mountain. Oxygen-making ivy creeps along the walls and the domed ceiling, emitting a pale luminescence from white floral bulbs. More than a dozen Ra are in attendance. Rangy and austere even in their own home, they wear handmade rough fabrics of earth tones and sit rigidly on thin cushions around an ovular stone table, at the centre of which is a single floating orb of blue light. The table is the only furniture in the room, and the ivy the only decoration. Cassius and I join, both wearing dark Ionian kimonos and cloth slippers. There were no mirrors in my room to see how the clothing hangs, Ionian golds believe mirrors promote vanity and obsession with the self. It's a crime for even a low colour to possess one. Of course, they don't want mirrors, Arja would say. I've dogs handsomer than those rim-dust eaters. To be fair, the Ra family is not beautiful by lunar standards. Their faces are too long in the jaw, as though someone took the clay of their visages and pressed them between a vice. Except for Dido, their skin is incredibly pale their eyes slightly larger than desirable, their hair darker. On Luna, they would seem dour, cold creatures without proper refinement, but Seraphina's words ring true. The absence of courtly behaviour and affectation has a brutal purity to it. Grandmother despised most of the fops at court, and while I know she was not fond of rim golds, she did respect their stubborn fidelity to the old ways. It is the reason why she had my godfather obliterate Rhea. The hardest iron cannot be bent, only broken. The serenity in the Ra's movement and the dignity in their conversation are more impressive to me than all the carver-enhanced visages and pompous exchanges of Luna's upper echelons. The family is not eviscerating the work of a new artist or lampooning a socialite for some faux pas. Instead, as we join, a quiet conversation debating the moral high ground between the Cyclops Polyphemus and the warrior Odysseus is underway. Poor Polyphemus, says a young girl with wispy hair and dark-ringed eyes. All he wanted to do was to eat his supper, but Odysseus had to come in and put out his one eye. He didn't even have one to spare like father. To be fair, Polyphemus did eat two of Odysseus's men, Seraphina says, sparing a smile for me as I sit. He's a lesson on how not to be a bad host. There's an empty space at the table beside her where a silver flower rests in place of a table setting, probably for her sister. Eleven years dead, but still remembered every dinner. It is not the only empty seat. Though their patriarch is missing, we're joined by the rest of Romulus's brood. I'm introduced to them. Young Palaron, a thirteen-year-old silent boy, his laughing delight of a sister, Thalia, the Polyphemus sympathizer, who can't be more than nine, and is utterly besotted with the color of my eyes, and Romulus's mother, Gaia, a desiccated old harridan with lava-pale skin, who drinks heavily and smokes bitter-smelling weed from a long pipe, which she clutches with spider-leg fingers. She does not touch her food and speaks only to the children in a wandering, frivolous voice. The rest of the table is filled out by Seraphina's cousins, including Bellerophon the Bold and his wife, a slender woman with large eyes and a trident diadem of House Norvo of Titan. The well-married man stares at us with pale eyes set in a sullen, cruel face. His long body is hunched like a praying mantis waiting for supper. Despite the earlier violence, Diomedes is also in attendance. He sits serenely at his mother's side and seems the favourite object of the children's adoration. 
The heroes of the hour, Dido says with a smile to her family. May I introduce Castor Aljanus and Regulus Aljanus, the men responsible for bringing our Seraphina back to us. Two bowls are handed to us. Dido stands, takes two pinches of rice from her own bowl, and drops one into Cassius's bowl and one into mine. Her family follows the same custom, each walking over to us to share from their own bowls, even Bellerophon, who flicks the rice with boorish contempt. His wife smiles apologetically. Last in line, Seraphina meets my gaze as she honours the right and returns to her seat. I wonder if her mother knows she's visited my room, or if her claim of her mother's ignorance was a deception in itself. I didn't tell Cassius. He would think it's some devious manipulation. Perhaps it is. I've not stopped replaying the exchange in my head. With rice before us, the meal is delayed, as per ancient custom, to demonstrate that the golds are not slaves to the whims of their hunger. My stomach rumbles, but I dare not touch my rice. A violet with short-cropped hair enters the room carrying a slender harp. He plays a gentle melody and is joined by one of the pinks from earlier, the woman with the ancient eyes and truculent mouth, Aure. She sings A Memory of Ash, a quiet, famous dirge written after my grandfather burned the rebel moon of Rhea in the first Moon Lord's Rebellion. No one ever accused the Moon Lords of having short memories. Without the buzz of the cosmopolitan cities of the core, it must be hard to forget. When the violet and pink have finished, they depart the room to light applause. Diomedes' eyes follow Aure in a way that he should hope no one in his family notices. I file it away for later. The main course of the meal is served without further delay by minute browns in dusky grey livery. Their eyes never rise higher than the knee of any gold, but they are treated with politeness by their masters, thanked for their services and addressed by name. It's a civility I've seen in the halls and the hangars and the bathhouses amongst the colours from the top down, each colour within their sphere. There is no undue rudeness, coarseness or cruelty from grey to brown or gold to grey. I find it uniquely admirable, especially when I notice the children are not served by the browns, but must get up and fetch their food from a cart at the far side of the room. Servants earned with a peerless scar, I remember. The browns skip Cassius and me as well, until Dido motions them to service. We'll forgive the guests their naked faces for now. A small bowl of flowered water sits beside each place setting, along with a white linen towel. Recalling my lessons from my grandmother's steward, Cedric, I dip my fingers and dry them on the towel. The fare itself is as simple as the clothes, roasted fish from Europa with hearty seasonings of salt to mask the lack of pepper at the table. Flatbreads, hummus, plain rice, and roasted vegetables steam in unadorned bowls which are passed around and served without utensils. The rice is in abundance, but the cuts of meat are meagre in size. Regulus, the Archimedes is your ship, yes? Dido asks. She is. A sleek flyer who has seen more than a few years, older than Gaia even. Hmm? Gaia asks, looking up from her pipe like a dishevelled barn owl. I said his ship is almost as old as you. You remember the line, I'm sure. A GD-17 whisper-class frigate? Who is whispering? Gaia asks. No whispering at the table. It's rude. She goes back to her pipe and stares up at us suspiciously through a bramble of eyebrows, as if we mean to do her great harm. I've seen enough of intelligence to know how hard it is to hide. The woman does a fine enough effort for this backwater, but her guise wouldn't last the length of a gala in the lunar courts. The dancing faces worn there are the best in the world. Deception, the language of life. But it seems Gaia has everyone at this table convinced she is senile. Interesting woman. 
Your ship is a rare craft for simple merchants, Bellerophon says coolly. He traces a finger along the stone table. The man's a brutish clod with the petulance of a child. Devoid of mystery, a man must have dignity. I find the lack of either boorish. Hard to see how it would be come by legally. I'm not sure I like your tone, my good man, Cassia says, but the pressure on your moon has befuddled my ears. Perhaps you might clarify so we might have no misunderstandings. Again with the antagonism. Bellerophon scowls at him. The rest of the Ra family look on with the faint amusement of people far too comfortable with violence to care much about verbal repasts. Seraphina raises an eyebrow and eats her fish. He means nothing by it, Dido says smoothly. Do you, nephew? Nothing at all. He stares on at Cassius. I won her in a bet six years back from a new money silver who couldn't hold his amber, Cassius explains now with a smile. She was liberated from rising sympathizers. Diomedes gracefully removes the bones from his fish with a single pull and shows Pellerin how to do the same. Regulus, you said you served, he says without looking up. I did. I was a centurion within the Augustan legions during the Martian Civil War. Diomedes looks up. Then you fell in the lion's reign. Respect fills his voice. The rest of the table listens raptly. Mention a battle, and their ears perk up like a kennel of dogs hearing a can open. I did. What was it like? Seraphina asks. Hell, Cassius says, disappointing them with his answer. He might not have fallen in the reaper's reign, but it cost him his entire family, save his mother. It's a clever game Cassius is playing. By saying he's an Augustan man, he's one of the only core girls with the same sense of betrayal the Rim must have felt after the bloody triumph and the failure of their rebellion. A dangerous gambit. He might claim to know the same people, and some of them might have sought refuge here. Did you know the Reaper? Diomedes asks Cassius. I don't mind being relegated to the background. Grandmother thought talkative men the most hilarious of creatures, so busy projecting that they never notice anything until the jaws of the trap close around their legs. The key to learning, to power, to having the final say in everything, is observation. By all means, be a storm inside, but save your movement and wind till you know your purpose. It's a pity Dara and Fitchner Albaka were better students than the last generation of gold. I did not know him personally, no. He was Augustus's lancer, Cassius answers. Peerless don't socialise with men like me. He taps his scarlet face. Then you've come up in the world, Bellerophon says. Did you ever see him fight? Diomedes asks. Once. They say he slayed the Storm Knight of Earth and defeated Apollonius Alvalii Rath in single combat. They say he is a true blade master, the heir of Arcus, that not even Arja Algrimus could stand against him now. The dark spirit in me bucks against that claim. I almost break my silence. They say many things, Cassius replies. What was your measure of him? Cassius shrugs. Overrated? Diomedes booms a laugh. Diomedes is the sword of Io, a blade master, Seraphina says proudly, one of six left in the rim. He also studied with the Arcos on Europa, became a storm sun. I feel a spike of envy. Lorne taught me how to fish with Alexander and Drusilla, Diomedes corrects. His last student misused his gifts. The understatement of the millennium. He had no desire to make better warriors, only better men. In that he succeeded, Seraphina smiles at her brother. One day Diomedes will test the reaper for himself. Bellerophon watches as Diomedes humbly returns his attention to his younger siblings. I smile at his jealousy and watch Diomedes with growing respect. We eat in silence for a time. I nurse the small fish on my plate. Cassius is already finished with his. 
always a man of appetites. I'm more practiced than he in the art of self-deprivation at the dinner table. Doesn't feel so long ago that I was a knobby-kneed boy sitting at my grandmother's dinner table when she turned her long neck to me and peered down that peregrine nose, and in a kindly manner inquired if I intended to sleep outside in the gutter instead of in my bedchamber, because by virtue of the fact that I'd eaten three whole tarts, I'd clearly abdicated being a man in favour of being a little pig. It was two days after my parents had died. I seldom eat sweets any longer. Cassius makes a show of looking around for more food. Pardon, portions, Dido says with a faint hint of apology. They're more conservative than you're accustomed to, I'm sure. We're in the midst of a ration cycle. Thought you were sitting on a bread basket here, and Europa is just one big sea. Or did you already eat all the fish? Cassius asks. I wait in trepidation. This line of inquiry is dangerous. An innocent observation that will lead inexorably to a casual inquiry about the new ships we've seen and the state of their docks and their stores of helium-3. I fear him asking that question. Dido smiles obligingly. On the contrary, the fisheries and latifundia have never been more productive. Then a lack of ships, I warrant. Many were destroyed by the sword armada, Dido admits, and there were lean years. But no, not a lack of ships or helium-3. In fact, it was disruption of agriculture on Titan last month that forced us to part with more of our bounty than anticipated. It isn't natural for her to tell us so much. A daughter of Venus must have found this place strange, I say diplomatically, trying to pull Cassius away from his obvious endgame. Ah, so you know my lineage. Aren't you a well-studied merchant, she says. You're rather famous, I reply, playing the overwhelmed youth. I spare a glance at Bellerophon, who has not stopped watching Cassius since he sat down at the table. Something is wrong here. I can sense the sharks beneath the surface. Even on Mars we know of Dido al Saud. I doubt my father would let me still claim his name, she leans forward. Tell me, am I as famous as my husband? Seraphina tenses at mention of her father. She's barely touched her food and looks uncomfortable, furthering my unease. Few were as famous as your husband, I say to Dido. Her mouth pinches. How diplomatic. But on Mars, Romulus and Dido is still a fairy tale. A fairy tale. If only, she smiles at that. When I came here for the first time, I saw a foolish little sun creature raised in the court of Iram, a gaja through and through. I fell in love with the pale wisp of a night and thought our life would be a poem. But once I arrived here, I felt the darkness, the cold my mother warned me about. I missed the sun and hated this place, hated my husband's austerity. He would fret over water left in a glass, a crust of bread uneaten. But then I learned one of Io's many lessons— here, by darkness, by radiation, by hunger, by thirst, by war, we're always at siege. It is not like the world of my birth, where life grows on every rock and men eat until they vomit. On Io, scarcity makes us strong. It makes us value what we do have. She looks around at her family with a warm smile. Seraphina clarifies. Father said a decree three months ago that rations are in effect until reserves are back to appropriate levels. No gold may eat more, as measured by weight ratio, than the agricultural reds do. I'm startled. You mean to say even you followed the ration limit? Why wouldn't we? Seraphina asks, confused. It is law. Qualis rex, talis grex, Dido says. As the king, so the people. But you have power, I say, intensely curious. You can do what you like. Cassius shoots me a not-so-subtle look. He wants me to shut up and eat my food, leave the games to him. 
but my curiosity gets the better of me. My tutors called the Moon Lords impractical isolationists, but there seems little here but practicality. An errant claim, Romulus and I believe it important to teach our children to be more than just powerful. Dido slowly picks the meat off the bones of her fish with her fingers. Gold was meant to be an ideal to inspire, don't you agree? Why does she bait me? Cassius's eyes tell me to be careful, and so do Seraphina's. I'm just a merchant, I say with a humble shrug. My family wasn't like yours. Oh, please, don't be ponderous, boy. Peerless aren't the only ones with opinions. Pray tell, do you agree? Speak plainly or don't speak at all. Were we meant to be more than just force? Weren't we meant to inspire? Yes, but then we forgot it. See, an opinion. She looks over at Cassius. You really should let him have a mind of his own, my good man. Sighing like that when he speaks his mind. Not good to quash the naturally inquisitive. She turns back to me. Now, Castor, it's been ten years since we purged the sons of Ares from our moons and eliminated the last of the slave king's terrorists. Out of curiosity, how many rebellions and terrorist attacks do you think Ilium has had in the last year? Forty-three, I say instinctively, based on the ten-year annual average of reported incidents before the fall. Seraphine's eyes narrow at the precise number. Two, Dido replies. Just two, Cassius asks in surprise. A shooting and a bomb. The hierarchy is not changed. Do you know what inspires this loyalty to the compact from all colours? Honour. Honour in work, honour in morality, honour in principle and family. Our rules are harsh, but we obey them from gold to red. Romulus eliminated the rigged quotas in mines and the latifundia, has begun to phase out the obsidian gods, and makes each man understand he is part of the same body. He has replaced subjugation with participation, given a reason to sacrifice for the betterment of all, and it starts with us at this table, the head of the body. Each man and woman given liberty to pursue achievement with the best of his virtue and abilities and rise within the station for which his flesh was made, a sacrifice of the self for the preservation of all. I murmur the words of the compact like scripture. Admirable. Yes, Seraphina says, her eyes warmer to me than ever before. Why did you not carry on the fight? Why become traders? Diomedes has been nursing the question, waiting for a pause in the conversation. The timing is awkward. You mean fight for the Ash Lord? Cassius asks, sipping his wine. I think not. His daughter murdered my friends at the Triumph. What of you, Castor? Dido asks. Don't you want revenge for your family? I feel Cassius's gaze on me, the weight of expectation as I regurgitate his lessons, his maxims. What good would it do? I answer loyally. Is that your answer? Dido nods to Cassius. Or his? How many times have I lain in my bunk on the Archimedes, lonely, fantasizing of strength, of revenge, of sailing home and taking back my grandmother's scepter, her chair, and putting Darrow and his rabid wolves in chains? I always thought it a fantasy, something that could never be. But now that I see how much strength is left in gold, how much of the old virtues, it grows harder to see it as the vain, idle fantasy of a little boy any longer. Gold is not dead. Is that why you want war? Cassius asks. For revenge? In part, yes, Dido replies, to avenge the wrongs the slave king has done us, but also to heal the chaos that he has made. His republic has had ten years to create peace. They failed. The time is right for the society to be rebuilt. We have the will, the might, but we need the spark. That is why I sent my daughter to the Gulf, to retrieve that spark. Thanks in no small part to you, she brought it home. She pauses a moment to smile with no kindness in her eyes. But now I fear it is missing. 
finally the twist, the reason behind all these innuendos and games. Is that an accusation? Cassius asks warily. Oh, yes, my good man. That's why you went back into the Vindabona, I say to Seraphina, but you didn't bring anything back with you. I brought your razor, she says. My heart sinks in my chest. I missed it. I've walked straight into their trap. They've been toying with us, with me, and here I was admiring their civilization like a gory damn anthropologist. And where is your razor? Dido asks. We're dying to know. It was lost, I say. Our hull was punctured and the razor pushed into space before the cellular armor could close the breach, Cassius explains. Is that so, Regulus? Dido leans back. The fish has left a foul taste in my mouth. I think it's time for dessert. She motions to the servants, and the door to the room opens. Two obsidians with bulging pale arms enter carrying a load between them, which they set in the centre of the table. It is our safe. Chapter 37 Lysander Pray The safe was well hidden, Dido says, but of course our men are nothing but thorough. Fortunately, the cryptaea who discovered it was one of mine. If you are so thorough, then you know what sort of safe that is, I reply before Cassius can speak. The safe might hold our damnation in our family rings, but it also is our only leverage. It can't be lost. It is a Holson 7. It has four inches of rolled steel with an analogue tumbler lock instead of a digital mechanism, which makes it impervious to electronic incursion. More importantly, it has three Sun Industry military-grade plasma charges embedded on the interior wall faces of the safe. You drill, it will detonate at a temperature of 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. But of course you know that, or you would have already opened it. Indeed, Dido says. Personally, I would very much like my daughter's efforts not to have been spent in vain. She holds up a finger as I'm about to reply. And I would be wary, if I were you, at further insulting my intelligence by claiming your razor is not inside this safe. I bear insults poorly. Then her lips slide into an enigmatic grin. But open it for me, and we can be friends again. I'm a most generous friend. I glance at Serafina. Is that the only reason we're alive? I feel foolish for letting her lower my guard. A strain of grandmother's malice pulses into me, despising her attempts at manipulation. Caster, let the adults speak, Cassius says slowly, his eyes fixed on Dido. The safe can be opened for a price. A price? Serafina laughs in appreciation of his boldness. We are merchants after all, Cassius replies. What is your price? Dido asks. For the key to your war, I offer a bargain. Give us our ship, give us our pilot, and any surviving crew members of the Vindabona. Give us our freedom, and once we reach safe distance from Aya, we will send you the combination. Dido wags a finger at him. Are you trying to make a fool of me? Caster left out a feature of the Holson 7, didn't he? Clever boy. A secondary detonation code, one that can be given in place of the real code. One you could supply me with when you're cruising toward the belt. And why would I want to destroy what's inside, Cassius asks. We take no issue with your war, only your value of our lives. Yes, she runs a finger over her lips. Why indeed? The silence grows to terrible lengths. On my honour, I'll send the proper combination, Cassius lies. He'd rather die than let them have their war. Your honour, Bellerophon laughs at a private joke. Be thankful we do not peel you like tank shrimp. They are guests, Diomedes says sternly. 
They have eaten our bread and supped at our table. No guest in the history of our house has been violated. Not even the Fabii and the Reaper. Not even the Ash Lord after the burning of Rhea. Do not disrespect your ancestors. Bellerophon rolls his eyes at his cousin and turns to his aunt. Aunt Dido, we don't have time for this. Vila is already rallying legions at Carath. If Vila escaped, then Cassius is right again. The coup is not concluded. The Codavan will be coming too. Our allies are nervous. Some won't stand by us if Vila attacks. We need the evidence. Dido opens her hands to us. You see my predicament. There is no time for your proposal. One option remains, and that is to trust me. Have I not been a good host? Have I not shown honour? Does she think we're so stupid? Cassius smiles. You have my terms. Seraphine looks to me. Caster, no harm will come to you. My brother speaks for the both of us, I reply. Dido leans back in her chair and nods to a brown by the door. Tell Polybius to bring in his pet. Have you a new creature for the children? Old Gaia asks in delight. Her wrinkled neck cranes in anticipation as an old violet with a black moustache limps into the room. Oh, vile. She frowns as he carries in a glass jar filled with noxious yellow liquid. Something stirs within, but I can't yet make it out. The violet stands ominously at the end of the table. It is said that a life is made great by sorrow and joy. Dido stares at me, then Cassius. But you men are cursed. You will never really understand life, because you do not know what it is to bear a child, to push a life from your flesh, to have two hearts beating inside you at once. She looks at the empty seat beside Serafina. She takes the flower there between her fingers. To have had seven hearts beating beyond you, carrying your hopes, your dreams, and when one of those hearts stops, you feel it as if it were your own. She crushes the flower in her slender hand and lets the mangled petals drift free one by one to settle on the barren bones of her fish. The story of their life ends, all those dreams gone, and you begin to forget them. You begin to loathe yourself for time ill spent with them, for your grief stealing the joy their life brought as their memory begins to fade. More obsidians enter the room and stand behind us. My daughter, my Thessalia, was not made in my image, or Romulus's, Dido whispers. She was a birth of air, a sweet girl, a vessel of all my joy. Eleven years ago, Thessalia went with her grandfather Rebus to see Mars and attend Augustus's summit. She wanted to see the Valis Marineris, the Olympus Mons. Eleven years ago, she watched her grandfather die and felt fear as her head was caved in by a Martian boot. My joy vanished that day, and as a family we swore vengeance upon all those responsible. Rock our Fabii, Lilith our Ferran, Arja our Grimus, Aegis our Augustus, Antonia our Severus Julii, Octavia our Luna, Dido's lips curl, and Cassius our Bellona. Chapter 38 Lysander, Grusley Cassius bursts from his seat, diving across the table to try to reach the access pad on the safe. The obsidians grab him and wrench him back. I lunge for one of the knives on their belts, but Bellerophon stands and in one fluid movement whips his razor diagonally across the table. The thin black metal snaps around my arm. He jerks me sideways and I spill down, set upon by obsidians. Bellerophon's fingers move over the hilt of his razor to recall the whip to rigid form. He'll take my arm. Bellerophon! Seraphina snaps. Not that one. He says nothing but flicks his whip free of my arm and recalls it back across the table. It slithers like a snake across plates and spilled rice. 
The obsidians shove me into my seat. They wrestled Cassius back to his. If you hurt him, I won't give you the combination, I say quickly. Seraphina, he saved your life. You're in his debt, and he's under your promise of hospitality. Void because of your lie, Dido says. Diomedes, who has sat like some paragon statue this whole time, watching the drama unfold, now frowns. Mother, I know the face of Bologna as well as any man. That is not him. Oh, but it is, she says. The razor of a Bologna is in that safe, concealed under a shell of titanium. I look to Seraphina, hiding my horror as I realise what gave us away. When she opened the razor to hide her evidence inside it, she must have discovered the false cover and seen the eagles on the handle underneath. She knew all along. Did you think we did not know the technology of our enemies? Dido asks Cassius, gesturing at her own face. You may keep your silver-spawned enlightenment. Here we have masters of the old ways, of flesh and bone. She gestures to the violet in his jar. You may begin. The violet shuffles up to the table and, with a pair of tongs, reaches into his jar. From the yellow liquid he draws a tiny horror, a hideous spider-legged slug with corpse-pale skin and a belly riddled with small hungry apertures. This is a grizzly, Dido says. The creature squeals like a burning worm and rises in the air over Cassius's face. He flinches away. From its apertures, thin tentacles push past layers of pallid flesh toward his face. The grizzly eats masks, you see. You're not the first spy to preach the gulf. The violet lowers the creature onto Cassius's face. Black stingers spurt from the tentacles into his skin. It wraps its leg around his head and sucks, shuddering with an orgiastic sigh as my friend gurgles beneath its flesh. I watch in cold terror as the creature feeds till it is engorged and lethargic, and the violet pulls it back up with tongs to reveal under a mess of puncture wounds and thin trails of blood the swollen face of my handsome friend. He blinks through the layer of grime up at Dido as the obsidians haul him up to face our hosts. Blood and milky fluid drip into his beard. The truth at last, Dido says. Cassius laughs and rebelliously spits blood from his mouth. Cassius Albalona, at your service. I look to Seraphina for help, but there's no ally left in the room. She loathes Cassius as much as the rest of them. You didn't just take my daughter, you took my brother, Dido says. Marcus, Cassius says, the joy knight. Your sworn brother, your fellow Olympic, you cut him down before you killed Octavia. He was a bastard. Yes, but he was my blood, she whispers. I will give you one last chance to open the safe. Cassius grunts. So you can have a war that will send mankind back to the Dark Ages? Funny, you don't look stupid. These are the Dark Ages, Seraphina says. We will bring order back, says the little girl. Have you ever seen a city after orbital bombardment? I saw Ganymede after the docks fell from orbit, she replies bitterly. I've seen horror, starvation, a whole city frozen. You haven't seen war. His heavy eyes strafe the rest of the Ra. You all think you're the chosen people, the keepers of the flame, please. You know how many have thought that. You're just like the rest, too vain to realize the flame has gone out. The dream of gold was dead before any of us was ever born. You want a war because you think the rising is vulnerable? Because they still battle the core? You don't know Darrow. You don't know his people. If you attack, you lose everything. The slave king has already fallen, Dido says, smiling at Cassius's confusion. Of course, how could you know? He has become an outlaw. His own mentor and wife have turned their backs on him. The obsidian horde is thinned. The remainder stirs with discontent. 
Their senate devours itself and debates peace with the pixies of the core. They are flailing, scattered and weak. The Ash Lord has sought peace, I ask. It seems war has softened his resolve. He is craven and will be dealt with once we have retaken Mars and Luna. Rhea will be repaid in full. Dido turns her eyes to me. They say your family is cursed, Cassius. How lucky you are to have a brother survive the Jackal's purge. Which one is he? Theseus? Daedalus? They would be his age by now? She looks back to Cassius. It doesn't matter. If you do not give me the combination, I will let our dragons suck the marrow from his blasted bones. Cassius looks over at me with love and sorrow in his eyes. He's been searching for this for the past ten years. A chance at redemption. Denying her war is that chance. It crushes him now to know the price it will cost. But he will pay it, I realize, even if that price is my life. I swore to protect the people. That is what I will do, no matter the cost. And do you share your brother's insanity? Dido asks me. Cassius would have stayed to free the prisoners on the Vindabona. He wouldn't have run at the first sound of obsidians like I did, because he is a hero and I am not. Whatever hate I have for Darrow, whatever hope these gold have kindled in me, I cannot betray Cassius now. I love the man too much, but it breaks my heart to know that the masses he would die for would have his head on a spike if they could. He speaks for the both of us, I say again. Dido makes a small noise of disgust. She leans back, realising the impasse, quick eyes searching for a way around it. Diomedes, a blood feud needs resolution. Will you do the honours? No, the stoic knight replies. She turns on him in confusion. What? Dido asks, caught off guard. You heard me, mother. He killed your sister. They are our guests. You're joking. You blathering idiot, Bellerophon hisses. They're enemies of our blood. They are our guests. If you want blood, draw it yourself. Let him alone, Seraphina says, standing. It is his right to refuse. I will do the deed. No, Dido says. Seraphina flinches. You doubt I can? Yes. Sit down. She ignores Seraphina's wounded expression and looks down the table. Bellerophon, do what your cousin will not. With pleasure. The man uncoils to his feet, long legs taking him around the table, till he stands looking down his crooked nose at Cassius's bloody face. Beware, Milky, Cassius says with a feral grin. I'm a student of Aja Algrimus. And I am the son of Atlas Alra, sixth shade of the Shadowfall, slayer of Petro Albreta, the desert spear. Bellerophon's eyes glitter with delight as he gathers phlegm and spits it onto Cassius's face. It drips down Cassius's cheek, running diagonal with his peerless scar. This is a blood feud. The blood of my grandfather and my cousin is upon your hands. Hear me now, you wretched worm. We are devils to one another. In the name of House Ra, I, Bellerophon Al-Ra, challenge you to single combat in the bleeding place till one heart beats no more. Very well, my good man, Cassius replies with a brilliant smile. I am delighted to accept. Chapter 39 Ephraim Lion's Den It sounds like the damn world is ending. Clustered outside the downed gold shuttle, in the centre of our trap, Volga, Dano and I look up and feel the fear. Two escort rip wings chase after the downed Augustan ship. The blast door above us locks close as the first round of gunfire pelts its reinforced surface. The shuttle 
plummeted a kilometre through the city, drawn downward faster than the speed of gravity by the fleet-grade Sun Industries gravwell. The machine gripped the shuttle as soon as the EMP Kobachi built into the custom drone went off inside the shuttle. We almost lost the ship twice on the descent, as its rotation made it drift out from the gravwell's projection radius. Dano wrangled it back by increasing the gravity to four times Earth grav. Aside from the shuttle, the gravity beam pulled down a deluge of rain, seven flyers, a forest of shrubs from balconies, several clotheslines and three shattered hoverbikers, who died by smashing into the floor at 900 kilometres per hour. All that haul lies in a broken bone and metal soup around the shuttle in the garage of a half-completed lower West Hyperion hospital. Dano kicks one of the shattered hoverbiker helmets away from the breech we've burned into the shuttle's hatch. The head is still inside. My stomach knots up. I'm back in the block war. Digging through debris, boots stomping over rubble and bits of men, gasping like a dying fish, lungs starved from the thermobaric burrow bombs that eat the oxygen out of the air. I tear my eyes from the disembodied head, thankful for my helmet so my crew doesn't see my horrified face. I didn't take the Zolodone tonight, afraid that the stomach cramps would knock me flat. I'm already feeling too much. The blast door shudders above us as the escorts pour more munitions into it. Soon it will buckle. We four minutes before a rapid response team of Hyperion's counter-terrorism watchmen deploy from the 12th Cohort headquarters. Already there will be armoured bodyguards jumping from the escorts, searching for some other way into my metal trap. I stare into the mirage of heat as our breaching device burns a hole in the hull. Volga, armoured in a military-grade chestplate and helmet, pulls the breacher off and slams a steel and lead battering ram into the metal. It caves inward on her third swing. She tosses the ram aside and moves into the ship. The green magazine globe of her plasma rifle's barrel glows as she primes the generator. Dano goes in next. I follow with the omnivore in my trembling hands, if even one of the nasty bastards inside didn't get knocked flat by the anacene gas, this could turn into a bloodbath. Trig run through on a gold's razor, men crumpling like cans to power hammers, ozone and burning flesh as the gold skins my team alive. My hands shake harder. The ship is upside down and black inside. It looks like a party gone wild all the revellers having drunk themselves to insentience right where they stood. Bodies still buckled in their crash webbing hang upside down in chairs from a ceiling that was once the floor. Others are sprawled atop each other in a living carpet with eyes that shine like fountain coins up at me. We pick our way through the arms of servants and leather-faced killers in tuxedos. The Anacene Seventeen has made the muscles in their bodies, including their eyelids, unresponsive. Only their lungs and hearts still work, allowing them breath so shallow they look dead. There's no movement. 
My heart slams in my chest. We push for the forward passenger compartment in search of the prizes. As Dano bounces around the ship with a gymnast's ease, Volga and I climb over the body of a titanic gold with a red beard and almost step on a fox the size of a large child. It lurches up at us, snarling. I shout in surprise and kick it as it lunges. It flies down the aisle and onto Dano's leg as he hangs with one hand from one of the upside-down passenger headrests. He screams and falls down. Get off me! Get it off! He flails, falling to his back, and points his gun at the animal's skull, ready to blow its head off. Volga pushes the weapon aside and pries the fox's jaw open to free Dano's leg. I'm going to kill it! Volga ignores him and grabs the flailing fox by the scruff of its red coat and locks it in the cockpit. We hear it slamming against the door as I haul Dano up. What the hell was that? Dano shouts into his comm. Blood dribbles down his leg. Shut up. Work. Amidst a thick human shield of bodyguards and goals, we find the prize. He's here, Dano says triumphantly as he limps forward. The little shit is bloody well here. He says it like he doubted it. He's not the only one. The intelligence was too good, the plan too big, the stakes too high, the players far too nasty. Yet it's all slick and clean. Even I smile when I see the prize. The boy hangs suspended upside down, paralysed and wrapped to his seat in crash webbing. Blood leaks into his hairline from a long gash on his forehead. He's smaller than I expected, no giant like his father, but still, at ten, he's almost Dano's size. He's dressed in a tuxedo with a gold lion clasp at his neck instead of a tie. His eyes stare at us in terror, limping and muttering curses to himself. Dano roughly cuts the clasp off, pockets it for a trophy, and then starts cutting the crash webbing as Volga keeps her gun on the paralysed bodyguards. We pull the boy from the seat. Dano hoists him over his shoulder and carries him out of the ship as Volga and I find the secondary prize three seats up. The slender gold girl has a hatchet face and deep-set angry eyes. Unlike the boy, she shows no fear, just absolute, unmitigated hatred. She's promising me a slow death with that look as I cut her free of her crash webbing and cut the bleeding sun brooch from her jacket. I can't resist patting her on the head. Volga puts her over a shoulder and departs the ship. I stand alone in the dark vessel, listening to the thunder of their escorts against the blast door. Littered around me are the powerful and mighty who thought themselves untouchable, thought themselves gods. A dark, unexpected thrill shoots through me as I realise I've humbled the lot of them. I step atop the giant who the fox was protecting. The massive man has big iron on his hip. A razor, just like Ajar's. My boots smudge dirt and biker blood into his tuxedo. A Talimanus, I recognise him now. 
I turned to regard the cluttered cabin, wishing they could see my face and know that a lowly grey has driven them to their knees. Reap what you sow, I say in a thick red Martian accent. Give my regards to your masters, my good men. With a deep and courtly bow, paying all homage to gold manners, I hop off the telemanus and dip my gloved hand in a pool of blood gathered around the head of a wounded bodyguard. I press the hand into the wall, leaving a blood-red handprint. Blame placed, I walk toward the passenger compartment. Time for the part I've been dreading. I find Lyria lying amongst three other servants who have the misfortune of being unbuckled from their crash webbing. One has a broken neck. Lyria stares up at me in the darkness. To her, I'll be a masked shadow, unrecognisable, with a glint of metal in hand. But I feel as if she and she alone can see through the mask. She'll know that Philippe did this to her and she'll tell them. I can't have them piecing it all together. My life will be over. Make it clean. I point the omnivore at her head. My hand shakes. Sweat trickles into my eyes inside the humid helmet. She looks up at me blankly. Even in the darkness, she can see the gun. She accepts it. There's no wild fear in her eyes, just sadness, resignation. Pull the trigger. Pull it, you son of a bitch. What's wrong with me? I've killed men in cold blood before. I was all professional when I explained the plan to the others. It needs to be done. I'll wrap it up nice and neat, I said. You can't pull a testimony from a corpse. Pull the trigger. It'll be quick. She'll feel nothing. I told myself I'd do it without the Zolodone, that I'd sack up, I'd own this. I close my eyes and see her little smile to herself back in that restaurant as she ordered that last flight of oysters. It was like seeing a child laugh at an adult's joke, so proud to feel accepted but still self-conscious, wondering if their ignorance will be found out. Why did she have to smile like that? Like him? Fuck it. I pull the trigger. Nothing happens. I look down at my gun. The safety is still on. I almost throw up. I'm shaking, backing away from her, my stomach all tied up in knots, disgusted with myself. Idiot. Shoot her. Shoot her. I can't. Not twice. I holster the omnivore and turn to leave. I'm halfway out the door when I stop. I'm a bastard to leave her here alive. It's worse than shooting her. The Lionheart will peel Lyria apart. They'll think she's a traitor. What are you doing, F? What are you doing? I watch myself from a distance as I rush back toward her. She's light as a child. I carry her out of the ship and join my friends at the bottom of the ramp where our junker hovercar waits. Dano sits on the hood with a pistol in hand. What the hell is that? He says. I ignore him. He blocks my way. This isn't part of the plan. Shut up and get in the car. The hell's your damage, you old flit? Lose your stones? 
Dano reaches for his pistol. I'll do it for you. Wait in the car like a good little... I level the omnivore at him. I will shoot you in the fucking head. Get in the car. I step forward. No, Ruster. What? Dano steps back in terror, but not of me. I turn to see a hulking mass emerge from the hole in the ship, all shoulders and thighs. The Telemannus with the red beard slumps there, held up by his hands on the door, his legs butter from the anacene, his eyes filled with hate. I drop Lyria and raise my pistol. The anacene slows the man. He fumbles for his razor before giving up and lunging forward like a drunk bear. He hits me in the sternum so hard my vision flickers black. My gun flies from my hand and I'm lifted off my feet. I slam down into the floor, skidding into a wrecked flyer. From the concrete I watch as Dano pulls up his gun and shoots the monster twice in the chest. The bullet goes through his tuxedo and slaps into the ship. It doesn't stop him. Stumbling, the gold reaches Dano. He grabs the top lip of Dano's chest armour, holding him still as the red claws desperately to escape. Then the gold swings a lazy punch. It hooks in from the right, casual, almost like an afterthought. The reinforced knuckles cave in the side of Dano's skull. His head lolls, ear touching the opposite shoulder. A white root of spinal cord juts upright into the air. Drenched in Dano's blood, the giant hurls Dano's corpse to the side and turns his horrible bulk to me. He takes an awkward step and is blasted sideways as Volga fires through the windshield of the air car. The plasma stream hits the gold in his side, melting through his arm and hurling him off his feet into the ship's hull. Volga rushes to me as I try to stand. There's a dent the size of a grapefruit in the centre of my chest armour. Several broken ribs scream as Volga hauls me to my feet and drags me into the car. Torch the body! Get the girl! I say through gritted teeth. Volga stands over Dano's body and holds down the trigger on her rifle. Concentrated energy melts through Dano's corpse leaving a steaming heap of crackling tissue and oozing bones. She rushes back to Lyria. The red girl issues horrible moans from her paralysed throat toward the big gold man on the ground. Volga throws her in the trunk. She grabs my gun from the ground as I stare out the windshield as the gold impossibly pushes himself up to his knees. The flesh of his right side melts off the bones. Anacene pumps in his blood, but he's still trying to stand. Pikes! he roars. The room vibrates as ships try to pound their way in through the roof. Drive! I shout at Volga. Drive! She jumps into the driver's seat and slams on the pedal. As we shoot away into the darkness of our escape route, we hear the door finally give and crash down into the garage. Volga drives at breakneck speeds through the half-constructed hospital, faster than Dano did in our practice runs. We weave between support beams and equipment as I stare out the back of the car, watching in terror for pursuing airborne nights. I hold my chest and wheeze like an egg. Dano's head caved in like an egg.
After a kilometre of switchbacks and vertical elevator shafts leading to connecting buildings, we reach the staging ground in the abandoned canning warehouse and pull up in front of a makeshift clean room, metal frame pipes with plastic sheets enclosing it. I half expected a dozen syndicate thorns to be waiting for us with heavy weapons and gorgo at their head. But they want to stay as far away from this shit show as possible. Our headlights illuminate Sira, standing nervously with the two needle-thin contractors I met two nights ago. They wear operating smocks, one a violet, the other a yellow. Where's Dano? Sira asks as she comes to greet us from her mobile station. A dozen holograms from cameras she placed fill the air around it. On the hollows, the hospital is swarming with soldiers come for the boy. The cameras inside the garage have gone black. Dead, I say. How? Gold. Shit, 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 Sira says under her breath as Volga drags the children out of the back of the vehicle straight into the clean room, where she loads each onto a table. Inside, the syndicate technicians move with haste. They slice open the children's clothing till they're naked. No, not children. They're killers in training. I know what they'll become. Goals that pop heads like eggs. Without even thinking, I pull out my dispenser and pop several Zolodone in my mouth and crush them between my teeth. They fizz, and I feel the cool fire spread against my tongue and the inside of my cheek radiating into my blood vessels and carrying the warmth down into my body, sending chemicals to my brain to kill the fear and the pain in my ribs. I exhale a calm breath and look back at the car where Lyria lies inert. I turn my attention to the technicians. We're on schedule, but the schedule doesn't feel fast enough anymore. I shouldn't have wasted time in the ship getting Lyria. Dano's neck breaks again. I grimace and glance at the holograms. A flight of armoured soldiers is landing around the hospital, just four buildings from where we stand. Hurry up, Sira says to the syndicate men. Don't distract them, I say. Recheck the detonators, then get out of here. I don't have to tell her twice. Sira's hoverbike whines as it departs through the escape tunnel. Only when I'm sure she's gone do I go back to the junker. I haul Lyria out and move her into the back seat of our clean car, a ten-seat taxi that sits next to the other rides. I take out our bags and dump our change of clothes onto the floor, then lean back in to speak with Lyria. Her big red eyes stare up at me. You've been drugged with anacine 17. It will last another hour. I consider the Telemanus. He was four times her body weight. Maybe less. We're going to meet some very bad people. When the drug wears off, do not speak, do not move. If you do, they'll kill you. Afterwards, if you behave, I'll take you wherever you want to go and give you enough money to start a new life. On the Zolodone, my voice sounds like a robot's. It's a lie, I'm telling her. She'll be hunted forever, but I'll still give her a running start. She deserves that, at least. Do you understand? She can't blink or move. Hate is all she can manage. 
Good. I stack a bag on her face and cover the rest of her body. Even beneath the Zolodone, I know I will hate myself later. I know the look in her eyes is one I'll never forget. Add it to the pile. I strip my gear and toss it into a metal barrel and dress in one of my black quarterband suits. Vulgar, strip and burn, I say when she emerges from the clean room. She dumps corrosive acid into the barrel after she's stripped her gear. Found it, the yellow with a metal sniffer nose says inside the clean room. Right shoulder blade? The violet, this one with multi-hued chimeras tattooed onto either side of his neck, finds the mark, and soon two wicked-looking drills whir to life. Metal burrows into skin. The children whimper through numb mouths as the syndicate contractors dig out the embed tracking devices with forceps. Tears tumble out of the children's paralysed ducks. The men toss the bloody little chips into a container. The baby naked and ready to roll, the violet says. Double check for radiation stains, I say, gingerly feeling my ribs. Don't be sloppy. After they've finished, the two operators shove the children into plastic smocks and then drag them out of the clean room. The knights on the hologram jump into the garage through the hole punched by the ships. The operators leave the children with us and depart in their own vehicle, taking it through a subterranean tunnel that links with abandoned tramways. Volga takes both children and loads them into the back of the taxi, laying them parallel on the seats as gentle as a mum, tucking her kids in for a nap. She lingers there, looking down at them. Volga! She jerks her head up to glare at me and slams the taxi door hard enough to rattle the glass. Fuck you too, I say calmly. I leave her to go activate the timer on the explosive charges outside the clean room. Thirty seconds starts ticking down. I activate the charges in the junker car, toss another next to the barrel for good measure, and hop in the driver's seat of the taxi as Volga tosses one of her charges into the clean room too. I follow the path of the syndicate operators down into the tunnels. If you've got to leave the field, do it in style, I mutter without heart. Soon as the old drill instructor's words are out of my mouth, the concussion of the charges going off shakes the tunnel. A second set of charges goes off a minute later at the tunnel's entrance, collapsing it behind us. We drive in silence, vulgar pinched in the seat next to mine. The high of the heist died with Dano. Neither Volga nor I expected to survive this, and now that we have, the weight of living comes crashing down on the big girl. She rolls down her window and closes her eyes, sticking her hand out into the wind like it's a dolphin riding the waves. She sits six inches from me, but we might as well be worlds apart. Cold, fetid air from the tunnels rolls through the car, we pass ramps going down deeper into the undergrid of the city. The tension works its way out of my jaw, but the sight of Dano's blood on the fists of the gold oozes through my skull. Volga links her data pad with the taxi and turns on Guidovecci. As his piano plays a gentle melody and we carve our way through the darkness, 
tears stream from her eyes, but not from mine. Part 3 Dust From House Ra Pulvis et Umbro Sumus We Are But Dust and Shadow Chapter 40 Lysander the Bleeding Place Cassius is lost in thought. Staring up at a dragon carved into the stone of the antechamber, its snout is long, its greedy more open and lined with uneven teeth. The bold knight that faced down the Ra family has departed, leaving behind the tormented, reflective soul I know. The wounds where the grusely pierced his face are swollen and red, but he's shaved his beard and looks younger than he has in years. Only his eyes are old. What are you thinking, I ask? He does not seem to hear me. The distant voices from a hundred throats whisper from behind two black doors down a set of stone stairs just beneath the dragon's gaze. Our grey guards give us space, allowing us to speak. Cassius? It was a flower, he says quietly. A flower? I realise he is far from here. A white edelweiss. That was the last thing father gave me before he died. He pauses, eyes still fixed on the dragon. He rarely speaks of his family. It was a proud day, he says slowly. He spares a look at the guards. You were too young then. Mother kept you at Eagle Rest. But the rest of us were in Aegea, on the citadel steps, where Augustus used to give the perennial address. The sovereign summoned us there for a council of war. Augustus's ships were two days from Deimos. The sun was high in the sky. You could feel the energy of a storm in the air. Wind had already come, rain was following. I remember smelling the flowering Judas trees from the steps, and, for once, our silver eagle flew from the flagpoles of the citadel, where all my life I'd only seen lions. It was to be the end of a corrupt Mars and the beginning of our era. We had the numbers, we had the right, and once we defeated Augustus, we would have Mars, something Father never coveted, so I knew he would treat her well. But I was ashamed. After I lost the deal to Darrow, my father told me he was disappointed. Not that I had lost. He was ashamed at my selfishness. He grimaces. My petty pride. The carvers mended me, and I put myself to one purpose. Redemption in his eyes. I begged the sovereign to let me lead the legions sent to trap Augustus at the dockyards of Ganymede after Pliny gave us the intel. She sent Barker along to ensure I did not fail. I didn't. I returned to Aegea, dragging Augustus behind us in chains. I found redemption in her eyes, but I didn't have fathers till we stood on those steps, and he saw how I'd changed. He was to meet the Augustans in orbit with our cousins and sisters. I was given the rest of our family forces to defend Aegea. You've never known pride like it, Castor. The shining faces, the laughter, the hair and penance kicking in the wind as two full generations of Bologna strolled out from the summit in armour under the sun. He turned to me at the foot of the stairs and told me he loved me. He'd done it a thousand times before, but it was different. The boy has fled, he said. In his place I see a man. It was the first time I felt I deserved his love, to be his son. I realised how lucky I was, how blessed I was to have a father like him. In a world of terrible men he was patient, kind, noble in the way the stories told us to be as boys. I glanced to see if the guards are listening. Their faces from the bridge of the nose down are covered with duroplastic breathing units. The flinty eyes that peer out from beneath the grey hoods give nothing away. 
He took an Edelweiss from a pouch in his armour and pressed it into my hands and told me to remember home, to remember the Olympus Mons, to remember why we fight, not for family or for pride, but for life. The flower had grown near his favourite bench on a ridgeline there, just beyond the outbuildings of the rest. He'd climbed to that ridgeline every day before the sun set to find peace from us children from work, he smiles, from mother. Sometimes, if I was very lucky and quiet, he would let me walk with him, and we'd talk or just sit and watch the eagles visit their nests in the crags. It was the only time I remember being truly happy, not craving something more. Julian was mother's favourite, but father didn't play that game. He smiles. I know he was not happy with the venal creature I became in the years before the Institute, or the bitter one thereafter, but there on the steps, when he pressed the flower into my hands, I knew I'd finally become the man he always hoped I would be. There are tears in his eyes. What happened to the flower? I asked gently, not wanting to break the spell. I lost it in the mud. He looks back to me in shame. I didn't think it would be the last time I would ever see him. He's quiet, wrestling with something larger than the fear of the coming duel. All of them are dead, all those shining faces dimmed, their laughter, just silence. I want to see them again. He almost says my name before catching himself. He looks to the door. Hear them. Feel father's hands on my head. But I won't, not even when I die. The void is all that will greet me. You won't die today, Cassius. You can beat him, I say, knowing that even if he wins, our lives are likely forfeit. You are the morning knight. You are still that good man as our father saw, and you were not meant to be the last Bologna. My brother. He smiles and rests a hand on my shoulder. Sometimes I forget how young you are. I'm not afraid that I won't beat him. He looks up at the dragon, past her teeth and into the hungry darkness of her throat. I'm afraid because this world is all that is. Carnus was right. He smiles at a private joke. But who knows, perhaps the darkness will be kinder than the light. He looks down at the black doors and listens to the voices beyond them. No matter what fate waits beyond those doors, do not acquiesce. If they have their evidence, they have their war. It is our duty, even if it is our last, to prevent that war, to protect the people. It is not our republic to protect, I say. That's Octavius speaking, not you. Of course it is our to protect. Why? It's a broken place that betrayed us. The people you want to save are being ground into the dirt. Dido is right. The reaper has failed. I pause. Choices were made, I say slowly, choosing my words with care so he does not feel assaulted. Though I may not agree, I understand why you made them. The sovereign let the jackal massacre our family. She was a tyrant, I know that. The society was corrupt. But look what's replaced it. The people on that ship. I see them every night, and I think what I could have done better. But they didn't die because I chose to help gold first. They died because of Darrow. I hesitate. You opened Pandora's box. Now you've spent those years trying to justify the choices you made. I lower my voice. Guarding the orphan you created, patrolling the trade lanes you endangered. Maybe this is your chance, our chance, to put things back together. Not by hunting pirates out in the middle of nowhere, but by restoring order. You want to give them their evidence, their war? I do. He steps very close to me so only I can hear. You open that safe, you're dead too. You won't have a chance to fix anything as soon as they find out who you really are. That's a chance I'm willing to take. Stop thinking with your cock. Seraphina doesn't give half a shit about you. She's bait that Dido is dangling like a piece of meat. I snort. 
It's not about her, Cassius. No, it's about revenge, isn't it? Your revenge. You took yours, I say quietly. I watched him stand over my grandmother as she bled to death. I watched him kill Aja, the woman who was like a mother to me. You don't sleep. You drink. You preach and hunt pirates. We've never been in one place longer than a month. You think that is because you're protecting me? You think it's because you have a sacred duty to save merchants who chose to risk the belt to line their own pockets? Stop lying to yourself for one gory damn moment and admit that you made a mistake. You let the wolves through the door. Being a good man won't fix what you've done, neither will suspending yourself in a state of constant motion. There is no atonement except killing the wolves, shutting the door and re-establishing order. That is how we make things better than they are now. It's how we can fix the worlds. Even though I know the intransigence of my friend, I hold out some boyish hope that my words will arouse some sense inside him. Instead, inexorably, his eyes harden. Our world darkens, and I know our fellowship is ended. I had you for ten years. She had you for a breath. Is her spell so complete? I feel pity as I see him realize he has failed, not to protect me, but to convince me that he was right, that the pain he caused me was just. If he could convince me, me of all people, then perhaps he thought he would convince himself and know beyond all doubt that what he did was good. I've robbed him of that hope and any chance for his heart to be at peace. Ten years of brotherhood evaporate in a breath. We stare at one another and see strangers. He snaps his fingers at the guards. We're done here. They come forward and I step aside so they can lead him away down the stairs to his death. At the bottom of the steps he stops. This duel isn't for me. It's for you. If you love me at all, you will let me die. Beyond the black doors, down a narrow chasm of grey rock, lies the bleeding place. It is a circular amphitheatre carved into the stone of the mountain. Amongst sculpted lotus flowers, stone dragons, slick and pearly with condensation, hang down from the dark ceiling as if to drink the blood, centuries of Ra have spilled here to satisfy quarrels. Servants finish scraping yellow and green moss from a section of tiered benches carved into the rock. The benches encircle a white marble floor. At the centre of the floor, the sigil of gold has been emblazoned onto the pale stone. Hundreds of gold stand to watch from the stone as the brilliant son of Mars goes to meet their pale champion. Many are Ionian, but I see a Cordovan crest, a Norvo, a Felix, and scores more. A dozen moons are represented, and not just Jupiter's. I'm guided to a bench in the third row where the Ra family sit more than thirty strong, despite the gaps in their ranks from those imprisoned along with Romulus and the dust cells. The rim obeys the old customs. I look anywhere but at Cassius as a chance. A young girl of the white cast carrying a white bag leads a justice, an old blind woman with milky eyes and translucent hair, on to the fighting floor. One day the little girl will grow old and, if she reaches a state of transcendence, she will summon the courage to chemically blind herself and become a justice herself. It is the ultimate honour of this hierophant race. Raised in monastic sanctuaries, they endeavour to divorce themselves from their humanity and embody the spirit of justice though many whites in my grandmother's society aspired to more worldly and profitable heights. The dualists bend to their knees as the frail hierophant whispers blessings to them and touches her sacerdotal iron rod and laurel branch on each of their shoulders. Cassius stares at the floor, maybe still in that day on Mars with his father. When the justice has finished her benediction, she is led to her bone chair at the edge of the marble by white adjuncts. Chance pulls the string from the bag and litters white sand onto the floor until a large, 
unbroken circle is formed around the two men. I remember seeing the blood fill the white sand when I would go to the bleeding place as a boy to watch young peerless fillet one another over perceived slights. Seems just yesterday I saw Cassius, bold and young, cutting his way up through the duelists of Luna. I always thought the practice stupid, a vain exercise of pride. I am numb to it now, replaying my conversation with Cassius over in my head, torn between honouring him and honouring my own conscience. Someone slides into the empty place on the stone next to me. I turn to see Seraphina. Her eyes surprise me with their sympathy. Is Cassius right? Would that sympathy vanish if the safe opened and she knew who I was? Would she let me die? Of course. Our ancestors have loathed one another for centuries. I'm sorry you must watch this, she says. If you were, you would have stopped it, I reply. It wasn't just me who saved your life, but of course, I assume you think gratitude a coward's conceit. I said I was sorry you must watch, not that he must die. He didn't kill your sister or your grandfather, no matter how absurdly you wished to twist it. He arrived after the massacre, and he was following orders from his sovereign. He partook, blood is on his hands, and so his will be on yours. I tire of looking at her. The slight imperfections, the heavy eyes, the sullen mouth, which I found so alluring, are now ugly and small. She stares on at me. The reaper took your family when you were a boy, Bologna. Can you forget? Can you forgive? I remain silent because I don't know the answer. Dido watches Cassius on the floor from amongst her family. Farther down, ancient Gaia sits smoking her pipe, still playing the fool. And past her, separate from the family, Diomedes sits with a clutch of Olympic knights. They wear all black. Peerless steel glances at him, each with their own judgment of his honour for not being the one to challenge Cassius. He's the only Ra here who retains any of my respect. The knights alone have not taken a side in the coup, as ordered by Helios Aulox, arch-knight of their order. The Olympics sit in the gulf between a divided room. I discovered from eavesdropping that half of the powerful golds in here were called to Sungrave from their own mountain cities or moons before the coup began, under the false auspices of an emergency summons sent out by Dido under Romulus's warrant. They have been disarmed and held prisoner by Dido's men since they arrived. No armed obsidians or greys. Low colours are not allowed in this place. Duels are sacrosanct, propriety and manners imperative in the audience. We'll see how long that lasts. Dido stands and raises her hand for silence. Her allies quiet respectfully, but as an insult her husband's allies speak on with one another and turn their backs to express their antipathy. It infuriates Dido. You know the face, her words are drowned out, you know the face of... Romulus's men speak even louder. At her side, Seraphina watches with faint amusement. Diomedes does not help his mother, nor does the arch-knight Helios. Bellerophon looks to Dido for instruction. She flicks her hand for him to begin and sits down with her jaw set in anger. The knight slams his razor on the ground, once, twice, till the room is silent. Cassius, out below, now I see you. Bellerophon stalks around the ring, his razor trailing behind. You wretched buzzard, you spineless cur, you conspired to kill my grandfather and liege, you sought to kill my cousin in the flower of her life, you betrayed the compact of society and aided the slave king of Mars, you came here in disguise, intent on mischief, he smiles. For these insults you shall whimper and bleed. Even Romulus's men are silent and stare down at Cassius, all know how he betrayed the sovereign, even if they did not claim her as their own. Coincidence, bringing Cassius into the rim, beggars belief. 
so they require little to convince them that Darrow sent him here for some nefarious purpose. Cassius knows this, and so does Dido. Absent her evidence, she uses this to quell the dissent over her coup. I came of my own accord, Cassius says to deaf ears. I have no affiliation with the Republic. Bellerophon laughs. Liar. Bring evidence if you think me a liar and try me. No? Then you have no evidence and you resort to blood feuds for justice. An absurdity in itself. But what can one expect from rim rustics? No one ever taught you manners. He chuckles. As for the blood feud, it I do not dispute. The peerless meet the concession with hungry silence. The blood of children and many more is on my hands. I expect no mercy. I ask only that if I fall, honour my bones and send them to the sun. Bellerophon spits boorishly on the ground. You will have no honour. Your corpse I will feed to my hounds so they might shit Bologna. But your eyes I will put in a jar so they might watch as I feed your brother to the dust. Seraphina makes a disgusted sound. Amongst the Olympic knights and much of the room, the proclamation is met with sharp disapproval. Helios makes a motion to Diomedes, who booms out an affirmation. You will be so honoured in your way, Bologna. This maddens his cousin, and Bellerophon almost flies into the crowd to strike at Diomedes to finish their earlier affair. I feel Dido's eyes on me, and I know Cassius was right, again. Of course, this is all for me. They think I am the weak link, that to spare Cassius's life I will give them what Cassius will not. Fools. They see my slender hands and naked face and believe me weak. Dangerous game, judging a blade by its scabbard. I stay seated, silent, watching as Bellerophon shouts at chance and gestures to the bit of elm she holds in her hand. Break the damn stick, girl, before I do it for you. Startled, chance bends the elm, and as it snaps, the duel begins. The men do not lash into one another, but pace in a circle, measuring. Seldom have the forms of the core and the rim met in duels, at least after Derivus forbade any Ionians from dueling on Luna. Most of the rim houses followed his lead. As is old custom, neither duelist wears armour, though Cassius is allowed an aegis. A small shield generator embedded in a metal vambrace on the back of his left forearm. In his right hand he carries a coiled razor. They could have given him their unfamiliar, longer haster, but instead gave him a razor of the interior. Bellerophon's haster slithers on the ground behind him like an oiled snake, nearly three metres long in whip and two metres in lance. In a scabbard on his left hip he carries the short Kitari thrusting sword. Hardening his razor into its lance form, Bellerophon raises the wicked black blade. Hands above his head, the weapon pointed toward Cassius so that Bellerophon looks like some strange, pale scorpion with its long stinger wagging in the air. It is the shadowfall stance of the rim's razor masters. He's a shade, I ask Seraphina. She does not answer, her eyes devour the scene with excitement. Cassius observes the alien stance warily. He holds his blade rigid and at his side with one hand in the summer hold of the willow way. His aegis he holds tight to his chest, ready to activate the shield. I blink, and by the time my lid pulls back from my pupil, Bellerophon's blade has spun in his hands, changed to whip form, and now slashes at Cassius's face. Cassius bends back, too slow. The whip slices a chunk of scalp off the front of his forehead. Blood sheets down his face. Bellerophon uses his momentum to spin with his whip forward, lashing it into another strike toward Cassius's leg. His attack relies on the length of the haster and his height to send the black blade falling down in a frenzy of incredibly swift blows. It reminds me more of Darrow than Aja or Cassius. Blinking the blood out of his eyes, Cassius falls back under the onslaught. 
bending and circling and deflecting as the ground sparks from the metal whip. His own whip is useless against the longer reach of Bellerophon's, so he uses it in rigid form for defence and relies on his aegis to turn away most blows. Time and again he tries to close the distance, but while Cassius is stronger, Bellerophon is the quicker of the two, more accustomed to the gravity here. He shuffles his feet instead of lifting them. Each time Cassius attempts to close, Bellerophon slides back, calls his razor to rigid form and nearly spears him through the stomach. The two men part, their world tiny and furious. Their bodies tell them to flee the metal and break out of the horrible confines of the circle, but their minds tether them together and again they lash out. It has been years since Cassius has faced a man like this. I am not sure he has ever faced Shadowfall in an actual duel. Each is a master of their craft, using their litany of tricks hard-learned over the years, each probing, testing, then locking into a furious spate of exchanges, arms a blinding flurry, the whips nothing but blurred movement. Blood sprays across the white marble and into the stands where it spatters the face of a young child three rows back. I can't even tell which man is wounded until Cassius stumbles away, a flap of skin and muscle folding over a long laceration all the way to the bone of his left shoulder. Blood pours out. Bellerophon seizes the moment and presses his attack. You can stop this, Dido says past Seraphina. Give me the code and he lives. He doesn't need my help. Despite my words, I watch in fear as Cassius falls back before Bellerophon and the momentum tips in the Rim Knight's favour. I thought Cassius invincible, part of a story that could never exist without him in it. They can't see the grandness of him. They can't see the warmth, the pain, the regret, the love. All they see is a vessel for their hate. They stare down at him pitilessly, thinking his death their right, even those adversaries who despise Dido's coup. In the circle, Cassius can barely see for the blood in his eyes. He has no time to wipe them clean. He's losing too much from his shoulder and now is pressed against the edge of the circle. His heels scrape the sand. Bellerophon lashes at him, maintaining his distance, but Cassius continues to turn away the whip with his aegis. The metal cracks into the small energy shield and bounces back, sending blue sparks hissing through the air as Cassius activates it milliseconds before each blow lands to prevent the shield from overheating. Smoke already rises from the battery pack. Bellerophon batters Cassius down, blow after blow, till Cassius is on a knee, the whip raining down on his smoking shield. Bellerophon's whip arcs in a high overhead strike. Cassius raises his arm, yet again to deflect, but then his aegis winks out. The whip slashes down onto Cassius's raised left arm and coils tight around it. Bellerophon could rip off Cassius's arm from the elbow down, but he's caught in the middle of his acrobatics, expecting to meet the aegis again and for the whip to bounce back. He loses half a second. Now Cassius attacks. He uses the snapping branch gambit. Springing forward with his thick legs just as he jerks on the whip with his arm, he pulls Bellerophon off balance toward him. With his left hand, Bellerophon desperately brings his katari up to block Cassius, but Cassius bats the small blade to the side with his razor and then cuts diagonally at Bellerophon's right arm, which holds the haster. His diamond-hard blade cleaves through the bone of the man's arm like it's pudding. An open artery sprays a single spurt of blood two metres long. Cassius spins with his momentum and cuts in the other direction. The metal severs Bellerophon's remaining arm at the forearm. Both limbs spin to the floor. Bellerophon totters, looking at the weeping red stumps and the pale bone poking out from the meat, mouth opening and closing like a stunned dog's. I almost surge to my feet in a joyful shout as Cassius sets his hand on Bellerophon's shoulder and guides him gently to his knees. He looks up at Dido. Prime show, my friend. 
damn prime show. Do not waste a man like this, Cassius says. He bled for you. He doesn't have to die. Release me and mine, agree to our terms, and his life will be spared. Dido glowers down at him. Not for a moment does she entertain the idea of sparing her nephew. A cold heart beats in that chest. Bellerophon, she asks, your fate is yours. Pulvis et umbra sumus, he shivers. Akari bear witness. Honor calls him to the dark. What a waste of a man. But there is something beautiful in it all the same. His body shakes and I marvel at the life's worth of discipline that goes to keeping himself erect on his knees. The pale, raw knight looks to his family, his slender, Norvo wife, and up to the dragons of his ancestors on the ceiling. Cassius hacks his head off at the spine. Beside me, anger roils from Seraphina as her cousin dies. This is your fault, my son, Dido says to Diomedes. Amidst his knights, watching his cousin die in his stead, he looks stunned and stricken with guilt, almost as immense as my relief. Bleeding from his forehead and shoulder, drenched in sweat, Cassius manages to smile at me, knowing that I could have given in to Dido, but did not. He raises his chin and lifts his voice for all to hear. I am Cassius Albalona, son of Tiberius, son of Julia, morning night, and my honour remains. It is over. He has won. The matter is settled, though I don't know what shape the next moments will take, and then I look over at Seraphina, ready to console her on the loss of her cousin, only to see implacable Dido's face unchanged, her hand in the air, her fingers snapping together. Forbearer, she calls. My hope sinks and Cassius's face falls as a young, hawkish woman with a bald pate hefts her razor and jumps from the second row over the heads of those sitting on the benches beneath. She lands on the edge of the white marble and paces toward Cassius, her long razor rigid. She spits on the floor and enters the circle where she crows her challenge to Cassius, her name and her right as cousin to open his veins. It's over, I say in protest to Dido. The feud was settled with Bellerophon. His feud is with the House of Ra, she replies. There is a part of me that wants to rail against her and decry her hypocrisy, but the look she gives me is so reptilian that it activates the colder part of my own blood. The shock disappears, and I work to understand. Do you support this? I ask Seraphina. Though surprised at her mother's action, Seraphina says nothing. Don't look to her, Dido snarls. I preside here. That creature murdered my daughter. He killed Rivas. The room cries for blood. Then, very softly, Dido leans toward me. But I can forget. I can forgive. And you can end this. Open the safe. Dangerous woman. I look down at Cassius and let my silence answer. Dido sighs. A pity. For bearer, honour house, Ra. She is not a shade, but she is fast and knows this gravity. She lunges at him with her razor, roving and probing like she's hunting boar. Knowing he's losing too much blood, she tries to draw out the duel, but Cassius continues to charge and close. She's more agile than Bellerophon, but not so powerful. Cassius manages to pin her against the rim of the circle, where they exchange a dangerous series of slashing parries. She scores two cuts on his right leg, but has no time to save at the moment. I see her die two seconds before it happens. Cassius flows into the autumn wind movement as easily as if he were sparring together with blunted weapons on the Arche. He strikes three times at head level, locks blades, pushes against her so she counters his force, then he pivots right and slides his blade over top hers in a leverage position, so the tip enters her forehead and pushes through her brain before coming out her throat and through her jaw. She dies before she hits the ground. He slides his blade from her skull, flicks off the grey gristle coating it, 
and limps to turn and face Dido. I am Cassius Albalona, son of Tiberius, son of Julia, morning night, and my honour remains. Dido snaps her fingers. Belagra. Another knight jumps down. Seraphina, you're going to lose another cousin, I say, knowing that this execution wears on her. Diomedes does not retain his composure. Mother, enough! Belagra, honour house Ra. The knight surges toward Cassius. This one was not the same quality as the first two and dies quicker than Fibera. Cassius parries a weak blow and splits the man down the middle. His halves twitch on the floor and leak his life's blood into the gold sigil. But something strange has happened. Despite the condemnation of the Olympic knights, the room roils with volunteers. Each death decays their manners and resolve and reaches into the crowd with forked, root-like fingers to enrage and poison another soul. A lover there, a cousin, a friend, a drinking companion, a brother-in-arms. From Dido's allies to Romulus's, the anger boils. It dawns on me, then, the cruel stratagem the woman has devised. I don't doubt that her hatred of Cassius is real, but they do not waste in the rim. Each death is a down payment for her war. Absent her holodrop evidence, she uses my friends to boil the blood, to distract, to bind her allies and foes together in anger. And the more raw that fall, the more her position solidifies, the more the blood of the rim is raised against the interior and not against her coup. This is the depth of her conviction, a willing sacrifice of her own kin to reveal whatever truth hides within our safe. I witnessed Dido at long last, the immensity of her resolve, the cruelness of her intellect, and I am terrified to think that I ever was so arrogant as to presume her Romulus is inferior simply because I'd heard his legend more. She reminds me of the woman who taught me all I know, more passionate, less subtle, but a shade of my grandmother dwells in this woman. At her side, Seraphina sits with a weary expression that seems to say she understands all but will suffer it because she must. But I cannot watch my brother suffer much longer. There will be no end to it. No mercy, just death, and for what? Cassius limps to his feet again, and standing over the body of his foe, the floor is littered with them. I am Cassius Albalona, he pants for breath, barely able to go on. Son of Tiberius, son of Julia, he squares his shoulders and summons his pride to lift his voice. Morning, night, and my honour remains. Mother, stop this madness, Diomedes cries out. He is one. How many of our blood will you throw away? As many as honour demands, she says. Save your kin, Diomedes. He does not rise. A pity, Dido replies. I feel the words coming before they leave her lips because I saw Seraphina's legs bouncing, her fingers tightening the laces on her boots, and I saw Dido notice the glances shared between us at dinner. Now the woman turns to me, only one card left to play, and she plays it well. Seraphina, honour house Ra. Chapter 41. Lysander. Heart. Seraphina bolts upward like a coon released from its leash. She leaps, clearing the heads of those seated beneath us, and pulls free her razor before she lands on the killing floor. Diomedes watches in fear for his little sister, but the golds clamouring for their chance to face Cassius now sit back down in disappointed silence. They think the matter settled. Seraphina is the executioner. Cassius bleeds and sweats, his golden curls matted to his forehead, his knuckles sliced and savaged by metal. Blood soaks his shoes. His body is shaking from pain as steam trails off his flayed skin and open meat, but still he stands using one of the discarded haster for a crutch, watching neutrally as tall Seraphina lopes into the circle. This is his end, 
but there's nothing glorious about it. All I feel now is dread. The same dread from that day when I watched my grandmother die and did nothing to stop it. Not even when I saw Cassius and the Reaper's pack finish Arja. I cannot hate him for his part. It was I who did nothing to protect those I love, and I do love him. In this moment, he is true and pure, and in a way, everything I wanted to be as a child. Tears, unwelcome and unfamiliar, leak out my eyes as Cassius looks at me and shakes his head. Let me die, he is saying. That is all he wants, absolution in death. But it is the wrong absolution, the wrong death. Seraphina steps past the corpses of her cousins and nods to Cassius. Bologna, would that we had met as equals. You deserve better. We all deserve the worms, Ra. Cassius replies. He wipes blood from his paling face. Shall we meet them together? In reply, Seraphina draws up into the shadow fall, the shade herself, and Cassius sinks into the willow way. Hoping to surprise her and knowing he can't last for long, Cassius lunges forward with his remaining strength. It is not enough. She ripples into motion. Not as fast as Darrow, not as strong as Arja, but smoother than either could ever hope to be, sliding sideways easy as a bird's shadow over the sea. She blocks his blade with her haster and spins her katari from her belt and hammers the blunted handle into his knuckles. Cassius's razor slips out of his hand and skitters over the bloody marble. He hunches without a weapon, panting. Sluggishly, he lunges for another discarded razor, but Seraphina cracks her whip and sends the weapon Cassius seeks flying into one of the walls. She stands over Cassius and allows him one last honour. My friend crawls to his knees, pauses there, gathering his breath, and with a groan manages to gain his feet. Dazed, he looks around the arena, lost until his eyes desperately find me. He gives me one last smile. One of thanks because he thinks that I have let him die for his cause. But I watched Arja die, I watched Grandmother die, and I did nothing but huddle in fear. I stayed silent and obeyed when Cassius said, follow, because I was afraid by crossing him I would lose him and be alone. Here at the end of the world, in the belly of a mountain surrounded by enemies, what is left to fear? I will not watch any longer. I launch myself from my seat, sailing in the low gravity over the heads of the golds beneath me to land on the white stone of the killing floor just outside the circle. Seraphina turns around at the sound, stunned. I hold out my hands to the guards, showing I have no weapons. Don't, Cassius slurs. I won't let them kill you. Do not step into the circle, Seraphina growls. You have no right to this fight. His crimes are his alone. I turn to face Dido and the host of Ra. I have every right. I let the Martian drawl molt away from my voice like a tattered cloak to reveal my Hyperion heart beneath, and for a moment I feel proud to represent the City of Light here, so far from home. Luna may never have been perfect, may never have been as noble as I thought it was as a boy, but it gave peace for seven hundred years. I tire of apologising for it, of being afraid of my own heritage. My days of running and hiding behind others are finished. I will no longer fear my name. My name is Lysander Aulun, I bellow into the cold room. I did not know what weight my name still had, but the seismic tremors that now shake the room bring chills to my flesh and deep, powerful pride. Hate my grandmother all they like. The blood in my veins comes from Selenius the Lightbringer, greatest of our kind. It is the myth of my ancestors these people wrap themselves in. The first Ra elected Selenius sovereign. They bowed to him, as did all Ra thereafter until this generation. Seraphina almost drops her razor. Her jaw hangs open. Dido curses under her breath and leans back in her seat, unable to comprehend it. Diomedes stands, a look of childish awe on his grave face. Cassius watches in silence, his heart breaking in his chest. 
I am the blood of Selenius, the Lightbringer, son of Anastasia, son of Brutus, grandson of Lorn, our Arcus, the Stoneside, and Octavia, the Sovereign of Man. I was born upon the Palatine, west of Hyperion, at the heart of Luna and the City of Light. I may know little of the Rim, but even in the heart of Empire they spoke of the honour of House Ra, of the Moon Lords, chief among them the Ionian Golds. Where has it gone? Has it deserted you? Has it fled after the tremors of war? You may have lost it, forgotten it, but I have not forgotten mine, and my honour will not let me sit idly as this travesty unfolds. I feel Cassius's agony, but I cannot look at him. Your blood feud is sated by any measure. The Bologna have been wiped from the face of the worlds. Do not fall prey to the very cannibalism that allowed the rising to flourish. This man, this gold, is not your enemy. I am not your enemy. The slave king is. I turn in a cold fury to Dido. Bring me the safe. Chapter 42 Ephraim Lucky you. We pull out of the rain onto the fiftieth floor of an abandoned building on the outskirts of a reconstruction zone. I turn off the music and look out through the windshield. Lights glare down from the level above. Exposed electrical lines and ventilation tubes snake through the building. In his chrome suit and black high-collared duster, Gorgo waits in a grand old dilapidated green armchair beside an industrial lift. Smoking burners. Purple smoke slithers in a halo around his gigantic head. Never thought I'd be happy to see him, I say to Volga, but I don't get out of the car. Will they honour the contract? Volga asks. I check the account. Twenty-five million sits in the balance. Put there when the operators confirmed we had the prize. We get the rest on delivery. Don't know. You told the others they would? No shit. What else would I say? I look back into the passenger compartment. The prizes are twitching under the plastic tarp. The anacene is wearing off. Hyperion is about to be thrown off its axis. The syndicate is making a play. Can't even begin to guess what they want, but I wish I could see Lionheart's face when she finds out. She pardoned gold rapists, slavers, murderers. Now comes the bill for stabbing the rest of us in the back, and she'll find, as the rest of us have, that she can be touched by this war as well. I should feel driven by righteousness, but instead I feel dirty, sitting here with my human cargo. A man has to have a code. When did mine begin to include kidnapping children? They can't very well break their own rules, I say, trying to convince myself. Are they broken if no one knows? Volga asks. When did you become a philosopher? I am wise. You are smart. This has always been our way. She sets a comforting hand on my shoulder. You stay here, wise one. I can carry them myself. I get out of the car. Volga follows. I look at her as she looked back willfully. All right. Together, then. Yes, together. We haul the prizes out of the car. I lean in and lift the bag off Lyria's head, positioning myself so that Gorgo can't see her hidden in the back. Remember, rabbit, silence is golden. 
I set the bag back and leave her in the car. I let Volga carry both the prizes over her shoulders to Gorgo. He stands as we approach, eclipsing me by more than a foot and a hundred kilos. His black shark eyes drift back and forth between us and the prizes. Right on schedule. The Duke awaits. He puts out his burner and motions for us to stop. No weapons. I put my pistol on the chair, and Volga sets her plasma rifle down. Gorgo pats my arms, torso, balls, and legs with his huge hands. You enjoying that? I ask. Wordless, he slides the stiletto out of my boot and takes four more knives out of Volga's jacket. Really? I ask her. She shrugs. Gorgo finds two more knives in her boots and an acid shooter strapped to her calf. He stacks these with our other weapons and seems amused by the collection. Little Crow likes toys. Would you like to be one of mine? She ignores his predatory smile. With the children in tow, we take a lonely lift up to the fifty-second floor where the Duke waits for us amongst a host of syndicate thorns. They stand in the shadows of the half-constructed high-rise, light from their burners catching on jewellery, platinum smiles and chrome job eye implants. At the far side of the floor, a sleek luxury yacht rests outside on one of the high-rise landing pads. The Duke applauds as we approach. A debt was owed. A debt is paid. He wears a jet-black asp-skin jacket with long, calf-length tails. His lipstick is violet tonight, and he sits behind a plastic table with a steaming pile of half-eaten crab claws and two bottles of wine. Punctual, well-dressed, and devastatingly handsome. My dear Ephraim, you are a treasure. He eyes vulgar. You brought a bodyguard this time. How precocious of you. She's luggage detail. The three obsidian men behind him stare at vulgar. All are ice obsidian, probably ex-legion, and wear dusters and their bright white hair long and unbound. The biggest is a head taller than vulgar and has emerald piercings in his chin. He grinds the haft of a chrome pulse axe into the concrete floor. The prizes, as agreed upon, I say flatly. The nights exhausted me. Dano's death, robbing me of any humour. Vulgar hands over the prizes to two thorns, who lay them down on the table. The duke pulls the hoods off the children's faces and coos to himself. My, 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 the queen will be pleased. See, I told you, Gorgo, he's pure quality, syndicate material. Gorgo shrugs. Gorgo here did not think you were up to the task. He thought you would run. Fly to Earth, Mars, but no, I said. A man's reputation is his life's work. It is all he has. 
and you have lived up to yours. That Gravwell, he shudders. Patent Ephraim T. Horn. He looks down at the children, focusing on Pax. Hello, little prince. He bends to inspect the boy more closely. You may call me Dominus. He rears back and slaps the boy across the face. Vulgar twitches. A red welt forms on Pax's cheek. Weep. He slaps him again. Weep. Pax stares on at him, trying to be brave. Weep. The Duke's voice loses the affected polish bit by bit till it sounds like an animal inside him is trying to escape. Weep! 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 The sight of it disgusts me, but I stay rigidly still, afraid. My Duke, Gorgo says. The Duke looks up at him, murder in his eyes. Gorgo stares back evenly but says nothing more. The Duke slaps Pax again and tears finally leak out of the boy's eyes. The Duke shudders with pleasure and tucks back the pink locks of hair that have fallen over his eyes. He takes a teardrop on the tip of his finger and licks it off with his eyes closed. Tates like justice. His men laugh. Vulgar's trembling with anger. Poor girl looks like she's going to lurch forward and strangle the man. I shake my head at her, but her eyes are fixed on the duke. The man's voice softens to a coo as he bends to stroke Pax's face. There, there, little prince, do not weep. Shh. Consider me an ambassador. "'welcoming you to the real world. "'The rest of us have been here for some time. "'But do not worry. "'You'll soon learn the rules.' "'He turns to his thorns. "'Put them in my yacht. "'No rough play. "'We mustn't damage the Queen's merchandise. "'She has quite a plan for them.' "'The men haul the children up and take them away.' Volga's eyes follow them till they disappear into the ship. Apologies, he says, the polish back. At the root, I am a creature of severe passion. I expect the rest of my payment now, I say, eyeing the thorns behind me. They've crept closer. My voice sounds dead even to my ears. Yes, yes. He makes a dismissive gesture to a thorn. My datapad vibrates as the funds transfer. Thank you, I say, checking the number. It's been a pleasure doing business. That's it? The Duke asks, raising his plucked eyebrows. Am I a payday so summarily dismissed? I thought our fraternity ran deeper. I even saved you a bottle of La Dame Chanceuse. I was hoping we could drink it together. Now? Yes, now. A toast to a success for the ages. A triumph for the little men. It's been a long night. I'm not thirsty. My darling Ephraim, 
Where did the rogue go? Where is the bluster, the charisma? Dirty deeds deserve sweet reward. His fingers run along the edge of the bottle. If I didn't know better, I'd think your scruples were rankled. You hide a professional, I say. If you want a social companion, I suggest you call up some pink entertainment. I hear they're splendid company. His smile disappears. Thank you again for your time, my good duke. I turn to leave. Volga doesn't turn with me. What will you do with the children? She asks. No, no, no. I turn back around. The duke's eyebrows float upward. It speaks. But she's passionate too, I say. Means nothing by it. Come on, Volga. Not at all, the duke beams. It's a fair question for the curious crow after all the sweat and ill deeds. What if I told you I was going to give them to the big brutes behind me to play with as I was played with my entire life? The duke asks. What would you do? Volga doesn't answer. What if I said I was planning to feed them to ants? What response would that elicit? Violence, perhaps? He smiles. Yes, I think so. Morality is a dangerous thing for a thief to possess in companies such as this. I pull Volga's arm. Would be easier to tug on a house. I'm about to say something when a pipe clanks behind us, near the stairs beside the elevators. The thorns wheel around with their weapons as a bolt of red hair disappears down the stairwell. The duke snaps his fingers and his obsidians are loosed, their long legs covering the distance in two breaths and they fly down the stairs. My blood runs cold. You stupid girl. Gorgo blocks our path to the elevators. Did you bring company? The duke asked me. No. Are you certain? There are motion detectors on all the entrances. Your flyer was the only one allowed in. Who did you bring with you? No one. My crew's gone to ground. Sit. I'm about to object, but Gorgo shoves me into the chair in front of the table. Two obsidians wrestle vulgar down. One shoves an industrial laser cutter in front of her face. The red beam wavers close to her eyes. She goes still. In the distance, we hear the muffled sounds of scorchers going off. I feel myself darkening. I let a rabbit into the wolf den. Now they tear her apart. The Duke waits, staring at me, a single vein pulsing under his right temple until one of his obsidians returns. I hold my breath at the sound of boots approaching. When the man finally comes to the duke's table, I can breathe. Miraculously, he's empty-handed. It was a ruster, he rumbles. She escaped. The duke stares at him. A red escaped you. Belloc? We had her cornered, 
She dove into a ventilation shaft. She's likely pulp. A ventilation shaft? We could not fit. It led down. Harald and Hierfjord hunt. They will bring her head back by its bone tail. The Duke continues to stare at the brute until the obsidian lowers his eyes in fear. He glances plaintively to the other obsidians, but there's no pity in their arctic eyes. I am disappointed in you, Belog. Yes, Lord. Do you know what the Queen would do if she were disappointed? The obsidian glances at Gorgo, who's bearing his crescent of gold teeth. Yes, Lord. Fortunately, I know how difficult it is for a bear to catch a mouse. So many holes for them to run to. So I will forgive you. But I fear a debt is now owed. How will you pay? The obsidian looks forlorn. Slowly he extends his left hand. The duke slaps it lightly. The left. Very good. How old was the girl? Young. Twenty winters. Distinguishing features? She wore a tuxedo. A tuxedo? The duke looks at me, then back at the obsidian. Go help your brothers, Belloc. The obsidian bows and rushes back to the stairs, disappearing into the shadows. The duke returns to Gorgo. Wake the baron of this neighborhood. Kreminsky, isn't it? Gorgo nods. Put out a bounty on a red bitch wearing... He looks at me again. A tuxedo. Gorgo steps away. The duke looks back at me, tapping his lacquered nails on the table. I am also disappointed in you, Ephraim. She's not one of the obsidian slaps in my right ear, but a slap from one of them is like getting a door slammed on your head. I pitch sideways to the ground for the second time of the night. They straighten me back in the chair. Who was she? the Duke asks. I don't know. Are you lying to me? I do hate liars. Why the bleeding hell would I bring someone else here? I shake my head so I can see straight. I know the rules, yet you broke them. I said only bring your team, and you didn't even bring all of them. As if you were afraid of me. As if I wouldn't keep my word. As if I need to lie. I never bring my team to a drop. He looks at Volga in amusement. Except your luggage hauler. But do not fret. Since you took it upon yourself to disobey me, I took it upon myself to help you follow the rules. Gorgo returns from his call, dragging a woman behind him. It's Sira. They've brutalized her. Face, one large contusion. Volga lunges forward. An obsidian slams Volga in the back of her head 
with a haft and one of their axes. She goes woozy and tries to get up. He and another thorn kick her legs out and stand on her back so she's belly down on the floor. Vulgar, stop, I tell her numbly. The Duke watches me with neutral expression. Is this how the syndicate treats its contractors? I say. No, I am no slaver. Respect is given until a debt is owed. The Duke smiles. After all, what is a man without a cold? Sira looks up at me helplessly through the swollen mess of her face. I never liked her. Not that I liked Dano that much more, but it makes me sick what these psychos have done to her. Let her go. She's done nothing to you. On the contrary, she has betrayed a friend of mine. Who? His eyes glitter. You, darling. What? What are you talking about? Your friends are cheap, Gogo says. I approached the red man, but this one. She came to me of her own volition, offering to spy on you for money. Every smoke, every drink, she scurried to me and chittered in my ear like a little greedy pet wanting a snag and a pat on the head. Wants to be a thorn, this one. Sira can't meet my eyes, and I feel sick knowing it's true. You were a friend, Volga says to her. No, she wasn't. I assume the red girl you brought from the ship was your insider, the Duke asks. Lyria of Lagalos, the one who fooled into carrying Kobachi's drone. I never wanted the syndicate to know about Lyria. Sira did tell them everything. Yes, and then you saved her life. Your professionalism is suddenly quite indicted, Ephraim. There's no smile on his face now. Why save her? You ask me if I was a thief of order or one of chaos, I say slowly. I get the groove. This is your world now. Your rules. She performed a service. A debt was owed. He deserves to get paid. That is a good answer, the Duke says. But she is not a thief, and she is not your friend. She is a slave in all but name, and will run back to her masters. So, I am afraid she must die. He waits for me to object, but I know it's useless. The only thing I can protect now is my life and Volga's. I suggest we kill him too, Gogo says. Oh, my! Are you now the Duke of Hands, Gogo? The Duke asks. No? Then shut your mouth! Gogo smiles coldly at him, but says nothing. You have... Complicated things, Ephraim. But the syndicate honours its contracts. You owe nothing. You are free to leave. 
What about her? I ask, looking to Sira. She has shown a duplicitous nature. She cannot be trusted. If she spoke so quickly to us, who else might she speak to? But she wronged you, not me. Therefore, her fate is in your hands. Acid, axe, fire, beast, choose the one-way ticket. Ephraim, I'm sorry, she says pathetically through swollen lips. I can't hate her. I'm too tired to hate her. Please. Volga, I ask. She shakes her head. Just let her go, I say to the Duke. Thank you, Sira whimpers. Thank you. Volga, I... Don't talk to her, I snap. The Duke raises an eyebrow. Very well. Gogo, you heard the man. Let her go. Gogo grabs Sira by the hair and drags her to the edge of the high-rise. She kicks and screams when she sees what he's about to do. Ephraim! Ephraim! I do nothing. Gogo throws her off the edge of the high-rise like a sack of trash. We don't even hear the impact. I imagine her lying in a messy pile of meat fifty stories below, like Trig on that mountainside. I watch the Duke, my ears filled with the scream of memory. Let the obsidian girl up, the Duke says. Released by the thorns, Volga stumbles to her feet, more angry than afraid. Only that one was loyal in the end. I appreciate loyalty. So her life is my parting gift to you, a proven, true friend. You are lucky. Such is more than most thieves can manage. I face the duke and swallow back the bile. Then I thank you for your patronage, duke. I trust our business is concluded. For today, I turn and help Volga limp away. Ephraim, the duke calls. I pause, fearing another twist. I wonder, where will you go now? To sleep. Alone? A pity. But after that? Don't know. Haven't thought that far ahead. You have money now, all for yourself. Money enough to retire, to do whatever you like. But I know you, and you are not the sort to gather dust. You need this life, need it to feel alive, to feel anything at all. We always want more, people like you and me. The Queen can give you what you crave. I can give that to you. I spare a look at Gorgo, then ask the Duke, Are you... Offering me employment? The Duke smiles. Amongst other things. He gives a card to Gorgo, who brings it to me. A datapad number is printed in white on black. When you grow bored, I'm always looking for a helping hand. Gorgo holds on to the card with his long nails as I try to pull it from him. 
The card tears in half. He flicks his end at my face. I gather up the pieces and put them into my pocket, and Volga and I walk away, doing everything in our power not to run as fast as we can. In the back of my mind, I wish Rabbit a swifter end than Cyrus. Rat or not, the green was one of mine, and now a debt is damn well owed. Chapter 43 Lyria Street Prey My shoes pound wet pavement. The sound of scorchers echoes in my ears. The weapons chewed the ground around my feet as the obsidians rushed me in the industrial tower. Scarier than the bloody damn red hand. There were three of them in black, their hair white as bleached bone. They moved faster than the dogs of Camp 121, pushing off walls and support beams like there was no gravity. I thought I was dead, cornered on a level with only open air behind me. I saw an open ventilation duct. Didn't even look to see if it had a bottom before I dove in. The sheet metal vaporised behind me from their weapons. I fell ten levels before I managed to jam out my legs and hands to halt my fall. The friction shredded the skin from my palms and dislocated my shoulder. But I managed to slide down the rest of the way, just as my brother Angus taught me in the vents of Lagolos. For the first time in my life, I'm glad I'm small. When I reached the end of the air duct, I kicked my way out, found a construction ladder down, and then limped off into the streets of the reconstruction zone. Still, the obsidians follow. I can't outrun them, so I jump into a dumpster behind a tenement complex and push rotting trash over myself. Rats the size of toddlers and cockroaches the size rats should be scurry around me, biting my back, my arms. But I lay corpse still and listened to the obsidians howling to each other in their alien tongue. They're searching the streets. A searing line of pain works its way down my left forearm. I must have cracked the bone in the fall. Someone's coming. I hold my breath. The top layer of skin on my hands oozes blood. I wince as I clutch the shiny pistol I took from outside Philippe's car. I was too terrified to turn around and use it on the obsidians. I've never even held a weapon before. Could I shoot a man? Who were they, anyway? Who did Philippe deliver the children to? The pink one was the boss, but I didn't hear his name. If only I'd caught Philippe's... his real name... I hate the bastard. His crow shot Kavix. They killed Kavix. Are they going to kill Pax and the girl? Don't let them die. Don't let it be my fault, please. I shift in the garbage. Flies buzz up in my face. The smell brings me back to the dump site outside 121. I feel Liam pressed against my chest, his little heart beating so fast. Oh, it's too much. 
I fling myself out of the garbage bin, swatting the flies off me in a panic. My shoulder stabs with pain. I kneel there in the street amongst burner butts and feel the tightness in my chest fade as the rain soaks through my tuxedo jacket. Think, Lyria, think. I have to run, but where do I go? The Sovereign will think I'm in on this, and they'll kill me or put me in a cell for the rest of my life. I can't go back to the Citadel. But Liam... Only shadows populate the streets. Cold rain has been falling since we left Quicksilver's. My teeth chatter together. I think of Kavix's kind face, how he said that Sophocles chose me, how I was a sign of magic. Bloody damn lie. I'm poison. All the time I was in the Citadel, I resented them. I loathed the Sovereign. That's why the children were taken, because I was rotten. I was stupid enough to trust a grey. I tuck Philippe's pistol inside my jacket, pick a direction and start moving, sticking to the shadows. I jog as much as I can, but my shoulder hurts so bad I have to rest every three blocks or so. I reach into my jacket to clutch the pistol and duck into a doorway when several hoverbikes roar down the street. On the backs, men in shiny beetle-black helmets scan the shadows. I fall to the ground and start shaking like an addict and scratch under my nose like I've just done black dust. One of the hoverbikers pauses ten metres away, then rips off down the street, thinking me a junkie. I can't linger here. They'll flush me like they did in the dump at one twenty-one. I gotta go up. Carefully, I leave the shadows and push on, searching for a lift. But all the tenement houses here are stunted buildings underneath the foundation lattice that supports the high-rises. Those that are connected to the high-rises are fortified and secured with huge doors. I pound on several, but they won't let me in. So I follow old elevated tram tracks looking for a station. Might be a lift near one. Up ahead, I hear a nostalgic sound through the rain. A zither. Reds. They might help me. Underneath the tram is an abandoned, derelict station skinned in graffiti. A tent city of vagrants has sprouted up around it. Electronics glow from inside the tents, and men gather around a burning barrel for warmth. Oi, what have we got here? A man asks, spotting me. You lost, little lass. He's from Mars by the sound of him, and I know right off I've made a mistake. Lo, brother, there a lift near here, I ask. I'd settle for stairs. What would a little thing like you need to go up for? Another red asks. This one from Mars, too. You'd look better going down. I step back from him. Some nice silk, that, another says. Fancy silk. Gamma silk. Righto. Have we got a gamma on our hands, lass? Teeth all clean, hair all nice. What's your name, lass? 
Where are you from? None of your bloody damn business, I say. But if you want to point me on my way, might be some chit in it for you. Might be we just take that chit. Why are you holding your arm? One of them asks. You fall from the sky. Aerial accident. His teeth are black and crumbling from demon dust. He's got the black tip on his nose, the cartilage eroding between the two nostrils. Come here. Let's take a look at it. Two of the men on the outskirts of the group have started inching toward me from the sides. I back away. My shaking hand drifts into my jacket. You want to mind yourself, I say thinly. My people will be looking for me. We're your people, lass. Memories of red hands in the moonlight seep into the moment. Come on and get warm by the fire. We got some swill and some dust if you want to see angels, sister. We'll show you that. All the sights of the veil. You warm each other up, I snarl. Touch me and I'll burn your bloody balls off. Na, na, moody one, the one with the teeth says. He's been slowly walking toward me. That's not what a lass's mouth is for. Don't you know? I pull the pistol out of my jacket and point it at his balls. The men recoil, but the one with the black teeth just laughs at the trembling barrel. Nice scorcher, da. Classic lions. Where'd you get your hands on a piece like that? Master, give it to you. As he waits for an answer, his eyes flick up. It saves my life. I wheel around and see a man lunging toward me from behind. I fall back and pull the trigger. The gun is silent and without recoil. His leg explodes as the metal slug tears into it. The skin of his thigh peels back like the flesh of an overripe peach. His severed leg kicks back across the pavement, hissing steam and blood. He screams looking at the stump and falls. I wheel on the rest of them with the gun. They cower like children. I step toward them, heart raging, wanting to kill every last piece of shit. The man on the ground moans in pain, clutching his mangled stump, and I feel sick. I turn and run from them till my legs are numb. Shaking, I collapse between two crumbling tenement complexes, Dogs bark and babies scream out open windows. My stomach lurches and I sick up all over the trash. When my stomach has emptied, I fall back on my ass and shake. The man is going to die. I was going to kill the rest of them. I toss the gun away, disgusted. There's a loud roar and the sound of a crash from the street. I crawl to peer out of the alley and see a street stained by the green sign of a tenement complex. A hoverbike idles in the centre of the street. A huge man gets off the back and pulls off his helmet. White hair flows down his back. He can't be more than twenty, though it's hard to tell with obsidians. The man stalks toward a person he just shot through the leg with the harpoon reel from the front of his bike. Faces watch out the windows of the complex. 
The obsidian picks the person up with one hand and draws a pointed hammer from a holster on his back. I look away and almost throw up again when I hear the wet sound of the skull caving in. The faces disappear from the windows and the bike roars away, dragging the red-haired body behind on the harpoon reel. I pick the gun back up. If I stay on the streets, they'll find me. I look up and see the rails of the old tramway. If I can climb up there, I can move without being on the streets. But someone might see me. I gotta risk it. My fingers are bloody by the time I climb the cracked concrete support column up to the tramline. There's a depression between the rusted rails that I can scramble along without being seen from the ground. It's all that saves my life. As I work my way along the tramline, more bikes search the streets, like the whole underbelly of Lost City has woken to try and find me. Who are these people? Over the next hour, I pass several public grav lifts, but they're all guarded by men in black coats with chrome nightshades. Finally, exhausted and shivering, I find an abandoned stairwell beside a derelict grav lift. It's unguarded. Feral dogs snarl at me, their eyes glowing from under the covered stairwells, as I make my way upward toward the lights of Hyperion ninety levels above. As I ascend level by level to brighter, more reputable zones of the city, flyers speed through the air in the avenues, surface cars and trams rattle on the crisscrossing bridges. I duck my head when I feel eyes on me, and keep a white-knuckled hold on the pistol inside my jacket. Now that I have it, I don't ever want to be without it again. I stop glancing up at the smug lair above. It seems no closer each time I do. This city wasn't meant to be crossed on foot. But there's no one to ask for help, and even if I did find watchmen down here, I'd be too frightened to approach them. Not after last time. Who would believe my story? And who's to say they aren't on the payroll of the man Philippe works for? Remembering that pink smile chills me as much as the rain. Slick, pretty, but rotten underneath. Just like the rest of this forsaken city. I'd do anything to be home. Not in the citadel. Not in the camp. But in the mine. My family around me before the world started chewing us one by one. Ava, why did we ever leave? I speak to her as if she had the answers. But it only raises more doubt. In the citadel there's a pair of other mothers desperate to find their children. Children I lost. My legs burn, each step harder than the last. It seems a life ago when I thought this gravity easy, back when Philippe and I walked the whole promenade. Was all of it a lie? Even the pain I saw in him. I make it to the next level. Then the next one after that. Its anger keeps my ass moving. Anger at Philippe for using me. At the men who thought I was their prey. At myself for trusting 
anyone on this bloody damn moon. I'm almost there. The stairwell grows cleaner. The graffiti is covered up by grey paint. There's more lights, more cars, more sounds of a healthy city, sirens and advertisements. The stray dogs are on their lonesome now and wag their tails at me as I pass. I'm just beneath the smog. I can see the neon stain of hollow advertisements through the grey clouds and a checkpoint up guarding the entrance to the promenade levels above the smog. If I keep going up, I'll have to pass through it. I could stay a level below. There's shops, lights, people milling through the streets. I look out at the city in the rain. My breath clouds in front of me. I could disappear. I could find a way to run. But if I do, then what of it? I'm like Philippe, just another canker. I'd never see Liam again. As the rain seeps through my saturated tuxedo, I keep coming back to my sister's face the moment we parted in 121. The fear in her eyes, the trust when she begged me to protect her son. It shatters all that's left of me to know I did that to someone else. Helped a man steal their children. Watch the man who brought me out of hell die on the floor. I lean against the concrete barrier to catch my breath. The sounds of the city warble all around me, but I feel so very far away. I hear the laughter of my nieces and nephews. I remember the smile on my father's face when he'd find me wearing his boots. I ache for my mother who deserved so much more than to wither and die from the inside. I miss my brothers who went off to war, and I see again my sister perched up on that rusty antenna looking out over the camp and dreaming of stars she would never reach. And I feel anger, a consuming furious anger building in my chest at the people who would destroy families, hunt their fellow humans. The sovereign didn't protect my family. But I'm not her. I force my legs to climb the last stairs to the first promenade level and walk toward the fenced checkpoint. I swallow my fear of the greys behind the glass. My hands rest atop my head as best they can with my injured shoulder. A weapon-warning siren warbles as a scanner flickers blue light over my body. Weapon detected, weapon detected, weapon detected. Two watchmen atop the guard posts aim their rifles at me. Stop, citizen, a voice says over a speaker. On your knees or we will shoot. Chapter 44 Lyria Lion Guards I sit in a windowless grey room with an untouched cup of coffee on the table in front of me. The shiny black lens of a camera watches me from the wall. The checkpoint wardens who confiscated Philippe's pistol were incredulous when they heard my story. Rightfully so. They say it ain't on the news. They haven't gotten a dispatch from Central. 
All they got is the words that tumble out of my gob in a chattering mess. I've not seen anyone since they left. I'm half asleep when the door slams open and a soldier fills the frame. She's a stocky grey with exhausted, narrow eyes, wearing black combat armour etched with a pegasus in flight over the Roman numeral seven. A drenched animal pelt hangs from her left shoulder. I stare at it in fear, as I remember colliding with her chest in the hallway at the Telemannus estate. She smells like oil and wet dog. Two soldiers with roaring gold lines on their chest armour come in after her, one an obsidian, the other a gold, but she's clearly in charge. Lyria of Lagolos. The words are a demand, not a question. I nod, frightened by the hard-looking group. Their faces look carved of cracked city concrete. The stocky grey is a howler, one of the reaper's own, and the other men have sworn their lives to the sovereign. To them, I'm a terrorist. I hear you've been spinning quite a tale. Who are you? I manage. My name is Holiday Tinakamura. Special envoy of the Sovereign. Muzzle her. The men come around the table. I push backward instinctively. They grab me. One slams a fist into the side of my neck. My legs turn into a puddle. Black throbs in my vision. Something metal is shoved against my face. The fingers of the device crawl around my head, pulling taut even as a rubber appendage pushes into my mouth and expands till my tongue is pinned to the floor of my mouth. I hyperventilate. Through the nose, the grey woman says. She snaps her fingers in front of my face. Breathe through your nose, girl, or you'll pass out. Breathe. I listen to her and suck oxygen down through my nose. Shell her! One of the men pulls a plastic vest down over my head. My vision is still spotty as my head emerges out the top of it. He pushes my arms together in front of me and I groan in pain from the pressure on the dislocated shoulder. Then the vest inflates, wrapping around my body, pinning my arms to my chest. Once it's inflated, armour hardens on the outside as the polymer darkens. For your protection, Holiday says. She leads me roughly by my muzzle out the door. A dozen heavily armed line guards with the red planet globe on their left shoulders, Martians all, wait in the rain in front of a warship, bristling with guns and blazing with lights. Their rifles are up, their mechanised helmets scanning the buildings around. Several shadowy figures circle overhead. The local checkpoint watchmen eye the line guards with awe and glance out the windows at the shadows in the sky. The watchmen are under guard by more line guards and have had their weapons taken away. A red watchman with the Vox pyramid sewn onto his uniform nurses a split lip and sits handcuffed. A shattered data pad lies on the ground beside him. Holiday addresses the watchmen. The information you heard tonight is classified. Divulging even a word of it 
will earn you charges of treason against the Republic. A second shuttle is on its way to collect you for debriefing. She looks at the bloodied Vox Red. You ever want to do anything more than sort trash in Deepgrave? I suggest you comply. She turns back to me. When I say run, you close your eyes and run. Understand? I nod. Package ready for boarding, Holiday says into her mouthpiece. Blackfire? Ocelot? There's a murmur from the calm clipped to her ear. She looks at me and slings her rifle from her shoulder and primes the charge. Three, two, one, run! Three strobe lights sizzle white-hot light from the top of the ship, blinding out my vision before I clench shut my eyes. They pull me along at a run. I feel rain, the concrete, then the metal deck of a ship under my shoes. My vision returns, stained green by the shuttle lights as the soldiers funnel into the back with me. The shuttle jumps upward, the back ramp still open. When we're a hundred metres from the ground, more of the Martians float up on grav boots and land inside the craft. Only then does the ramp close. The warship's engines roar and they shove me into a seat. The men don't set down their weapons. The gold and the obsidian both touch razors on their forearms. Out the cockpit windows, I see the shadowy figures are still escorting us. I glimpse inky black helmets, shaped like the stuff of deep mine nightmares, and thick black armour as they fly through the rain. Company yet? Holiday asks the helmeted blue pilot. Sky's clear, ma'am. Civic traffic diverted. We'll be in Gov-Alt in ten seconds. My ears pop. Then it's silent except for the engines. Everyone is edgy. Are they worried about another attack from the kidnappers? How far could their reach possibly extend? Distance to Citadel. Fifty clicks. Something beeps in the cockpit. Incoming bogies, atmospheric rippers, the pilot says, descending from a skyhook, Barker markings. How many? Fourteen rippers, two gunboats. Shall I call Skylord support? That damn woman, Holiday mutters. No, alert the Citadel, but tell Skylord to hold. I was ordered to keep this quiet. A dogfight over the city ain't exactly whispering. The blue carries out her commands as the co-pilot speaks into his headset. Attention, Barker Aircraft, this is HAT Pride 7. You are in violation of Republic government space and a sovereign's warrant. Deviate your course immediately to civilian altitudes. You have ten seconds to comply. They're not deviating. I see them now through the cockpit. Little black dots, small as flies in the distance, hovering in a line to prevent us from reaching the citadel. Incoming transmission. Nakamura. A woman's deep voice growls over the comm. Should have known she'd send you. Cut to your engines and deliver me, the red terrorist. A blue hands holiday a remote comm. Victra, the witness is under arrest. Do not interfere with Republic jurisdiction. I've been authorized by the Sovereign to deliver her using any and all means at my disposal. You don't want this trouble. 
Darling, I am the trouble. Two streaks of light rip across the darkness from her ships, missing the cockpit by bare meters. They took my daughter, my daughter. I shiver as I realize who was on the other side of the line. You want the whole damn republic knowing about this? Holiday snarls. They'll make the sovereign step down. Divert your ships. The witness has been taken in for questioning so we can get your daughter back. You're wasting time. Questioning? Victra laughs. More of Virginia's half measures. Look what that has given us. It's my turn. If you fire again on this ship, you risk killing the only lead we have. She came to us. We're going to the Citadel. You idiots lost my child. I will get her back with words or with iron. Your choice. Give me the red or I will come and cut her out of the belly of your ship. You have ten seconds to comply. Victra, out. Holiday is worried. Was that broadcast coming from the ships? No, Mom. Pilot, full speed, straight down their throats. She turns to her men. Weapons hot, return fire only. She's not in the gunships. She's airborne. She swings out her rifle. Expect gold borders. The men hop to their feet and point their guns back at the closed ramp. Something slams into the ship. Then three more collisions against the hull. Her ship roars through the air toward the wall of rip wings. Closer, closer. Warning shots across our bow. Faster, Holiday says. The ceiling sparks and glows as someone drills in through the outside. The lion guards cluster around the sparks, guns pointed up. Faster! We punch through the line of rip wings. They bank to follow us. I see the citadel glowing in the distance. The ship cracks as it breaks the sound barrier. The sparks rain down from the ceiling on me. More Augustus vessels rise up from citadel landing pads to greet us. With them ascend dozens of men in armour. At their head, a huge figure in pale blue fox armour. Niobe, how Telemannus has come to war.